What's up, everybody? It's your boy Scott here. I just wanted to check in with you real quick. So this is an old school Truezilla re-up. Um, this is the full 2021 Cyber Polygon exercise put on by the World Economic Forum. Uh, it's a doozy. It's about five and a half, like almost six hours. Um, but, you know, I think there's some really good information here. I personally am about, I don't know, three and a half hours into it. Um, and and there's, some, there's some good takeaways for sure, you know. Uh, I think it's worth listening to. So I figured putting it up here in audio podcast form, it would be, you know, digestible, something you guys could just like listen to. And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, you know. Hop on our Telegram. Uh, it's at TruzillaPod. Um you know, tell us, tell us about it, you know, comment on the posts. Um, also, you know, hit us a message on Instagram, uh, at Truezilla. Let us know what your thoughts are, if you had any good takeaways. But, um, some of the things that really stood out to me or have stood out to me so far are, you know, in the Western American centric narrative, you know, they've painted Russia as the bad guy. Right. But if you, as you listen to this, you realize like the it's, it's mostly Russians, mostly Russians are involved with cyber polygon. Like the guy that's hosting it is Russian. Most of the commentators that they have in each segment are from Russia. Like the, they have two quote unquote astronauts on the quote unquote international space station. And both of them are the, just exclusively the Russian astronauts. So it's really interesting. So I don't know what that means or how that fits in, but it, it is an interesting uh, perspective or interesting takeaway. Uh, another thing that stood out to me. Okay, so there was a good conversation on the uh, crypto. Of course, crypto had to enter the conversation, right? And it's uh, the segment's called New World, New Currency. And it's a conversation about cryptocurrency, but who are the people that they chose to participate in that? It was some dude who was like the moderator. Uh, it was a Russian financial person uh, from the Russian government and then a representative from Visa and a representative from MasterCard. So you don't have anybody there that's speaking on behalf of crypto. You know, there's no Max Kaiser's there's no, uh, you know, people that are like, you know, in influencers in the crypto world, which is very interesting. And you notice how the whole conversation is steered towards central bank digital currency, of course, and discrediting Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. Right. So uh, and of course, if nothing else, just within the first 20 minutes, you'll hear uh, <laughs> uh, Klaus Schwab himself doing his thing. And uh, I just love how they're just trying to fit the square peg in the round hole and trying to I think, I think he used the term digital antibodies, right? Uh, digital antibodies, he's, they're trying to create the correlation and the connection between, you know, the pandemic in real life and this alleged cyber pandemic, right? So he's, they're talking about, like, how we wanted to have, like, digital vaccines or something like that. Like, I don't think he used those exact words, but I remember him saying digital antibodies. So anyway, we just wanted to put this out, put it on the record so it's there for posterity. Uh, it is on YouTube. I got it off the YouTube channel. Um, it's really interesting because it's on this web- this uh this this the whole the whole all of uh the whole cyber polygon exercise is only hosted at this channel called bi.zone that has 930 subscribers so it's not on the world economic forum website it's uh it's and like this whole conference only has 1792 views so uh right now it's sitting at 21 likes at the time of recording here which is 5:18 p.m. on July 15th and 38 dislikes, so there's still a higher proportionate number of dislikes. But I want to encourage all of you to go to this and go ahead and give it a thumbs down. Of course they have the comments turned off, of course. <laughs> but uh, Truezilla Mind Militia Call to Action. Go to this bi.zone channel, 930 subscribers, and thumbs down the shit out of this motherfucker. All right, anyway. Um, in fact, I click subscribe. I'm unsubscribing. Yes, unsubscribe. We don't want to subscribe. We don't want to give them any anything. So there you go. Um, so without further ado... 
This is Cyber Polygon 2021. Dear ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining Cyber Polygon. We are gathering online for the second consecutive year to talk about the opportunities and challenges that technological progress brings. Cybersecurity remains one of the most important topics on the global agenda. Our world has changed and we are adapting to it. We are spending more time on the internet. Companies are moving their services online. And this changes the way the world operates. Ecosystems have become a new trend for businesses and countries and around us almost everywhere. Their resilience will define the safety of our future for years to come. I would like to introduce our first prominent guest and distinguished speaker, the Prime Minister of the Russian Federation, Mr. Mikhail Mishustin. He's a politician who appreciates the potential of innovation and the importance of technological breakthroughs for the well-being of our country. It is a great honor that he is opening our conference for the second year in a row. Prime Minister, it is my privilege to welcome you here today. Dear colleagues and friends, I'm delighted to welcome you to the international online cybersecurity training. It has now been four years since this unique event started bringing together millions of viewers from around the world. It attracts attendance of recognized experts and high professionals, as well as leaders of global corporations and international organizations, representatives of IT giants such as IBM and Microsoft, experts from Kaspersky Lab, Rostelecom, Azon, and other known companies. And of course, Russian and international banks are also here. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the first manned space flight. At some point, we will also be joined by cosmonauts from the International Space Station. Over the years, this industry has gone through significant change. This issue of cyber uh, security is becoming a priority. Spacecraft and ground stations require protection from possible attacks as well as secure data communications uh, between space and ground control facilities. The representative list of participants confirms that the issues discussed uh, at Cyber Polygon are truly important. Addressing cyber threats and securing common digital future are within priorities of every government and company. 
at the age of digital transformation, this requires developing a constructive dialogue as well as sharing of knowledge and experience. Thus, uh, jointly creating conditions for the sustainable development of countries and business. Last year brought tremendous changes. It has reshaped the lives of the majority of people. Working out of home has become common. Online services are developed and introduced at acceleration speed. People are spending more and more time online. In this new reality, governments and businesses are focusing on improving life and work environment. Increasing digitalization shortens customer delivery time for most advanced ideas. By the end of 2023, digital transformation will affect 40% of the Russian economy and around 650 companies. At the President's instruction, within the next two and a half years, all socially significant government and municipal services will be transformed into user-friendly and client-centric digital format. Federal agencies are already upgrading their data infrastructure to make this happen. Regions are also getting involved. One of the biggest tasks for the government is eliminating digital inequality. In today's world, free access to the Internet, availability of uh, a wide range of information resources, communication via social media and online shopping are important criteria uh, when it comes to the quality of life. We are working hard to achieve full Internet penetration in Russia, including the most remote areas. It is planned to accomplish this by 2030. Over a thousand internet access base stations will be installed in all small towns before the end of this year. Their residents are looking forward to this with great anticipation. The internet is not only a source of information, but also a source of more employment opportunities. The number of remote jobs is already growing. Telework is becoming more popular. The digital industry is changing the job market and uh, other sectors of the economy. Artificial intelligence, machine learning and the Internet of Things are extensively uh, implemented in manufacturing, transport infrastructure, healthcare facilities, government bodies in various uh, science-intensive industries. Augmented reality and machine learning are transforming industrial production and energy sector, creating more environmentally friendly development prospects. Artificial intelligence accelerates research, enabling uh, faster development of new medical drugs. Expedited development of COVID-19 vaccines uh, would have been impossible without modern technology. Technical vision contributes uh, to space exploration and protecting our planet from disasters. Digital ecosystems are a new stage of industrial evolution. They help consolidate partners, manufacturers and suppliers and function as one organism. Countries and major businesses are building digital ecosystems to boost the effectiveness of various services. 
Some of these networks have millions of clients. The number of companies inside an ecosystem may reach several hundred. This growing interconnectivity brings cybersecurity of organizations and their clients to the fore. Uh, the World Economic Forum has named cyber attacks on critical uh, data infrastructure one of the global technological risks of this year. Attacks on supply chains have become uh, more frequent in the past years, and this alarming trend persists. The first quarter of 2021 accounts for 51.6% more cyber crimes than the year before. Criminal activity across the entire IT industry has grown by 33.7%. Higher security requires understanding existing risks and taking an intelligent approach to cyber security strategies. We must use the best industry practices, including those of our foreign partners, and find working solutions together. Cybercrime and hacking are global threats that uh, can only be prevented by efforts of the entire international community. In March 2021, 193 members of the United Nations upheld uh, a report of the open-ended working group on uh, developments in the field of information and telecommunications in the context of international security. The working group was established at Russia's initiative. For many years, our country has called for a common mechanism of taking cyber threats in the world. Intensive support for this approach indicates that most countries are ready to work together to solve issues of global cyber stability. This opens wider prospects for further cooperation. Colleagues, today you are discussing truly uh, important issues. I am confident that your ideas and proposals will help solve many problems currently faced by governments and businesses. Together, we can map a safe course of digital development for the humankind for years ahead. I wish you engaging discussions and productive communication. Dear audience, let me introduce our next distinguished guest, whom we are honored to have for his welcoming remarks. The founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, Professor Klaus Schwab. The World Economic Forum has been actively supporting cyber polygons since the beginning. Professor Schwab, the floor is yours. Your Excellency, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Hermann Greff, dear participants, it's a great privilege to address you for the second year in a row here at the Cyber Polygon. We have come together today to discuss how we can develop secure digital ecosystems and protect companies, but also societies, from cyber attacks. We must do so with a broader mission in mind, to improve the state of our digital world by enhancing 
on the one hand, global cooperation, but also public-private cooperation. I'm pleased that we are joined today by Prime Minister Mishustin. Dear Prime Minister, global and public-private cooperation is really critical to addressing our shared cyber security challenges. We are grateful for the long cooperation which the World Economic Forum has established with the Russian Federation, both with government but also with the business community. I wish to thank particularly Hermann Graf, CEO and Chairman of the Executive Board of Sperbank, and a committed partner of the World Economic Forum and actually a member of its Board of Trustees and a co-founder of the Center for Cybersecurity. We greatly, Hermann, appreciate your leadership in championing cybersecurity across the financial system and across the world. Allow me now to reflect on today's theme, which is to develop secure digital ecosystems. It is remarkable how quickly this goal has become so important around the world. Three years ago, we initiated our Center for Cybersecurity at the World Economic Forum. We recognized, already then, the crucial importance of cybersecurity as a global issue and as a corporate challenge. We did not expect, however, that digital connectivity and cybersecurity would come to support and influence every aspect of our business and social lives as it has done, particularly in the past year. Digital connections are embedded in our homes, our workplaces, and through operational technology, our critical infrastructure. This connectivity has allowed us to realize incredible efficiency, even in a world where we worked remotely. It is not an over statement to say that it has enabled us to continue to function during a time of unprecedented crisis. Technology has been central to the way we have collectively managed the COVID-19 pandemic and the global crisis. Digital infrastructure made it possible to deliver essential services. It helped business to run. And it helped us to maintain contact with each other. Digitalization has us helped to solve some of the major hurdles put in place by the pandemic. But it has also opened us up to new challenges. One of the most important among them is how to ensure digital technologies and communications are safe, secure and trustworthy. Many technology leaders have noted that within a few short months, we have achieved advances in digital transformation that might otherwise have taken years. But this digital dividend of the COVID pandemic is fragile. 
Cyber incidents can undermine the trust in key online services and they could derail adoption of socially valuable innovations. The World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report includes cybersecurity failure and IT infrastructure breakdowns in its top 10 risks, both by likelihood and by impact. The implication is clear. A lack of cybersecurity has become a clear and immediate danger to our society worldwide. We have seen in the past few months, for example, ransomware attacks targeting hospitals, critical infrastructure, school systems, the power grid, and many other essential services. Citizens are feeling the repercussions of cyber attacks directly. Citizens are impacted by energy shortages, delayed medical treatment, and other effects this new breed of audacious cyber attacks causes. This is not a problem that is easily solved. Ransomware attacks are complex and criminal enterprises are increasing their scale and impact. This highlights the need for a structured, multi-stakeholder, multilateral approach to secure our society against some. In this, we must all work together. Governments are in charge of guaranteeing security, but the deep expertise that is needed to develop a secure cyber ecosystem often lies with the private sector. Similarly, just as governments are often pooling the resources which each other through international organizations such as Interpol to fight physical crime, we need more similar collaboration between governments and I should add private business to fight cybercrime. The good news is that such public-private collaboration efforts already exist as we demonstrate today. Recognizing the need to mobilize a global response to the growing cyber threats, the World Economic Forum launched the Center for Cybersecurity, as I mentioned, in 2018. Our center provides an independent and impartial platform to foster collaboration between all members of the global cybersecurity community, both in the public and in the private sectors. Sparebank, together with other companies from around the world, is a founding member and actively involved in our initiatives aimed at addressing systemic cybersecurity challenges and finally to restore and to improve digital trust. During the pandemic, the paradigm shift to a digital way of life has made the role of cybersecurity as a global public good even more pronounced. 
good cybersecurity enables business continuity at a time when a single point of failure in only one organization can become a systemic calamity with repercussions for the whole society. As our digital landscape expands along with our dependence on it, we need to continuously reconsider and refine our expectations of cybersecurity. Going forward, it must now be one of the first thoughts and priorities that any organization has. It is one of the foundations of business sustainability and continuity in the future. And it is becoming an important part of every organization's brand and reputation. In this era and in the future, cybersecurity will be the foundation for trustworthy technologies and businesses to help the economy to bounce back from the COVID-19 crisis, governments, enterprises, but also small business will continue to need innovative ways to build and give access to services. In many cases, this means further connecting services and data, creating completely new digital and expanded digital ecosystems. This demands an understanding of cyber risks these new systems will face and proactive efforts to build those systems with security by design principles in mind. In the early stages of the pandemic, we saw the adoption of large-scale working-from-home arrangements, cloud services and video conferencing. This seemed transformational at the time, only a few short moments ago. But today, we are witnessing the proliferation of even more ambitious initiatives. So is, for example, the EU proposed digital law that aims to provide a safe way for citizens to access and link public and private services online. If new services are to be adopted at the speed necessary for long-term sustained economic recovery, citizens must be able to trust that the technologies are secure and that their assets and personal information and data are protected. The principle of trust, therefore, will be absolutely necessary. Finally, one of the lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic is also the notion of resilience. We have to protect ourselves not only against the virus, we also have to develop the ability to withstand a virus attack. In other words, masks are not sufficient. We need vaccines to immunize ourselves. The same is true for cyber attacks. Here too, we have to move from simple protection to immunization. We need to build IT infrastructures that have 
digital antibodies built in inherently to protect themselves. In conclusion, I would like to state again how essential it is to see the high number of leaders that join the cyber polygon this year. During the course of today, we will test how to work together across organizations, across borders, and across the public and private sector. This is a significant step in preparing for an even more highly connected and I hope a highly secure and trusted future. I wish you every success. Thank you for your informative remarks. I would like now to give the floor to the host of Cyberpolygon, Alexandra. He will moderate the training and tell you more about what you can expect today at Cyberpolygon 2021. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Griff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cyberpolygon 2021. It is my honor to host this event for the third year in a row. All this is brought to you by Sberbank and VI Zone Cybersecurity. We are very grateful for the continuous support from the World Economic Forum and Interpol. I'm happy to say that IBM once again agreed to be the technology partner for the training exercise. This year, we have a lot to talk about as the world is still adapting to a new cyber age where we find ourselves spending more time online than in real life. Now let's watch a short video clip. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to explain the format of Cyber Polygon. This is a live stream from Sberbank Security Operations Center located in Moscow. In this stream, we will have eye-opening discussions featuring world leaders and recognized experts who will share their outlook on the most pressing matters in cybersecurity. It will last for five hours, so bring a second cushion. If you miss anything, please remember that you can revisit any of the segments that you see today online on cyberpolygon.com. Now, the other part of Cyberpolygon is the technical training session, which has already started. This year, we have 200 teams from 48 countries who will test their skills in two very common scenarios. The first scenario is defense. The participating teams, the defending teams, will try to deflect an active attack on a business-critical 
system. This attack is orchestrated by the red team located here, right above me in the crisis room. Now, the second scenario is response. The defending teams, the so-called blue teams, will try to investigate the incident which started as a supply chain attack. Same as last year, the teams will apply classic forensics and threat hunting techniques. So this is what we have on the agenda. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now ready to start our first discussion. Ecosystems as a new way of global integration. Mr. Hermann Greff, CEO and Chairman of the Executive Board at Sberbank, will discuss this interesting topic with Mr. Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. They're both online. Gentlemen, please, I will leave it to you to shed light on the future of ecosystems. Steve, let me thank you for joining CyberPolygon today. We are truly honored to have you as a speaker. Let's move on the first question to open our conversation. You are very among the first to mastermind the idea of creating an ecosystem around a person with various <clears throat> gadgets and units. Apple has been following this strategy ever since, working systematically and growing in a, in the, a tech giant. Did you know from the beginning that the development of an ecosystem model would be best part for Apple. Uh, what were the main obstacles and what drove Apple forward? Has the company journey been like you imagined it to be? When we look back, a lot of people go back certain amounts of time and you could pick different points of time you could call starts of Apple or starts of the ecosystem idea and all that. From the very start, we were small, no, no cell phones, no internet. And, uh, you know, it was just a computer could sit down and do a task. You could program it to do tasks, to solve problems for you. And it didn't think that much of an ecosystem, but there were a bunch of little companies starting up thinking maybe there will be a market for personal computers. It was not apparent yet. Some of them knew the hardware formulas from the past, and some of them could start writing programs. They were programs, but there was rarely a crossover. And we started Apple. I did all the hardware, all the software on you know the Apple II computer, which would be all of our revenues for the first 10 years of Apple. A very, very uh, incredible step. The first time arcade games were colored. Games were important. Um, the first time that um, uh, games were software. You could write a game in one day instead of in a year, and uh, instead of hooking a thousand wires up for a year. So this was a big step, and it was sort of an ecosystem because um, software started coming about. So you not only had a computer, but you had a lot of people offering software on their own, and you got used to certain favorite games or programs for storing your address lists or whatever. Small start towards an ecosystem. Other companies like Microsoft, came up, all they, they just did the hard software and then marketed to a lot of different companies to build hardware. And the experience was never guaranteed and uniform. It was different experience depending upon whose hardware you bought. And, um, and then it came to a point in time though with the Macintosh, see, we were building hardware. And by building hardware, as well as doing the software and the operating systems, we were higher up in terms of volume of sales numbers of dollars. We were higher up on the Fortune 500 list of companies 
And we also um, then wanted to say, why are we superior to Microsoft? Because Microsoft was growing and catching up to us. And it was largely under Steve Jobs. And we said, well, we are doing the hardware and the software on the Macintosh. So we make it work together better. And it's more of a better user interface. We thought of the user. You want to have an experience where things actually work. You have an idea in your head and it's easy to get the right things done. It's intuitive. And, um, you know, with other companies, Microsoft, you have to learn everything and whatever computer you buy may not work the same as the other one. So um, that became very important to us to keep this role of kind of building more of the complete system that was needed. Um, we didn't really have that many obstacles. Yeah, sure. Uh, IBM entered the market, you know, and they had marketing prowess and kind of started taking the hardware market, you know, from us. But we stayed with, with our ecosystem, allowed us to have a high profit margin because the experience was so good. Microsoft, you know, passed us up just selling software and it, they didn't bother us. Those weren't obstacles at all. They were actually just, um, you know, points of recognition of why we were going to do what we believed in and the ecosystem was the heart of it then. Today's ecosystem's, you know, much greater, of course. Uh, it's truly amazing how technological progress changed industries. Uh, in our case, I think that if you look at Sberbank, we are the first bank in the world who start to produce hardware also. And uh, last year we delivered the, of the first hardware products to the market. And uh, for us, it was unusual. And uh, now we, uh, we have a big plan for this year to deliver more products also to our customers within ecosystems. What risks do you think uh, have appeared in the threat landscape both for people and businesses? What has been the experience of Apple? Uh, and what are the most important things that the other ecosystems should think of? Yeah, we form, you know, a large ecosystem, you know, at Apple and other tech companies. Um, to enhance the user experience because everything kind of works together. Today, you've got your computers, you've got your smartphones, you've got your watches, you've got your AirPods, you've got the home pods in the home where you can just walk into a room and start talking to uh, Siri, talking in, you know, human language. Um, and so, you know, and, and the problems that come about are there's sometimes parts of the ecosystem don't work the same way as others. So I'm a user and I get used to doing one thing on the computer and then I move, the iPhone's very different. I move the watch, it's still different yet sometimes. And you, you detect things. You detect things when different parts of the ecosystem, we aren't in control of the third-party apps, for example. And the, and the third-party apps might use very different command structures to back up and redo things and, and how to get things done. Also, there are changes over time. Every time there's a new set of updates to something, even if it's the heart of the company, you know, Google or Apple, the heart of their own, their own applications change. And uh, new people, young people come in and say, this is just how it is. Great. It works. I figured out how it works. Older people say, oh my gosh, why did they move that? Where did it go? I know what I want to do. I know it must be possible. It's hidden now. Um, so you get into a lot of problems with things being redone constantly. I think the companies hire a lot of technical people that know how to develop the new system, a new part, uh, trying to stretch the ecosystem a little further. Today, we want this um, 
this uh, fruit app to work with bananas, <laughs> something that simple. And um, so the change is, is very difficult to deal with sometimes. Apple in particular likes to change very fast and not, and get rid of the old, get rid of the old. And Microsoft always had a reputation for preserving everything old, but that also led to the threat of um, cybersecurity. There were so many holes and cracks and malware in the, in the PC world. So we have better control over it um, because we do all the parts of it, the major parts ourselves at Apple. And, um, it, and it's very pleasant. One of the things is I want to be a human being, you know, in my life. And Apple has taken so many steps that said, I can be a human being. I can maybe speak or handwrite to a, to a tablet. And it understands what my human commands meant what I really want up to a simple level. I can speak to Siri. Siri was not even Apple. It was a third party app for one year before Apple brought Siri in recognizing the importance of it. Now, just like, just like banks, it's important for banking institutions to be aware of the trends that are going on. The trends in technology, the ones that are so important, they're gonna grow. And, um, and those are easy to spot. Nowadays though, one of the obstacles is the little tiny inventor who wants to make a company that's going to become big and have its own name forever, like Apple or IBM, those little guys, um, they don't really have that much of a path. Yes, they can develop, do something really good that enhances, adds to what computing is today, and they can get acquired by the big companies. And that's, that's an exit strategy. It's a way to make money for what they're doing. But they kind of get hidden as themselves being an important part of the the ecostructure, it usually falls under the, the name of the bigger company. We in Russia have a unique situation because uh, we have at the same time uh, all these uh, foreign ecosystems like Google, Apple, etc., etc., Chinese also. And we have also <clears throat> our national ecosystems, uh, Yandex, uh, like Russian Google, Zber, Mail, it's a <clears throat> Russian Facebook, and few of the others. And uh, if you look at our customer base, Sberbank has uh, more than 110 <clears throat> million customers inside the country. Uh, if we look up stores, uh, Apple story. Uh, Apple story is much uh, greater. At the beginning of this year, there were more than one billion active iPhones, not to mention all other Apple products. Apple Music has 72 million uh, subscribers. Apple TV, I think, uh, over 40 million. Uh, so the amount of data stored in the company's IT systems is uh, huge. It seems ecosystems like Apple know more about people, about their families, friends, environment, tastes, etc., than the people know themselves. How these data help improve Apple's customer experience? How should ecosystems um, protect data of their users efficiently? You said that uh, uh, Apple has a unique situation because uh, uh, you produce hard and soft and you control everything. 
but I think uh, we have a different situation in, di in different ecosystems. And um, data protection uh, from year to year is going up as a first problem for uh, the companies, for ecosystems, and uh, for the citizens, for the customers. And uh, I think uh, now uh, I feel this problem like a political problem. And uh, what's, what's your uh, opinion? Uh, a lot of data helps ecosystems to improve the customer experience and to build very efficient customer journey. But at the same time, it must be balanced by data protection. What's the right way? A lot of data can always be helpful. The more information you have, the closer you can get to facts and truth. But when data is handled by people, the people who are making decisions about how that data will be handled, that's where the problems come in, including political um, issues and things like that. It's like, uh, do I want to use it to maximize my benefit as a company, or do I only want to use my control to control that the user experience is good and satisfactory and users are happy? And Apple has chosen that second path very much. They come out constantly and take stands against um, you know, monitoring you down to the individual so you can be advertised to, selling the data to others. Apple has taken a stand very much of protecting your privacy. You pay $2 a month for iCloud and you can post all your pictures and share them, share them in albums and, uh, and discuss the pictures, but you don't, but and it's only $2 a month and it's private. There aren't, it isn't being sold to a lot of advertisers. And I think that's a, a very notable approach. I wish that other ecosystems, you know, partly, largely Facebook, but also Google, I wish they would just say, you can pay a certain price and we will not use any personal data about you, who you are, by your name, by your, your um, government numbers. We won't use any of that information and pass it along to others. We will, um, we'll, we'll give you a good product. Why don't you sell a product? We used to buy things and products are things. We'll sell you a good product for a certain price. And they never do that. They never come around and say, yeah, we'll charge so much a month and you'll be protected for privacy. Um, that's, we did not expect that when we started this industry, we didn't expect it would go in that form. We expected it was gonna be good products are worth money. And that's how you make your profit. When Facebook started, you had all these great ideas. You can communicate with all your friends and share data and have groups of friends and, and talk about things among yourself. They didn't start Facebook in a dorm saying, oh, we're going to monopolize on the, uh, the capital by uh, um, selling people's interests, you know, knowing something about a person, selling it to others so they can be more directly approached. Now, there are some good aspects. Look inside of Apple with all the data we collect that you mentioned. And we know a little bit more about, well, which maybe which um, products are having problems or where is a trend, where, what sort of thing do our users want more of and address that. 
uh, but we don't, you know, um, you know, get it down to notifying individuals. We just look at, you know, how many people are using a certain app? Is it growing? Maybe we should, um, uh, you know, tighten the belt or some app usage is, is going down. People are buying more of the home pods, you know, we can address those and kind of satisfy the market in more of a general sense. I'm a creative person and I'm a, I'm just a person in the world, but creative people don't want you, a big company, to here's what you're going to say next. Here's what you're going to open your mouth and here's the words that are going to come out. Here's who you are. You know, it's almost like who you are is the memories of your life. That's more who you are as a person than anything else. Wait a minute. We're storing all our memories, you know, in places like Facebook. All our memories are out there in the cloud and shared. And that's why the cloud does know more about a person than the person knows about themselves. It's all, it's all out there permanent. You can't even remember as many things as, as uh, the cloud does. And, and so that's one of those, um, you know, just warning signs, but there are choices. The people who run these big um, ecosystems can make choices, you know, and say, think if it were me and I were a person, what would I want? What do all the users really want? And then what do I need to do to make a profit and have a better balance? But it seems to go, almost always in our capitalist world, almost always towards whatever will maximize profit. Um, and there's differences between companies. So um, I'm just glad to be a part of Apple. And Apple shows itself as, you know, even supporting um, uh, diversity. I mean, we were the first Silicon Valley company to have equal pay for equal work by gender, you know? And that's, these, these are kind of like good things, but we treat our customers the same as we treat our employees. Um, in that regard. And we don't want to have play favorites. We just want to make good products and sell them. Thank you very much, uh, Steve, for a very interesting answer. Uh, and what, what I think in this case, you are a um, technological fan. Uh, you are a fan of technologies. I'm also, frankly speaking, I'm strongly believe that technology can bring us a lot of values and uh, make our life much more uh, efficient and more, much more interesting. Uh, but if you look at the future, we, we could say that uh, one of the technologies which we have now, I mean AI, uh, has a completely different uh, influence than um, many of uh, technology uh, technologies in the uh, in our history, because it's only one technology which have ability to hack the people, and uh, we lose privacy. We can't uh, have a private life in our in, in the cities, uh, and uh, it's a big player. Also, uh, if, if you speak about the uh, uh, a lot of data, I think that the states have also a lot of data, and uh, uh, in this case, many people worried that. AI uh, will change completely our lifestyle, our habits. And uh, 
maybe we are not prepared for that, to change in such a short period of time all our habits. What do you think about it? What do you think about AI technology? One of the reasons that I like to follow technology, new gadgets, new companies doing different things are that they change the way we live our lives. And you look at something like, um, like Uber, you know, that didn't exist. And uh, look at just taking your phone and making a reservation, ordering some food, telling a restaurant you'll be there, you know, setting up a time. All these things we really couldn't do in the past. So technology allowed that to happen. AI is very difficult to describe because uh, people interpret it as artificial intelligence, but it is not intelligence at all. It is not like a human brain at all. Um, you study psychology and you'll find out we don't know anything about how the brain is really wired. And um, AI is just the state of the art of computer technology. For example, if you play a game, if a computer sits down and plays a game one billion times looking for what works and what doesn't, they will get better than a human at that game. No human could play a game a billion times and remember all the results. So it's just that technology is always faster and makes us more capable than we were. Um, the wheel did that. The wagon did that for human beings. The hammer made us able to do things that we couldn't do without it. So it's only the highest state of the art of computer technology. And I don't even like the word AI. Now, AI usually breaks down to two things. One, I just pointed out. Computers can just try every, everything possible, you know, billions of times because they're so fast. Or B, neural networks can, can more efficiently make um, sense out of patterns of data. A lot of data is coming in like to our eyes. How do you know your eye picks, that's a box and that's, that's a, uh, an air conditioner and that's a pole. How does your eye, your brain do that? That's, um, that's a cognition step and that's another side of AI and it can figure things out. You can show Google 80,000 pictures of dogs and Google can now recognize a dog faster than any human. Is that intelligence? No, a one year old infant, you can say that's a dog and they know that the dog has these limbs that are kind of hard and kind of soft and they rotate and they, they know that the dog has eyes and a brain and sees where it wants to go. So the infant knows what a dog is. Google only knows how to recognize pixels and say that must be a dog and doesn't know what the real dog is. So we fool ourselves a lot about uh, AI being truly smart. Now you can't have ethics and values and protect people that should be protected with AI unless it is smart. You know, sometimes you have to lead a human life. I've been driving a car that, you know, uh, espouses, you know, self-driving and all this type of stuff. And all I found was that what they call AI in that car is just totally insufficient totally dangerous. The dumbest driver in the world wouldn't make mistakes that it makes constantly. And you don't really know these things unless you drive a lot. But my wife and I drive a lot. You know, we just finished a 3000 mile road trip. And we've done that so many times. Um, and you learn a lot of things that everything comes up a little different. Uh, the car can't handle it. You know, it's great when it sees what it knows, it can handle it. Um, AI can only be trained for certain things. And this is, you know, a problem is we shouldn't start pushing technology into areas of kind of thinking for us, especially thinking for itself. Um, AI, you know, state of computer technology, you, you did briefly mention um, cybersecurity, I think, and, you know, hackers, the word hackers. 
people can get it. I mean, hackers can mean somebody who just works and works day and night to make a program perfect. But hackers also, you know, that try to penetrate systems and um, look at the ransomware attacks we've had recently. They're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And thefts of data from big companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, this is a huge concern. And, you know, trying to fight it, um, I don't know. I hope what we call AI, super security te technology, can look over things. Um, I know there's one company, there's a, a CoinHeco in Singapore, and they actually take all the secure data that's important of your cyber holdings, your bank account, but they put it in a very cold storage area. Only small amounts of it are even out there accessible on the internet. You know, you need this kind of thinking and these approaches. We don't have a machine that sits down and says, what could I do to improve the world? No. We kind of tell it, follow these patterns and you'll learn a certain task that helps improve the world. So machines thinking for themselves is a very bad concept. They run on algorithms. I like to call AI algorithmic idiocy. <laughs> uh, Steve, thanks a lot for uh, your answer. Uh, let us turn to the topic of technologies. Uh, they really are the future. Let's take an example of digital ID and the biometrics that are also widely used in ecosystems. Uh, we, we use them extensively in, at Sber, and uh, Apple is at the forefront of all these innovations. Uh, sometimes ago, Touch ID became a real breakthrough in authentication. Now Face ID allows us to unlock a device, unlock the device with uh, just one glance. Could you even imagine such progress 45 years ago when you created Apple? And what's next? Do you think there is a limit for, to the potential of technologies that uh, can be applied to the devices uh, which we use daily. Sure. 45 years ago, the amount of memory that would hold a song cost close to a million dollars. Did we ever imagine having lots of music available to you? Well, Moore's Law is an exponential growth in technology, and it would predict such a thing in 45 years, but you never know, is Moore's Law going to last five more years and die? die out. So you never, you never really can predict that far ahead. There's no way to capitalize on it anyway. Now we have, um, the, you know, you think about, oh, looking at your face, the amount of memory that would hold a picture, you know, of a face would even hold one picture was unaffordable in early days. So of course we didn't foresee this future, but we kept taking steps towards it. Steps towards doing more and more and more with the processing and having more and more memory available and graphics and photographs and movies and all that. So we're here now. Now I'm very proud of Apple because we got tired after a while. There were so many things out there wanting your password, not only for every app you ran, but for every service that you had online with the internet here. And uh, Apple came about and came up with Touch ID. It looks at your fingerprint, but not like a picture. It looks at the three-dimensional grooves in your finger, and it was a reliable one. And you say, oh my gosh, every other smartphone company followed and did the same thing after Apple. Look for the leaders in this. And what did it lead to? Payment systems. The easiest payment system in the world in my life is Apple Pay. And app with Apple Pay, 
Um, Google phones had, by the way, they had a way to tap your phone to pay for things a couple of years before Apple did. But I bought it. I bought the one Google phone that would do this. It had to have a certain chip in it. And I wanted to experiment because I like to experiment with new technologies. And I found out that I had to unlock the phone, type in the passcode to unlock it. Then I had to find the app, a certain app. And then I had to run, choose a credit card and type in the pin number of the credit card. And then I could tap and pay. Come on, a credit card is so much easier. But then Apple, what Apple did was you held out your phone. You didn't even turn it on. Hold it out to the reader. A picture of a credit card pops up and show your fingerprint. Beep, and it pays. So easy. Now it's even easier on the watch, which knows you that you're wearing that watch. You can double click and tap and pay. These payment systems. Well, after Apple did that, easy to use, tap to pay. Sure, Google and Android and all the others, they came on board and did the same thing. You know, so it's, you know, you have to think, what are real human problems? What are real things that humans do a lot? And your company should be saying, let's go solve it now, solve those things now. And, um, and, and there's, a, there's a very big difference in, in how far companies go. Um, now there's a, there are issues in the world though, like facial recognition has really come to be in early days, it was very crude and almost unusable. And now it's actually much better, but it's being used almost everywhere. I mean, a camera in your car is doing facial recognition for good reasons, you know, see where your eyes are looking. But everywhere you go, you're walking by cameras in some places um, and, uh, you know, and being watched. And I know China has a huge reputation for that, especially around uh, the centers of Beijing. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I do know one thing. How do you stop it? You can't stop it. We've lost our privacy, you know, so long ago in so many ways and kind of have to live with it. Maybe government regulation saying it can only be used in good, appropriate ways will happen. In, in our country, the United States, I don't think we're ever going to uh, limit it to only being used in good ways, just because almost always our system is based around favoring the producers over the consumers. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much. And, uh... As a matter of uh, interest, Steve, how did you first start inventing? Was it a good education that helped your love of technology uh, grow? Or was it something else? Maybe it was a part of your DNA. What do you think? There are times that you feel after, after the fact that it's part of your DNA, whatever you become. I think it was just the books that I read, the TV shows I liked, talking with certain friends of mine, and we knew electronics, and we shared electronic stories and build little inventions. I was tops in math and science in my schools. So that's a good start because I had skills to actually build things, buy some parts, hook wires onto them, solder them together, and make devices that I built a transmitter and a receiver and had a ham radio license at 10 years old. So I had an early start. What you discover that you're good at is what you value. That's what you say, this is good and important in life. And I was good at electronics and I stumbled into digital when it did not exist. No classes in any school, no books, no books in the bookstore, no magazines about digital and computers and what was inside of them. It was just a word like rocket science, but I stumbled onto accidental discoveries, findings, and a company that let me have a manual once. And I discovered what was inside of them. And I just started teaching myself how to build them. Never thought I'd have a job doing it. I knew I'd be an engineer, electrical engineer, but engineers built the old analog things, televisions, radios. 
They didn't build computers. Computers were done by, in weird places called research or computers were done in the military. And I wouldn't, I didn't think I'd do it, but I taught myself how to design computers so well over and over and over, weekend after weekend after weekend. Why? It was in my heart. It was a passion. And putting the time in and the hours into that direction um, gave me skills, skills that were needed. Now to be the inventor type, an engineer can be very good at designing things and finishing projects, but an inventor has an idea. Hey, wouldn't it be neat to do this or build this device? An idea pops in the head. I can make a carburetor on an airplane work better, you know, and then goes into a laboratory and starts hooking a few things together to try to prove the concept and get up to some kind of, you know, demonstration, some kind of um, um, model project. And I was that kind of person. Everywhere I went, I just wanted to build little things for fun to show off to my friends, you know, whether they made lights flash. I eventually built a pong game and then I designed um, a breakout for Atari. And these were fun projects, built a little terminal. I heard about the ARPANET, which was six computers. Now we have billions of computers on the internet. The ARPANET started with six computers and I could type to them and reach them. And the only way I could do it was because I owned a television set and I knew enough about analog television technology and digital to create the signals to put balls and paddles on that TV. And I don't know, it was just, I was, I think it was the development of my skills piece by piece by piece and a 10 year period where magic could flow out of my head for ideas that I could actually create, you know? And uh, I love being an inventor and other inventors that I speak to in the inventors hall of fame, for example, exactly the same. They come about from the exact same perspective. They're not just a good engineer in a company and get assigned a project. Thanks, Steve. And um, uh, let me put the last question. What did you do for the education of your children uh, to prepare them for the new technological world? Uh, could you please share with us because uh, we are all parents, and uh, I know that you invest a lot of your energy in your children. Uh, you have three children, right? Yes, I have three children. I um, didn't ever want to look at myself. I had values that were very strong in me that I kept my whole life. I didn't want to force myself above others and force others to do things my way. I didn't want to be... I did not want to pass um, my values, give them to the children and say, this is how you should be. Here's how you should think. Here are the courses you should take. Here are the schools you should go to. I did not want to do that because my parents were very open and free with me. And I got my talents from the freedom of being able to associate with friends and others and talk about things and get ideas and ask questions and, and get answers to questions, but never forced. My father was an engineer, but I'm the only one of three of us who turned out to be an engineer. And so I wouldn't do that to my kids. Now, one of my kids is really a brilliant, um, brilliant programmer, and he just amazes me. If I have questions about technology, I have to ask him. And a couple of others are, you know, one is a little bit uh, technical, one is non-technical at all. Um, and you know what? The thing is, life is about happiness. Finding what you like doing is the important thing. And you should be able to find it on your own and not necessarily be directed to it. You know, I don't like uh, authoritarianism as a parent. So uh, that's how I was. And, you know, boy, I'll tell you, one of my kids, though, I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to actually talk about the world being so open, amazing things happening, and read books that way with an expressive voice, because it, it gives them motivation. I want to be a part of the world and, you know, want to learn about new things and inventing. <clears throat>
uh, and technology. And if technology comes along, oh my gosh, I could give a lot of guidance. Here's how you can do this. Here's this. Try this. Here's an, here's a project you might take on. Um, I would do that like a school teacher, even though it wasn't in school. And that really led to me teaching um, 10 to 13 year olds for eight years of my life. And um, some, some of the years were very extreme, you know, like teaching. I mean, this was full time, non, nonstop. So, and it was important to me uh, to help, help people develop their minds, but you got to do it with fun. I wouldn't teach it like here is a course, you know, answer these questions, this and that. We're using a book. I wouldn't even use a book. I'd write my own lessons and I'd teach them in a very interesting way and include a lot of fun. Include a lot of fun, make the experience fun to learn. Because, and some of those kids, you know, turned out to be very interested in computer technology in later life, but that was not my push. And I didn't want to make them into computer geeks. Just how to use it and enjoy it. And fun was a big element. How do you build that into education? It costs extra money. Thanks. Thank you so much, Steve, for the most interesting remarks and the very insightful dialogue. It was a great pleasure to talk with you on this cyber polygon platform. And uh, I would like to wish you good luck and uh, all the best. And I hope that next our visit to Silicon Valley on your, or your visit to Moscow, we can spend more time to discuss of all these very interesting questions. Thank you very much for your participation. Um, thank you very much. Good luck to you. And if you ever read my book, I Was, you'll see that I had huge relationships with um, the Soviet Union and then during Cold War and then with Russia. So it's very, very deep to my heart to be able to speak to crowds there. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, thanks. I would like to wish good luck to all of our speakers and to all of our participants. You all doing a great job. Back to you, Alexander, thank you. Mr. Greff, Mr. Wozniak, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to remind you that in addition to this live stream, there is a technical training session that is happening right now. The participants, the defending teams, are trying to stop the attacks launched by the red team. Now, this red team is comprised of BI Zone cybersecurity experts and is actually located here. So why don't we take a moment to find out how the training is going? My colleague Inakenti is a member of the red team and he's ready to share his perspective. Inakenti, how is everything going so far? Thank you, Alexander. So. It's been the first hour of the training. For now, the uh, defenders had only had the time to look at their own infrastructure and the attack has just started. Uh, as you've already said, this year we're doing two scenarios, uh, defense and response. Both are centered around the a single theme, supply chain attacks. Uh, as you know that uh, in uh, the last few years, supply chain attacks came to prominence. Uh, this is due to a very simple thing. Uh, more and more organizations are getting more and more aware of uh, how much cybersecurity can affect their operations and their profits. Uh, so more and more of them are hardening their infrastructure. So the attackers are now looking for other ways in. And uh, unfortunately, 
uh, these days to stay profitable you have to use lots of software you have to develop uh, lots uh, and lots in your infrastructure and you have to uh, invest in uh, various tools and utilities throughout your network this means that your infrastructure is no longer just your infrastructure your perimeter is as wide as the perimeter of your infrastructure plus uh, the perimeters of all the software developers whose software you are actually using so we try to reflect that in both scenarios. Right now we're in uh, at the start of the attack of the first scenario, defense. During this scenario, the uh, blue teams have to uh, investigate uh, what the adversaries are doing. They have to deflect an active attack on their infrastructure. Uh, but it's not just uh, an old-fashioned website. Uh, here we've introduced a whole pipeline that uh, pulls the code from uh, the GitLab that uh, creates a container for the web application that pushes it uh, to container storage and then publishes it. And only then the attack is, is actually attacking the application. The problem for the defenders is that they have to defend each part of this pipeline because each part can be misconfigured. There can be old-fashioned bugs in the web application itself, but the attackers can also introduce their own bugs during, uh, for example, if they gain access to the source code or, uh, for example, they can uh, find uh, or if uh, they can enter storage, for example, then they can obviously leak some secrets. So the blue teams really have their work cut out for them. They have to uh, they have to analyze all of this scope. At the same time, uh, during this first hour, they only had the chance to set up their monitoring and defensive software. So right now, they're probably analyzing what's going on in their networks. And uh, I hope that in a few hours, we'll see the results of uh, this analysis and that they will be able to defend against this attack. Back to you, Alexander. Thank you, Nakinti. Good luck with the training. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm told that we are now ready for our next discussion digital state of tomorrow, what will it be? What challenges may the digitalization of government structures pose? I'm delighted to introduce the moderator of this session, Mr. Ryan Chilcote, independent global affairs and economics broadcaster, Bloomberg TV and CNN alumnus. Ryan, thank you very much for joining. I will let you introduce the speakers and take it from there. Good luck with the discussion. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, good luck to the teams competing uh, in that uh, very interesting competition. Look forward to checking in with them later, uh, and uh, we look forward to having as fun of a conversation as we just heard. Uh, obviously, you heard the topic there. It's the digital state of tomorrow. Roger, Eager, uh, you know, for much of our audience, you don't need any introduction, uh, but I will say, Igor, you head up security at Ross Telecom. Roger, chief security advisor. Uh, at Microsoft, uh, you know, one of the things that we heard in the uh, panel discussions before us and those speeches was that to a large extent, the digital state of tomorrow is already with us, uh, thanks in large part to the pandemic. And along with that technological advancement, a lot of problems associated with cybersecurity. Uh, Roger, I want to ask you, uh, you're sitting in Europe, you're out there talking to European companies. Take us inside the room. What are their concerns right now when it comes to cybersecurity? What are you talking about when you close the door? 
it's kind of an interesting, it was an interesting journey over the last one and a half years, you know. Initially, in the first few weeks, it was all about keeping the lights on. So if you look at confidentiality, integrity, and availability, it was all about availability. And this pretty much changed then. So today, discussions are going down the road. How can we actually build a new and modern architecture going forward based on what we learned with the pandemics and home office? So having architectures like Zero Trust really simplifying your network, but uh, going down a notion where you don't trust anything and, and anybody anymore unless explicitly verified is something we are looking into with a lot of customers at the moment. So it really changes the setup and, and it's a huge, even a disruptive change for a lot of organizations at the moment. Igor, what kinds of threats keep you up uh, most at night right now? Yeah, when, when, when we talk about uh, our uh, information security, you, you know, COVID is a very difficult question. We do not uh, already have uh, enough net network perimeter. We do not have enough control under uh, our employees. And this is a key, key problem, key problem uh, in today's period. And of course, the uh, discussion, uh, today's discussion is about uh, state services. State services uh, is uh, rising, developing very fast now because we do not have uh, offices. We would like to have services at our home. And of course, uh, cybersecurity, information security is a, a key question today. Yeah, and what's the, uh, that's, a, that's a good point you, you raised there because Rose Telecom is obviously working perhaps the main driver for the Russian government in, in advancing the whole digitalization program. The biggest concern I think there is al always uh, people's personal data. So what's your latest thinking about how to protect that data? Uh, yeah, uh, th this is an um, interesting question, but um, you know, uh, of course, uh, we have a serious uh, challenge to protect uh, person, personal data. Uh, but when we talk about these uh, leakages, uh, when we talk about uh, leakages of uh, personal databases, this is uh, not uh, leakages from federal databases, you know, uh, because uh, federal databases are, um, uh, I, I think that uh, protected more uh, powerful than uh, regional databases or commercial databases. And uh, the most uh, of data leakages are not come from federal. This is uh, comes from e-commerce and uh, even um, the big federal leakages are just a compilation of private databases plus a negative campaign in public. And the emphasis in security should be different. Federal bases uh, are now mostly protected. The focus uh, on this protection are maybe two or three years. So um, uh, we, we have budget and resources uh, for this protection. Uh, but in private business, in small business and regions, uh, we do not have enough protection. And the main goal now for our state is to reduce amount of critical personal data in these places. Uh, just today, uh, we discussed with Ministry of Digital Development uh, issues of creating digital tr trust platform. 
to minimize the amount of personal data on the, on the ground. Uh, some types of tokenizations, use of, of digital uh, identifiers, uh, data anonymization, and this uh, key to protect uh, personal data of, of citizens, of Russian citizens. Because we do not need to leave our personal data, for example, uh, in any e-commerce, in any, I do not know, co-hotels, etc. Tokenization and um, the data anonymization can be key to protection of personal data. Thank you very much, uh, Igor. Uh, Roger, you heard that there. Uh, basically, Igor arguing that the, the issue isn't so much with, with government infrastructure as it is with regional uh, infrastructure and business infrastructure. I want to go back to you know, national uh, government infrastructures. Uh, a little bit later, but since we got on to businesses, it, it, just real quickly before we return to the issue of, of government and their role in all of this, when you talk to businesses, you know, over the last year, how has the conversation uh, changed in terms of their concern about cybersecurity? It used to be that it was really something that never got discussed very much outside of the IT department. Well, there are two sides to that, and and you know, one is it reached the business the business level as well. So it's it's a CEO topic, it's a business risk topic. Uh, in addition to what Igor just said, I I often feel we shouldn't underestimate the importance of identities in this in this space because ninety percent of I don't know something like eighty five to ninety percent of the incidents we are involved somewhere involved credential theft. So protecting the you can't protect the data if you don't protect the identities because if I'm you I get access to your data, uh, and when it comes then to to the privacy aspect I feel there are interesting developments around decentralized identities where you really keep your private data with you and just decide which data you're going to release. So there are different aspects to that. Uh, what changed though with home office I feel a lot of phishing attacks got more successful because the social control is missing. In the past, when you were in the office and you got a spooky email, you could ask your colleague to come over and look at it. This part kind of disappears because we are sitting at home and we are alone. So you'd rather probably tempted to click on a link you wouldn't have clicked on in, in your office uh, back there. But then again, the phishing email is the first step, which is again, a, a, typically a credential compromise going forward. Yeah, interesting. Um, and in terms of, uh, we just actually, I should remind everyone in the audience that uh, they're able to uh, uh, send their questions in. And we just actually got one of those questions on this topic uh, to do with verification because it came up and, and verifying online. So uh, Evgeny has asked, well, um, you know, one of the things you haven't talked about so far uh, is deep fakes. I want to ask you, Igor, how big of a concern is deep fakes and, and uh, the ability of people to fool verification or th authentication systems? And, and how concerned are you about how deep fakes could develop from the level they're at now? Uh, interesting question. Uh, <laughs> really, I, I do not see uh, any interest to deep fakes now in, in official. Uh, of course, the deepfakes uh, discussing in uh, expert communities how to uh, verify, how to determine what is deepfake. And now for, for us, for uh, citizens, uh, deepfakes are maybe something like entertainment. 
I, I, I saw my uh, own deep fake uh, video when I uh, tell, tell something to the audience. It, it for me, it was uh, very funny at uh, that time. But of course, I'm sure that uh, two, two, three years, uh, this problem will be uh, very important for us. Yeah, uh, enough of a problem that people could actually, for example, sneak into, fake their way into someone's bank account? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, we, we have a biometrics platform uh, in Russia, and yeah. we have a lot of uh, liveness checks there. But um, I do not want to tell that this is not popular, but the most uh, population are uh, using their own password, login, and no biometrics. Because uh, we, when we talk about security of biometrics, we, 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 we talk about that we, we can have a lot of passwords, million passwords, but we have only uh, 10 fingers and two eyes and uh, co compromisation on, of these uh, identificators are, could be a real problem for us. Well, I guess you could like wear a mask or cut out the, uh, cut out the eyes on a picture and you know, put those eyes over your own. Uh, quick question, the second half of that for you, Roger, from Yevgeny, he says, do governments need to regulate deep fakes to prevent them from becoming big enough of a problem and how do businesses deal with it? Just real quickly, because I want to jump back to the, the governmental aspect of, of this conversation. Well, I'm not sure whether regulation is, is, is really helpful here because typically it takes, you know, for me, regulation is a reflection of, of social norms we started to develop. And, and this just takes time. Yeah. I'm, personally, I'm, maybe I'm naive there, but I'm not too concerned about, you know, abusing deepfakes for biometric logon. I'm convinced that biometric logon is the future because passwords aren't. But you know, social engineering and all that stuff, that's really scary when it comes to deep fakes. And, and even though what we see, even what you see today, uh, how powerful these platforms are already just for fun, it's really scary what they can put into your mouth if, if, if they want to. And then it comes into social engineering. And I, I guess we see, we will see attacks, which we've never seen before in, in a new way, leveraging deep fakes. Bad guys are extremely creative in these ways. Yeah, Igor, let's go back to uh, your work with the government and the whole governmental space. So Rose Telecom doesn't just uh, help the government uh, in terms of its digitalization drive. It also helps protect the digital infrastructure and the public inf infrastructure uh, involved, you know, that, that there is uh, in Russia. And I understand you're working on an early warning system of sorts for cyber threats. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, I would like to uh, tell you a few, few words. Yeah, um, protecting of, of uh, state infrastructure from cyber attacks is a most dif uh, difficult question. Uh, a month ago, uh, our national CERT, together with us, published the result of uh, our serious work to, uh, to identify a series of attacks on government systems. Uh, the, uh, these were the most complex and extremely sophisticated uh, attacks. Their goal, their goal uh, were gaining control on the IT systems of um, uh, few government organizations. And these attacks, uh, these types of attacks um, 
are not detected by uh, any uh, information security systems or technology. And we have uh, estimated the cost of uh, uh, one such attack and uh, it exceeds one and a half million dollars. This is very difficult to determine uh, attacks. And uh, in general, if we talk about the landscape of attacks uh, on our government uh, systems, I give you um, only one figure. Uh, in five days after the appearance of new resource in the domain uh, gov.ru, a targeted attack begins on it. In five days, we already uh, see attack on new government resource. It, 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 is, it is very difficult and uh, this is not tomorrow problem. This is uh, today, today for us. Roger, Microsoft uh, works with governments in terms of cyber defense. How concerned are you about government cyber defenses? How big of a problem is it? Well, it it is obviously a problem across the board. I mean, it's it's hard, as Igor just pointed out, it's hard to protect, especially against targeted attacks and sophisticated attacks we see across the board. And I extremely welcome that. I, I sometimes feel that the bad guys are really good in sharing information. You know, they have their underground markets and and they share information and all these different groups uh, playing there. They they try to exchange at least part of the information. Uh, we on the on the not so not dark side on the on the bright side of life if you want uh, are not so good talking about these incidents and one of the ways to actually destroy the business case of the of the attackers is sharing these tactics sharing uh, sharing uh, indicators of compromise sharing threat intelligence so that we can learn from each other and sometimes i feel we are not too good doing that because by definition cyber attacks are not happening you know you don't want them to be the press you don't want to talk about it and that's one of the areas where we definitely need to improve because otherwise i mean we can destroy the return on investment by making the attacks destroying the attacks making the attack public and i think that's one of the way we have to go well, Roger, since we've gotten into this subject so deeply already, I mean, obviously, sometimes governments aren't just involved in defending themselves from attacks, but sometimes they're involved in, in being the perpetrators of attacks. And we've seen this interesting trend at Microsoft, who, as I was mentioning earlier, works with governments, including the U.S. government, where it has started to name names on occasion, did that with Solar Winds, pointed the finger very publicly at, at Russia. Why are, have you guys changed tact when it comes to uh, identifying countries that you believe are the source of attacks? Well, we are pointing out the groups which are standing behind the attack. So we pointed to Nobelium, we pointed to Hafnium, uh, two groups which we knew that they are uh, active in the underground. And I mean, at the end of the day, we feel that it's important that we make these things public and it's that we talk about the perpetrators behind it. So pointing out Hafnium, pointing out Nobelium, uh, or however you call them in your threat intelligence environment, including the tactic, tactics they apply is extremely important to us. On the other hand, we need to be, we need to build a trusted environment in, in, uh, on the internet because we all wanna grow. We all wanna, at the end of the day, the businesses need to grow, whether they are in Russia or in Europe or in, in, wherever, it doesn't really matter. So having a set of rules how 
on the one hand side companies behave and on the other hand side governance governments behave is extremely important and that's one of the reasons i think it's about three years ago where we launched a digital Gen uh, geneva convention where we feel that it's important that these kind of rules get internationally established and agreed agreed digital G geneva convention eh yeah that's Very interesting. Igor, let me ask you about that because, uh, you know, this is one of the biggest points of contention between Russia and the United States, as you know, uh, was one of the biggest points of contention uh, when uh, President Biden met President Putin. And as we speak, I believe, or at least any time now, U.S. and Russian cyber uh, security officials are going to meet. Do you think that they can sort out these kinds of problems? Um, I, I think that uh, this question is uh, difficult than uh, just uh, forbidden of any uh, attacks from Russia to America or from America to, to, to the Russian resources, because uh, uh, cybercrime cyber do not have nationality, and we can't uh, involve them to, 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 resolving, to resolving this uh, problem. Uh, but the most uh, part that um, Ro Roger told that information uh, should um, should be opened, information about any vulnerability types of attacks, their strategies or, or their taxes should be shared be between countries, between government or between uh, expert um, community. This is a key to resolving uh, this problem because uh, when uh, I told about uh, attacks to govern to government resources to, the, to to our state, we catch this attack uh, because we saw signs of si such attacks in another part uh, of our country on another on another in infrastructures. And information exchange is uh, extremely important. And a second part is. Um, discussion and information exchange about uh, uh, cybercrime uh, groups because uh, you, you know colonial pipeline attack was uh, th this is not a state um, group this is a crime and uh, of course information about such crimes group uh, should be should be open be between countries very interesting point the colonial pipeline there because it raises two issues right away first off ransomware which we seem to see, have seen or uh, an explosion of uh demanding ransoms uh from from companies but also uh a, an attack you could very easily argue on uh, critical infrastructure which we didn't see very much of in the past either uh, roger how what's going on and how concerned are you about this well, ransomware is a big issue, and and uh, really attacks on critical infrastructure are, well, are a huge challenge across the board. And you know, we have seen it was kind of interesting if you if we look at our intelligence at the beginning of the pandemic, it seems that certain underground groups agreed upon not attacking uh, the healthcare sector with ransomware. I think this agreement lasted about two or three weeks because it's just too tempting to attack them because you can make money. And, you know, if we look at, I, I talked about disrupting the ROI, so destroying the tools they have by publishing them. On the other hand, part of the price they pay is if they get caught and convicted. And 
that's one of the areas where we need to improve. And I feel that this is a collaboration between private and public sector, which needs to get better, that we get after the bad guys and make sure that they are convicted, because that's part of the risk you're taking. And as long as you can hide behind uh, cryptocurrencies and as long as you're pretty safe that you are not being caught, the price of running such attacks are pretty low. And, and that's one of the things, one of the dynamics which we need to change together with governments, I guess. Eva, very interesting, uh, the, the reference there to cryptocurrency. We actually have immediately following this a discussion about digital currencies, cryptocurrencies. I wonder, do you think that, or do either of you think that the cryptocurrency, for example, because you mentioned the Colonial Pipeline incident, is it like an enabling factor now that you've got Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these ways to, to move money around, perhaps perhaps more or less transparently than, than you used to? Is that is that a problem? I know they're going to get into real depth, so we can just very briefly uh, – discuss this, but what, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, the follow the money part of an investigation is definitely harder with Bitcoin yeah, uh, or, or any cryptocurrency these days. Uh, is it the source of the problem? I don't think so, but it's definitely one of the channels they love to leverage. Igor? Yeah, the same. Uh, an, an, uh, anonymization is uh, uh, the, the most the most problem uh, issue in, in these uh, investigations we do not uh, we can't uh, mostly find uh, root cause uh, and key person in uh, in any of these uh, cybercrime groups because we do not have uh, any instruments of de-anonymization in digital currencies yeah, I should point out that a lot of the money in that particular attack was recovered, even though it was cryptocurrency. So it just may be that sometimes it, it, it's not quite as uh, opaque as, as people think. Look, we focused on a lot of the problems uh, that all this technological innovation and the advance of uh, sort of in, uh, the advance of of technology in our homes has created i want to ask you very briefly where you see the opportunity right uh and it's a blue sky question but roger let me start with you you know 20 years from now what is the world going to look like technologically speaking and will all these cybersecurity problems maybe i'll start with you igor because you're you're on my screen right now uh, where, will all of these cybersecurity issues have been worked out or will i still have to kind of panic every time i get on my laptop Uh, for, for me, this is a very difficult question. <laughs> what happened in 20, in 20 years? Um, my, my, my own opinion uh, that um, we uh, will talk um, about uh, artificial, artificial intelligence, protection of uh, artificial intelligence, and most important, protection from uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, do, do, uh, do, do you remember uh, the movie Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger? How and, can I forget? Uh, uh, Skynet system. I am sure that this is uh, not far from... Uh, this, this, this is not a very fantastic movie anymore. <laughs> Roger? Well, you know, the 20 years question, when I was CISO, my CFO asked me to give a three years plan and I looked at him and said, you're kidding me if I'm happy if I know how my next six months look like. Yeah. And, and think back, I mean, the iPhone was released, I think, 2007, so 14 years ago, and think about how our world's changed in the last 14 years. Uh, to me, 
I, I feel that we have huge potential with technologies which are coming now, with the platforms which we are seeing, like decentralized identities and so on, to drive new business models and interesting business models, new ways of collaboration. And I hope that we don't need another pandemic to actually accelerate certain of these de developments. I, I feel if we do our job right, it's not all about the downsides and the criminals. It's actually more about how we can drive new business models, new collaboration models, new ways of getting together uh, in a secure and safe way. Maybe we are not seeing each other on a flat screen then, but sitting like holograms around the table and feeling like we are seeing each other. Stuff like that will definitely come over time. And, and really driving that and enabling that in a secure and safe way, I think it's the best mission we can have. Fantastic. And I should point out, Roger, that uh, Microsoft will be talking about zero trust. Um, there's a speech on the platform that people can watch where you kind of go into detail of, uh, about your solution. IBM is going to be talking about the cloud. Uh, you can catch that speech there as well. And we're going to have conversations later uh, it, as part of the discussion today for this conference about uh, the supply chain risk that we touched on ever so briefly. So a lot of the stuff that we got into, Igor, Roger, uh, we're going to be uh, going into more depth uh, throughout the day. Thank you both for for uh, for doing this. It was very short. We just scratched the surface, particularly with that geopolitical stuff. But I'm very grateful to the both of you. And with that, I'm going to pass back to Alexander. Yeah. Right, Ryan. Thank, thank you very much. It was a great discussion. Thank you, Ryan. Dear speakers, what a fantastic discussion. Let me, uh, let me remind you that this is a live stream from Sberbank Security Operations Center, which today also serves as the headquarters for the training exercise. One of the participants is actually Sberbank cybersecurity team. And I'm now joined by Vasily, who is leading this team and is ready to share his perspective. Vasily, could you please tell us what exactly are you working on right now? Hello, Alexander. I'll be speaking in Russian. Just about half an hour ago, we finished this first step where the team were able to familiarize themselves with the infrastructure, study the infrastructure and identify the vulnerability. And now we are moving on to an active phase where we try to detect the flags, we study the traffic, we try to identify things that we overlooked, that we missed in the passive phase, and we are keeping track on the SLA. Yes, the tasks are really difficult, and the main difficulty is not is to make sure the system does not collapse when we close our problems, when we close our gaps, because when it's a, a real case, a real attack, there is a possibility to allow the, the service to actually collapse while you are trying to resolve the problem. Or the threat is that our flags can be stolen. In Cyber Polygon, if you compare this year's training to the last year's training, what's the difference? What do you think? Yes, we did participate in the uh, Cyber Polygon last year, and I can see very clearly how this is uh, developing and gaining momentum. I can say that uh, 
the infrastructure is more sophisticated, is more complex and interesting, and I think we are better prepared. I think overall the training has become more challenging. Ladies and gentlemen, I was just told that about 15 minutes ago, our training itself was the target of a attack, a DDoS attack, as powerful as three gigabytes per second. The lesson is you always need to be ready, even more so during the training. Needless to say, the attack was stopped and deflected. I'm told that we're now ready for an, our next session. New world, new currency. Will the financial system be resilient as digital currencies proliferate? I'm excited to introduce the moderator of this discussion, Mr. Matthew Blake, Head of Financial and Monetary System Initiatives, World Economic Forum. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us today. I will let you introduce the speakers and navigate the discussion. Fantastic. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, as you said, my name is Matthew Blake. I run the Financial and Monetary System Platform at the World Economic Forum. Uh, it's great to be part of Cyber Polygon uh, and also to moderate what I hope to be an excellent 30-minute session with all of you today. The session title is New World, New Currency, How to Make the Financial System Resilient as Digital Currencies Proliferate. Maybe just some opening uh, views here. Digital currencies are becoming a pervasive force across the global economy, revolutionizing everything from cross-border payments to interbank transfers. The rapid adoption and decentralized nature of digital currencies pose unique and unprecedented challenges for financial authorities, tax authorities, capital market regulators, and the business community as they navigate a very uh, influx space. Here to help us make sense of all of that, we are uh, delighted to have three um, terrific speakers. First, uh, Alexei Zabotkin, who's the Deputy Governor of the Bank of Russia. Mark Barnett, President, Europe for MasterCard and Matthew Dill, Senior Vice President, Global Head of Strategic Partnerships and Ventures uh, at Visa. Uh, warm welcome to you gentlemen, and thank you so much for taking the time for being with us. I wanna start uh, first with a, uh, a more of a contextual question here and get your reflections on the evolution of digital payments. Um, you know, we've gone through a very challenging uh, 16, 17 months here. Many would argue we're not out of the woods yet as it relates to COVID-19. Health concerns, uh, lockdowns, other considerations have pushed consumers further away from cash. Um, digital transaction volumes are on the rise. And I'd love to understand, um, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes on this topic because it's a bit of a seismic shift for everyone here. Matthew, maybe I start um, with you. Nice to have you uh, on, on with us. Yeah, pleasure. Has the pandemic fundamentally altered consumer behavior vis-a-vis -vis payments, in your opinion? Uh, um, Matthew, thanks for having me. Um, pleasure to be on the panel. Uh, you know, I, I think from Visa's perspective, absolutely. Um, you know, when we, uh, I think if you sort of look back at the history of digital payments or digital currency, in some respects, money was digitized before people were. You know, if you look at the, you know, international financial systems, banks, you know, ledgers, uh, really how numeric values have been used in computer systems. This has been going on for, uh, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, depending on, you know, which, where, where you look at the starting point. Um, 
what what I think is um, has really sort of begun to transform things is that the consumer uh, over the last twenty or thirty years has become the digitized uh, entity. You know, people have electronic devices; they have you know computer access, mobile devices, uh, and and other things. And you know, the the pandemic over the last you know eighteen months has really accelerated a shift that you know we think will will put in place new behaviors which are here to stay. Um, you know, if you just look at, at uh, you know, Visa's business, we work on a global basis as a, as a payments network, you know, we saw face-to-face -face interactions drop back to what we would call sort of 2017 or 2018 levels in terms of, uh, you know, people having face-to-face -face interactions. And we saw the digital interactions, those that were remote or, you know, on delivery or e-commerce oriented, jump forward to numbers we didn't expect to see until 2023. And I think if any of us look at sort of our own lives, we can see that, you know, things like interacting with uh, physical retail merchants using uh, contactless technology, or interacting uh, online, ordering ahead and picking things up, mean that you know real digital experiences have just become embedded in our everyday behavior. So um, you know we think that that's going to continue, and we think that the technologies, the digital currencies that feed or support that, are going to become a really important part of the uh, you know the next uh, the decades ahead. Thank you, Matthew. Mark, I want to have uh, your perspective here too um, from Mastercard some of the forces, you know, just digi broader digitalization across the global economy, more people participating in that. Um, what are some of the forces that you're seeing from MasterCard and, and how do you see these forces shifting and uh, evolving the payment system in the future? Well, very similar to what Matthew just said, um, what, what we've seen is a huge acceleration in digitization or electronic payments. Uh, uh, but not just electronic payments, in, in digital lives or digital first lives that we all lead, you know, the adoption of mobile banking apps, the uh, rapid increase in e-com, retail e-com has gone through the roof. Obviously, they've got to take the travel sector out of that. Um, and also, you know, things like contactless, uh, we now have 85% of all in-person transactions are contactless in Europe. And that then means that you can start paying using one of these. Russia actually leads the world in its adoption of, um, of uh, tokenized-based uh, payments. And, you know, we're modernizing the existing card payment system all the time. You know, we started off with, I'm old enough to remember, zip-zap machines. And then we put a, a mag stripe on a card and then it went to chip and pin and contactless. And now it's all turning into tokens not just on the issuing side, but also on the card on file, the, the, the merchant token vaults. So all the time we're evolving electronic payments and consumers have voted with their cards or their phones or, 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 or their buttons uh, because we have seen a, a, a very rapid deceleration of cash usage. You know, at MasterCard, we've got nothing against cash and I think cash will be around for a long time, but um, if, if we can provide electronic solutions that uh, people find safe, simple, secure, um, then they're going to adopt them, and that's what we've seen uh, that we've we've seen happening um, over the past five, ten years. But the acceleration, I think, I read somewhere that uh, you know we've had five years worth of acceleration in the first five months of the pandemic, and I think that's that's very true. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, we've absolutely heard about this step function in, 
in acceleration, as you've said, um, of digital adoption. Um, Alexei, you know, you're, with a lot of pride, uh, Russia is uh, at the vanguard of many of these trends. From the, the perch of a central banker, how do you see the, the, the role of your institution as a facilitator, and in some instances, perhaps a catalyst of this transformation? What are some of the opportunities and risks that you're focused on um, building on Mark and Matthew's initial comments here? Yeah, uh, uh, thank you very much. This uh, my, my comments will be very brief. I think that uh, indeed uh, the central banks uh, have, uh, as the stewards of the um, uh, reliable uh, monetary system, um, uh, shall be at the center of the of the changes uh, which are happening to the uh, payment uh, landscape and the evolving and broadening uh, functionality of money uh, in the increasingly digitized economy. As uh, Matthew said, that kind of money were digitized earlier than people. So now we ought to make sure that uh, the money don't fall behind the digitization of the people and businesses. Um, and um, uh, as we know, the central banks are uh, quite active in um, uh, devising new payment solutions, uh, the fast payment systems to facilitate um, indeed uh, more seamless and uh, uh, cheaper uh, payments options. Uh, the uh, uh, very vanguard of the uh, of the technological change to the uh, monetary systems is the whole discussion about the uh, central bank's uh, digital currencies, something which we we'll probably touch upon at a greater length later. And of course, uh, the uh, central bank. Uh, have to actually play an appropriate regulatory role in this current, uh, in the fast-changing environment uh, to make sure that the monetary system remains uh, robust and financial stability is preserved, notwithstanding all the innovations in the uh, monetary landscape. Absolutely. I'm balancing that uh, tension between innovation and financial stability is always one of the most interesting facets of, of your job. There's no doubt about it. Um, I want to make a bridge now to uh, digital currencies as a piece of a broader puzzle. All right. Uh, MasterCard, very interesting uh, study um, not that long ago that looked at digital adoption, uh, specifically in jurisdictions uh, like Kenya, where I believe the statistic was a whopping 77% of respondents saying that they've had experimented online with various forms of online payments. There was also a significant proliferation in the growth of digital wallets. And another piece that came through, which is something that uh, we'd like to grapple with a bit here, but a willingness to transact in uh, cryptocurrencies um, as being part of this uh, part of this overall evolution. So Mark, maybe I can start with you. Like when you think about digital money broadly defined, right? Um, broadly defined. How do you see it playing a optimizing role in for the global financial system? Okay. Uh, I think, first of all, we've got to start with a bit of a definition here, because, uh, you know, account-based money, the money that sits in my bank account is digital money too, but I don't think we're talking about that. I think we're talking about digital currencies. And so let's break those two words down. Um, you know, a currency needs to be three things. It needs to be a unit of account, a store of value, and a means of exchange. And we see the digital currency horizon, uh, again, in three parts. There are central bank digital currencies. There are private stable coins, the most famous of it being DM or formerly Libra. And then there's free floating cryptocurrencies, again, the most famous being Bitcoin. 
Um, the first of those two, the first two of those pass my currency test to greater or lesser degrees. The third one doesn't pass the currency test because of a store of value, it's extremely um, volatile. So um, the, it's not a case with CBDCs and stablecoin. I, I don't think it's a case of if, it's a case of when. Uh, and then the question becomes how? And that's where I think, as Alexei said, uh, you know, central banks have a very, very strong role to play, both in regulating the private stablecoin, but also in setting up the appropriate uh, kind of CBDCs, which are going to enable the commercial banking sector to flourish in the way it does and perform in the way it does, i.e. a two-tier, uh, a two-layer system of CBDCs. We can get into that a bit later, but um, often people talk about, um, uh, you know, digital currencies as uh, a solution looking for a problem. I don't agree. I think eventually we will evolve to a two-tier world of account-based money and token money, if you like, uh, one being digital currency and the other being the, the, the account-based money that we all have in our current accounts today. Um, I do think there's probably a big role in financial inclusion as well. Yeah, I appreciate you ending on, uh, on that last note there. Um, given the fact that, as you had said, oftentimes digital currencies are in, in search of a, of a problem to solve. I think one of the pieces that we consistently hear are the potential benefits of digital currencies and helping bring people that are not in the formal financial sector online. Those are the unbanked and underbanked. You know, uh, Matthew, Visa and MasterCard have been, um, I think it's, it's not an exaggeration, um, absolute proponents of financial inclusion, fighting for that around the world for a number of years here. How do you see digital currencies playing into that driving force? Getting those uh, 1.5 billion, 1.7 billion, whatever the magic number is there, of folks that are not included into the fold um, of the financial sector. Yeah, um, great question. I, I agree with you. I think um, you know both both networks um, have been. Uh, proponents of really trying to expand the footprint of people that can interact, uh, you know, electronically with money, and that's uh, that's that's been a theme of, of for for both companies. Um, you know, what I, I really liked, uh, you know, sort of Mark's breakdown. I think it's it's really important to look at those three categories. You know, cryptocurrency sort of as an asset, uh, stable coins as really an emerging um, uh, sort of um, platform for uh, for commerce. And then, uh, you know, the the early stages of central bank digital currency, what central banks are working on. Um, one of the things that I think is is, you know, probably worth noting is that, you know, while cryptocurrency is not a a good um, platform for commerce, you know, because of the volatility, it is drawing a lot of developers and a lot of interest into digital currency as a concept. And so a lot of innovation is happening around cryptocurrency. And that's you know, being reflected, I think, in a lot of the wallets around the world that are you know, enabling people to buy, sell, or store uh, cryptocurrency. And I think that's interesting and we should take note of it because you know, while it doesn't necessarily pave the way for cryptocurrency, becoming a foundation uh, uh, for digital inclusion, it does mean technological innovation is happening uh, and, and developers and others are, are learning how to do things. 
probably more interesting for uh, you know expanding expanding access is what's beginning to happen with stable coins. Um, you know, we we work with about 160 different wallets around the world from sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, and then those that you know, like uh, you know companies like Apple or uh, or PayPal, uh, you know that that are sort of Western-based uh, models. Um, and one of the things that we see in um, in these uh, these wallets is that they are serving underserved communities regularly. Uh, they're making it easier for people to pay bills. They're making it easier for P2P transactions to happen. But one of the challenges with them often is that they are, uh, they're not interoperable. They are, you know, a brand starts the wallet and then the brand works on creating a ledger system that is proprietary to that brand, you know, whether that be a mobile operator or uh, let's say a, you know, marketplace platform. Um, and so if you, if you imagine, uh, I think, stable coins, uh, you know, beginning to move up into that environment, you can see a standard emerging where these platforms could become interoperable. And I think that it paves the way for central bank digital currency at some point to come in and begin to set fiat-backed government, you know, issued, you know, legal tender and that to be very rapidly adopted in some of these markets. And so I think all of these things, while they're very different, are playing a role in sort of opening up access. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why, why at Visa, we've really focused on making sure that we're working with all of these in sort of a tangible sense along the way. Our view is that over time, you know, when, when central bank digital currencies come into play, when they're more widespread, there's going to be an infrastructure in place, there's going to be standards, and, and you know, a lot of this will be able to work more easily. Um, and then the, the, the only thing I'll just say in, in closing is that, um, you know, we have to be cognizant that, you know, a digital currency can't be uh, a solution for someone who doesn't have digital access. So, you know, while we still have an, an imbalance, we probably have greater digital penetration than we have financial service penetration in many markets. Um, it's not a uh, it's not a silver bullet for that. And so, you still need to have cash. You still need to have alternate methods in every economy for supporting these populations. Yeah, excellent broader point there. Um, I want to make a, a bridge now to CBDC. It's come up in a few contexts. Alexia, I'm coming to you on this. A lot of fanfare, uh, anticipated rollout, planning by central banks around the world on uh, central bank digital currency issuance. F for the Bank of Russia, what are your plans for digital ruble? What considerations are you weighing as you venture and study this space? Take us into, um, into your boardroom, if I may and help us understand some of those factors that you're contending with. Thank you. Of course, the uh, process of thinking uh, was much longer than 30 minutes we have for this session, so I will do my best to sum it up. Um, and the Bank of Russia published the consultation paper on the digital ruble last October, and the uh, digital ruble concept document was released in early April this year. Uh, uh, the digital ruble as any central bank digital currency uh, is considered to be the liability of the central bank. Uh, this makes it uh, very similar to cash in circulation from economic standpoint, but uh, the digital ruble shall be more convenient than cash uh, is um, in its uh, use. 
it will provide ability to consumers and businesses to execute payments 24 by 7 and uh, do it remotely. Uh, this is what makes it similar to existing electronic uh, payment solutions. Um, an additional feature of the digital ruble, uh, which sets it separate from either cash as we know it, or electronic-based uh, bank money, will be its tokenized form, something which uh, Mark and Matthew already alluded to. Um, uh, the digital ruble will exist in the form of uniquely identifiable units. Uh, you can think about them as sort of electronic banknotes. Uh, this will permit better traceability of payments and money flow, and also explore the possibility of setting conditions on uh, uh, permitted terms of use of a given um, a unit of currency. And uh, that will, um, yeah, just imagine that you are able to give your kids some pocket money in digital rubles and then restrict their use uh, for purchase of uh, junk food, for example, right? That could be a useful uh, functionality for, uh, for a customer. And of course, you can come up with hundreds of um, other uh, similar uh, um, use cases. Um, now we see the digital ruble implementation as a two-tier system. Uh, the Bank of Russia will maintain the centralized ledger on the Bank of Russia's uh, technological platform, and all transactions will be recorded on this uh, ledger. Uh, but customer relationship and that is very important the last mile access will remain in the hands of the commercial banks plus uh, possibly other authorized and properly supervised uh, payment service providers um, they will integrate access to digital ruble wallets into their apps uh, will handle kyc and onboarding of new users and will uh, very much count on it will devise new products and services uh, which exploit innovative um, uh, functionalities of the digital ruble which i just mentioned and uh, to conclude um, let's recall that at the heart of it money is a technology which purpose is to lower transaction costs in the economy uh, currently in russia even with very high speed of digitalization of uh, payments, the costs of payments remain quite high. Uh, they take the form of bank fees and acquiring fees. Not all of them are even visible or fully recognized um, uh, by the consumer. Uh, the digital ruble, in our view, will provide people and business with a very basic but uniformly and cheaply accessible alternative to electronic bank money. It will be up to the users uh, to choose between the use of the electronic bank money or the digital ruble, as today they choose between the electronic bank money and cash. But it shall increase competition and will create a more level playing field in the payments industry, and the result shall be a lower cost and hence a more efficient money technology for economic uh, agents. Yeah, ex excellent. Uh, thank you so much for that. So many considerations, uh, really great opportunity there. I, I wanna go across the globe here uh, very quickly to uh, Central America, a, a small country, 6.5 million in population. Um, I'm referring to El Salvador. They made a seminal decision to make Bitcoin legal tender for the nation. Um, this has gotten a, a lot of praise from certain circles and a, a fair amount of skepticism from others. I'd love to get take the temperature here. Um, I, get, I have a general sense of where things may shake out, but let's see. Uh, this is a good idea, a bad idea, something in between. Uh, Mark, maybe I start with you. You know, both MasterCard and Visa have operations on the ground. What does it mean for you guys in terms of uh, doing business in El Salvador? Um, help us understand what your thoughts are. 
Okay. Um, so look, just to be clear, we already have uh, crypto card products, but when we're, we're not transacting in crypto, you know, I, I have a wallet. I'm able to in real time transfer my Bitcoin into a fiat currency and then all the transaction happens in the regulated KYC AML world that is electronic payments. Um, uh, and people often confuse that with actually transacting using um, a cryptocurrency. It's not the same thing. So we're looking, you know, El Salvador should do what El Salvador wants to do. That's not for must God to comment on. We'll be looking at it very closely. As far as it affects our operations, it doesn't really because there is card acceptance in uh in the country this card usage in the country and, and and that will continue um so uh you know our, our focus is on is on, we we think the first out of the gate will be stable coin private stable coin i i think they they're just a little bit ahead of central bank digital currencies um uh, we, we you know we're working with a lot of central banks around the world we've got the mastercard cbdc testing platform a sort of sandbox for central banks to come in and uh, uh, and play in but our, our focus is on uh, stablecoin because of their close alignment with our principles of consumer protection regulatory compliance price stability so you know that's what's important to us. I think that's what's important to everybody here. And uh, uh, what, what Alexi was just saying about CBDCs, I couldn't agree more. I think um, increases competition in the market, creates a very important role or continues a very important role for the central bank in not just issuance of currency, but regulation of it. And the two-tier system, the final mile, is where MasterCard and, and Visa have always operated anyway. And again, people can uh, can choose to pay with a token that's uh, a card-based, account-based money, or it, it can be central bank money. And that's going to be a, a choice for, for consumers, and it, it, it increases competition and choice. Thank you. I, I want to come, and, and uh, Matthew, I'm coming to you here, but I, I know there's been uh, recent developments between Visa and uh, USD coin. I want to come to that in a second. Uh, you can sort of um, help us understand uh, the perspective there. But again, back to El Salvador, uh, similar views as held by Mark, like do you, do you differ in uh, the perspective shared there? Um, similar views. Uh, I think, you know, if, if, if you look at, let's say the countries of the world on a spectrum, you know, what, what El Salvador do has done is probably on one side, that's taking a, a cryptocurrency and using it as sort of a, an, an acceptable currency in the country. On the other end, you, you might have you know, a place like uh, China that is really moving rapidly in a CBDC model and really pushing to tamp down uh, cryptocurrency altogether. And most countries, I think, fall somewhere in the middle of that, which is that they are tolerant of cryptocurrencies but don't view them as equivalent to fiat currency, and they are focused on developing stablecoin or uh, CBDC models and, and our intent on sort of driving those. So I think that's the that's the spectrum around the world. Excellent. Just mindful of time. We've got about uh, four and a half minutes left here. Um, Alexi, anything further to add from from the perspective of a central banker as it relates to El Salvador's decision? I will probably be more categoric than uh, our, uh, uh, our other speakers. Uh, uh, as Mark said, crypto doesn't pass currency test, and from economic standpoint, 
for the center from the central bank's perspective they are not money uh, can be regarded as a form of digital uh, monetary surrogates the monetary surrogates create significant very significant financial stability risks and inevitably undermine the efficiency of the national monetary policy for that reason the russian russian legislation directly prohibits issuance of monetary surrogates uh, and um, posits that the only legal tender in the russian federation is the russian ruble of course uh, el salvador's uh, uh, sovereign choice in 2001 was to abandon its national currency in favor of the u.s dollar now it's they made the sovereign choice to introduce Bitcoin as a legal tender, but I seriously doubt that any large economy is willing to follow that route as it carries significant risk to financial stability and monetary policy. Very clear. Um, I want to spend just a minute here, uh, Matthew, back to you on a recent decision with Visa to work with uh, USD coin, which is a stable coin. Uh, help us understand how uh, your team got comfortable with um, that decision and how that plays into a broader strategic narrative for Visa. And then I want to finish up with, um, with just a broader question on the future of the financial system and how all of these pieces intersect and your views uh, five years, 10 years down the line. If we could do that in two minutes, it would be amazing, but let's give it a shot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, um, I mean, we, uh, if you look at what we do um, as a payment system, you know, we have about, you know, 3.4 billion users, uh, consumers, uh, about 70 million merchants globally. And, you know, we, we view our job as enabling commerce and allowing people to sort of pay or be paid. Um, when we began to look at uh, what stablecoin and uh, central bank digital currency were going to be able to accomplish, we thought that we could look at them as equivalent to other currencies in our system. So today we have 190 uh, different currencies in the system. We can perform exchange commerce between them. And to some extent, we can add one more or two more when, uh, when you know, USDC or other things are created. And so we went into the core system of Visa. We added the ability to exchange uh, stablecoin or uh, in the future uh, CBDC uh, over our existing network. And we built models so that consumers and card issuers and others could interact on one side of our, our system using existing technology and merchants could choose to be uh, settled with or paid out using those currencies on the other side. So to some extent, we were able to uh, you know, use our, our existing platform, our rules, our brand, our uh, respect for sort of rule of law, AML, KYC, and other things that make us a trust network and incorporate these new technologies into them. And, and when we found that that was possible to do, uh, that's what got us comfortable moving forward from an innovation standpoint. Uh, and uh, those are some of the partnerships you see uh, happening today and, and live transactions that you see around the world today. Very good. I want to come, uh, Mark, to you. Prognostication, we're in 2025, we're in 2030. What does the payment ecosystem look like uh, at those markers? Um, yeah, I mean, we, Alexia, come to you. Okay, we, we, we often talk about a mul our multi-rail strategy. So, you know, th there's cash as, as, a, as a rail, there's uh, the card rail that we've been running for 50 years, there's account-to-account -account rails. They've also been going for about 50 years. We used to call them ACHs or checks even before that. Um, but they became real time a few years ago. Uh, and then there's, there's this new generation of, uh, or, or another rail, it could be blockchain, it could be something else, on which uh, different types of, uh, of, of currency can, can, can run. Uh, our job is 
to, as, as Matthew said, is to help uh, people pay, pay and be paid uh, in any way that they want. And we want to offer as much choice as possible while making sure that we have a level playing field, that we have competition, and that we have an incredibly secure and resilient payment system. So I, I, I don't think it's going to look dramatically different. Um, I just think it's going to be more digital. Very good. Um, Alexi, in the last uh, seconds here, would you concur with Mark's uh, view of the, of the future as it relates to, um, to Russia? Um, I would concur with the uh, overall landscape. I think the uh, general direction is very well established. Maybe I'll permit uh, myself a small, uh, uh, more skeptical comment about the merits of the stable coins. Uh, frankly speaking, as we heard from Steve Wozniak at the start of the uh, of today's event, uh, he reminded us that uh, the business rationale for the ecosystem is to generate additional profits through making customers and providers captive to the ecosystem. So uh, my concern is that uh, the bundling, explicit or implicit, of the mean of payment in the form of the ecosystem stable coins with the goods and services provided within individual ecosystems will sort of further cement this siloing of the uh, electronic wallets, which Matthew already talked about uh, earlier in uh, today's discussion. And I will permit myself to quote from a recent um, BIS working paper by Arner Auer and Frost. It was published in last November. And uh, here I quote, it is not clear that stable coins are necessarily needed to provide some of the benefits that they prepared to serve. CBDCs may offer these benefits without the inherent fluctuation in value of or conflicts of interest entailed by stable coins. And that's the end of the quote. To me, this is a very fair assessment and a good guidance for thinking about this fascinating topic. Thank you very much. Terrific. I want to thank uh, all of you for joining us to our audience as well. We covered a tremendous amount of ground and we anticipate uh, more changes to come in this very vibrant space. Um, thank you again. Back to the host and wishing everyone a terrific rest of uh, this conference. Thank you very much. Mr. Blake, dear speakers, thank you for your contribution to Cyber Polygon. Ladies and gentlemen, our live stream continues and we are now ready for a rather special conversation. One of the key messages of Cyber Polygon is that governments and businesses need to cooperate globally to be successful in the fight against cybercrime. Ironically, people seem to cooperate better in space than they do on Earth. When it comes to getting the job done, we have no choice but to work side by side. This is what it should be like in cybersecurity. In this next session, we have a unique opportunity to get a first-hand account from two Russian cosmonauts about their experience with data safety and their day-to-day -day on the International Space Station. I'd like to introduce Mr. Stanislav Kuznetsov, Deputy Chairman of the Executive Board at Sberbank, who will interview the cosmonauts. Mr. Kuznetsov, please, you have the floor. Thank you so much, Alexander. So, so, dear friends, dear colleagues, today, for the first time on this platform, we are going to have a live transmission from the International Space Station. Oleg Navitsky and Pyotr Dubrov, welcome, very warm welcome to you, dear friends. My first question to you is as follows. This aerospace industry 
probably holds the most promise uh, for, for the entire progress of humanity. It's there in space that we test, that we experiment with different innovative technologies and solutions. There on the board of the International Space Station, you are basically in the epicenter of uh, all of this, and uh, you will probably be the best to judge on the efficiency and effectiveness of all the latest and advanced solutions in technology and innovation. What could you tell us about this? What are the challenges that you're facing today? We're very happy to be talking to all the participants of the Cyber Polygon. It is uh, our privilege to participate in this uh, conference. Our main job right now is to dock this new module that we are expecting at the International Space Station, the long-anticipated module. So everything we're doing now, all our work is related to that docking. We do implement a lot of advanced technology on board of the station. As you can see, we use very state-of-the-art tablets, which help us manage our time daily. We also have very advanced communication channels with the Earth. We have the internet and IP telephonic solutions thanks to our partners. So we do use technologies extensively and these technologies are very helpful in performing our tasks technically, in organizing conferences, they help us communicate with the ground stations and they help us maintain our psychological comfort during our tours. So it would be, it would definitely be much more difficult without the technologies and we would be much less efficient. Thank you so much for that answer. I have a question specifically for Oleg because your very first flight, if I'm not mistaken, it was a long time ago, in October 2012, I think. So, back then, during that flight that lasted 143 days, if I'm not mistaken, you performed a lot of uh, applied tasks and experiments. And now, almost nine years later, you are there on the orbit for the third time. How drastic have been the changes at the International Space Station? What are the new technologies that you're using now? How have uh, your task, how, how has your job changed at the station? And a very straightforward question, do technologies help you in performing your tasks? Or maybe you find some difficulties in it? Good afternoon. It is my pleasure as well to participate in this uh, fascinating discussion. It's true that uh, since my first flight, the International Space Station has changed for the better. The systems have become more uh, sophisticated. Uh, we have been conducting a lot of experiments. As someone who actually does uh, execute the experiments, I wish we had even more of those. But I understand that each experiment has to go a very long way. A lot of stages. You need to design it, prove it, you need to technically ensure uh, that it can be conducted. Of course, all the new technologies that are implemented here at the station, uh, higher speed 
high-speed internet uh, or some such uh, technologies. They are very helpful in our experiments, in our tasks. They help us exchange information faster and in a more secure fashion. So our job is becoming more and more interesting. I also hope that when we dock our multitask laboratory unit, this module that we're expecting, our scope of tasks will become even more interesting. A question for Piotr. Piotr, you are an IT guy. You have a background in information technology. You were a programmer before you turned to space. Uh, you spent a long time developing information technologies. This background in IT, does it help you in any way in space at the station right now? Uh, do you need to write any code in space? Did you have to do it yesterday? Maybe you will be doing it tomorrow? During this first space flight of yours, what do you think is your role as a coder, as a programmer, as an IT guy? That is a very unusual, interesting question. You know, I, I mostly focus right now on uh, experiments, on technical maintenance at the station. So, I only have uh, some leisure time for my own things, things that I'm passionate about, but I don't have that much free time right now. At some point, I uh, tried to apply this uh, expertise that I gained back there on the ground here at the station. And, for example, I am trying to make it more comfortable, make it easier for the crew to work with uh, some of our information tech resources, uh, such as our daily schedules. Uh, I try to make those schedules more visible, more clear more helpful in our work. I cannot really allocate that much time to those activities, but I hope Oleg appreciates what I'm doing and I hope it will be helpful for all of us and maybe for the crews that come after us. It seems like you have a, a great duo. Allow me to ask you another question, a question about cybersecurity, since that's the topic of our forum. Hundreds of terabytes of data processed currently at the space station. All these data are very sensitive, so protecting this data and securing it, exchanging it securely is of critical importance for the entire industry. How do you ensure this secure communication and exchange of data between the station and the ground? How do you secure the data that you send down to Earth? A very interesting, a highly relevant question, truly. We are mostly here to execute the rules that we have for data transmission, data exchange. Of course, we have our closed, secure communication cha uh, channels where we, for example, discuss the health of uh, the crew members. Uh, this is the channel that we use most frequently. A lot of information that is uh, protected at the station at different stages of our work. We use special software for that. 
specialized certified hardware. To transmit data, we use special crypto encryption. So even if this technical information is intercepted, it uh, is highly unlikely that it will be deciphered. So this level of uh, information security at the station and in our communication channels, I think, is very, very high. Thank you so much for that insight. The International Space Station is uh, the result of the labor of many, many countries and stakeholders. This is the representation of the Earth in space. So, ensuring that the station is secure, it uh, should be the result of joint efforts. This is uh, important for all the parties involved, for the cosmonauts and astronauts that are there at the station. Are there any joint projects that you're pursuing with other countries when it comes to information protection? What if something happens? What could be the joint response plans? Of course, such a big, complex project as the International Space Station cannot be built and maintained without very tight cooperation between all parties, all countries. And of course, there are special working groups that uh, monitor everything related to security, information security in particular. They are based in different countries and they regularly communicate, they conduct regular trainings, uh, conferences, webinars, tests, and all the issues that they work on, they are then executed as uh, guidelines, instructions that are then transmitted here on board. And we try to follow all those uh, guidelines, all those recommendations to secure information at the station. And of course, there is uh, uh, a lot of uh, backup and uh, duplication of information to ensure secure processing of data during the, during the flight. Thank you. I am really eager to ask this question to Oleg. Oleg, you are very active online. You are also very active uh, on social media. As far as I know, you even have your own blog. And it's there in your blog that you share your experience in space. You talk about what's happening at the station, you share your observations, uh, you even post some photos. A question that might sound unusual. Have you ever fallen victim to uh, online fraudsters, to online cyber criminals? Maybe someone tried to hack into your systems. How do you repel those attacks? Or can we be sure that cyber criminals will under no circumstances attack cosmonauts? Well, would be great if the hackers listen to you and not attack the astronauts, and actually it would be great if they don't attack anyone. Well, obviously there were some attempts, some telephone calls. I haven't experienced uh, some direct uh, targeted hacks because I don't have uh, any confidential information that would be interested to them. But there were some uh, calls from fake Sberbank employees. 
And that was quite evident, quite obvious that these were criminals. So, yeah, we did not suffer from, from them. Thank you for the question. Thank you very much. That was very exciting to listen to you. We understand that the, your level of cyber literacy is uh, a showcase for everyone, for all Russians. I'd like to ask a question. You know, many films and movies about the space from Hollywood are based on uh, future technologies. You know, we see some uh, driverless uh, shuttles and intergalaxy uh, can. Uh, shuttles. Uh, do you think it is possible to achieve that? How much time do humanity, does humanity need to have, make such a leap forward and will it be secure and safe at the same time? Thank you for the question. That's a very exciting question. I think we can talk for hours answering it. Obviously, in the movies it looks great, looks very exciting, but the ideas that the film directors try to show you are based on the technology technologies that we have now. But sometimes it's hard to predict how the technology will look like some, before people thought that there will be some cannons that would shoot us on the moon. But obviously now the uh, space shuttles do not at all resemble the things that they were in these old movies. When we move to this level of development, when we can uh, travel between galaxies, uh, it will be very much different from what the film directors think. But I'm confident that we will be able to achieve that level sooner or later. But obviously it's hard to tell about the the um, the time the day, the the, uh, the time frame because one technology leap uh, might pave the way for the advanced and accelerated technological development for the next hundred years the uh, research uh, in uh, the nature of gravity are very promising maybe it will help us to travel to the uh, faraway planets because the current technologies uh, of engines that use uh, ion fuel and other technologies has basically uh, depleted its uh, potential. So maybe there will be something new, something cutting edge and maybe our children, our grandchildren will see something new in the space. It is very uh, unusual to see the mic just flying around you. And I know that uh, Roscosmos, the Russian Space Agency, has uh, great plans and projects. And uh, soon, they're discussing that uh, soon it will be possible to send uh, people to other planets. Uh, it is something that has been discussed. And the new tech is basically focused on that. Maybe another question in uh, cybersecurity. The last cybersecurity question. Today at our event at Cyber Polygon, we're talking about the uh, safe and secure development of the state and the businesses. 
What will define the future of the humanity for the next uh, decades? You are looking at our planet from the distance of thousands of kilometers and you see it as a vulnerable and a fragile planet. And you see it better than us being who are here on the planet. What do you think will be the future of the planet? What message would you like to convey to the participants and the viewers of our today's event? It's a very important question. I think that the future of our planet should be secure. Everyone is working on that, all the technical specialists in the state agencies try to make sure that uh, the uh, cutting-edge technologies are not used to harm people and the humanity in general. We do hope for the better, for the better future and uh, for the digital safety and security and just the safety of security of the humanity. This is what we would love to achieve on our planet. I would also like to add that it would be great to be able to negotiate and to agree on uh, the mechanisms uh, to respond to the challenges that humanity faces and that would minimize and mitigate these problems and risks uh, and by working together we'll be able to find the proper solutions to these problems. Thank you very much for discussing the uh, security and cybersecurity issues uh, in space and thank you for your active work in space in the orbit with the implementation of new technologies and cutting-edge solutions that we will be that will always be related to cybersecurity. It is important to make sure that they are secure. We would like to wish all the participants and viewers uh, of Cyber Polygon good luck. First of all, friends, stay healthy, stay safe. Make sure that uh, the international space station is safe and secure and of course guard the space make sure it is safe and secure too good luck thank you very much for that interesting dialogue we will follow your recommendations and our safety and security level will be top yeah. it was great talking to you wish you all the luck all the space level luck so to speak. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Alexander, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Kuznetsov. We are also very grateful to Roscosmos for this unique opportunity to talk to Russian cosmonauts. Ladies and gentlemen, as a matter of fact, we are ready for our next discussion. And the topic is combating ransomware, developing an international response. I will be moderating this discussion and I'm happy to introduce our speakers. Mr. Craig Jones, Cybercrime Director, Interpol, who also participated last year, so thank you for coming again. Michael Daniel, President, CEO and Cyber Threat Alliance. 
and Mrs. Teresa Walsh, Global Head of Intelligence, FSISAC. So, warm welcome to everybody. Threat intelligence, ransomware, quite a sensitive topic, and yet here we are talking, coordinating our efforts. Let's go straight to it. My first question is to all of you. From your point of view, how has the digital threat landscape changed over the last two years, and does ransomware take a special place in it? Could you please share some of the trends that you see today? Craig, could you please go first? Thank you very much, Alexander. And it's really an honor to be back here for my, my third occasion, in fact, uh, on this event. Um, yeah, when we've been looking at the ransomware threats and how it's evolved in the in previous in the last few years, we've also seen other threats around that as well. We've seen the phishing, business email compromise, network intrusion. So we've, we've seen a whole range of threats. I think we're seeing more around ransomware now for, for a number of uh, different reasons. Um, is the landscape, is it actually changing? I, I'm not sure the landscape's actually changing. What we're looking at is the vulnerability side. And we're looking at the vulnerabilities and the cybersecurity aspects. And the criminals are taking advantage of that. As we saw during COVID-19, they used a lot of the same tactics, techniques and procedures, but there were greater opportunities for them at that stage. And ransomware is, is similar now, that's evolving. As criminals are honing their techniques, um, their processes as well, they're looking at different areas which they can then exploit within, within companies, within organizations and within businesses. And we're seeing that the volume increasing as well. One of the challenges we have in law enforcement is actually the recording and the reporting of cybercrime and ransomware is no different within that. So the reporting that comes out to us, either on a national basis or global, we don't always see that reporting. But the criminals certainly are seeing it as a highly enticing and lucrative business model, because effectively, that's what it is now. It's a business for them. Um, and they evolve that business model. So initially, it might be they would just um, encrypt and demand. But now you're seeing the encryption, the demands, but then also another demand that they will leak for data. Um, you then see them combining that with a distributed file of service attack as well. There were some interesting comments earlier around, you know, are hospitals or um, uh, health sector more vulnerable at the moment? And I think that was linked with the reporting. So that was being picked up uh, in the press as well. And looking at how the criminals operate, this is a methodology they have for no borders and near impunity. So how do we address that challenge? I'm spec we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Um, but coming back and just summing up then is we are seeing this hitting the headlines now. And why are we seeing that hitting the headlines? There's the geopolitical aspect to this as well. So the countries are now talking at the governmental levels, and that is coming through very much in the reporting. Plus also the types of attacks having those secondary effects, which are then impacting directly on the communities. So we're seeing in the colonial pipeline, the shutting down of the systems uh, of the, of the organisation then led to the shortages. So it was a secondary consequence, but that's when it starts impacting on communities. And also we've seen that in Ireland as well with the attack in Ireland, where it impacted the Irish healthcare service systems. So they stopped some of those services, closed them down. So the service providers could then not use those systems. The communities were impacted. So again, now we are then seeing, you know, two different types of impact coming through. So that's the sort of threat landscape we're seeing and, and, and what's going on there from our side. And I'll, I'll hand it back now to you and some of the other panelists to have a, uh, an input on this as well. Thank you, Craig. Teresa, what's your take on this? What are the, th the trends that you see? 
Yeah, so from the financial services side, um, we do see a lot of the trends that Craig was talking about. Uh, one of the reasons why I think it seems so prolific now is also um, it's a service, it's a business model, the ransomware as a service where you don't have to be very knowledgeable yourself on how to create ransomware. You can just go into the underground marketplace and purchase a kit, purchase a phishing kit to help you distribute it, and then just reap the benefits of the Bitcoin coming in um, as long as you give a little bit to the side to the operators behind the desk um, and then of course with the double tap as well as we call it you know seeing the embarrassment the reputational risk that comes along with some of these leak sites um, and even if it's not true or not um, your name's out there your company's name's out there um, they're saying that they have hacked you they're saying that you they have your customers data um, so this does have a lot of risks and I think um, what's different from a few years ago is that you have non-technical people talking about ransomware now Whereas maybe a few years ago, they didn't even know what that meant and they didn't know what the side effects were. It's in the news, in the mainstream news. Every single week, you see a new attack of some sort or another. And I think one of the reasons it gets so much headlines is because now it is having a real physical impact. Um, I think we all read the story last year about how somebody in Germany was heading to a hospital that was attacked by ransomware, so they weren't able to see the person and they died. Um, so, you know, it's not just about not having access to services, but there's actually a real physical impact as well. And it's not just about money, even though the money is quite uh, lucrative as well. I mean, they, they have to do so little in order to get so much money. And now you do see that in the headlines, 50 million, 60 million, 70 million that they receive in bitcoins or other types of currency in order to um, commit these attacks. So that's why I think a lot of non-technical people are paying attention. And that includes the chairman of the board and your other board of directors around you as well. So they're asking you questions and that puts a lot more pressure on the security teams as well. Thank you, Teresa. Yeah, financial institutions are definitely on the radar of cyber criminals. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add to the threat landscape? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and speaking to the Cyber Polygon. Um, I would really sort of draw together what both Craig and uh, Teresa were saying and, and highlight sort of four ways that I see the, the threat landscape having evolved. Um, one is that you know, as they were saying, it's it's much more organized now, right? Like if your image of a hacker is someone in a hoodie still living in his mother's basement, that's not how the industry works now. And it is an industry. Um, it is highly organized and it's very differentiated. So um, they've read their, their economics textbooks and they've diversified and they've got specialization. So now the, the whole criminal ecosystem is very organized and specialized. Um, as Craig mentioned, it's much more intense, right? We're seeing a huge volume. And I think that links to what Teresa says about how easy it is to get into the market and how um, lucrative the returns are. Um, it's much more diverse too. Um, the threat landscape, you can now attack not just laptops and phones, but you could attack you know, devices, um, industrial control systems, you know, a whole array of uh, items and then that leads to my fourth point, which is that um, it's much more disruptive. 
Um, we have hooked so much stuff up to the internet now that you can create a much greater degree of disruption than you could say three or four years ago. And so that really means to my mind, um, ransomware has transitioned from being what was essentially an economic nuisance uh, and maybe a couple of cops in Craig's uh, unit, you know, cared about it, you know, six years ago. Now, suddenly it's a national security and a public health and safety threat in addition to being a crime. Thank you, Michael. Very interesting point you mentioned there about how organized cyber criminals are. They're like an enterprise, like an organization. The mastermind being the CEO, and then they got marketing and someone who develops the ransomware. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, my next question is for Teresa specifically. I know that FSISAC pays a lot of attention to the topic of ransomware, and you actually developed a list of recommendations for businesses on how to deal with this threat. Can you tell us what is the situation with ransomware today and maybe share some practical cases of successful cooperation within FSISAC and how your recommendation helped your members to stop the attack? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first and foremost, FSISEC is a community. We're a community of financial institutions. And that does really help us help each other when it comes to these types of situations. Um, and I think um, everybody knows that we're pretty highly regulated, <laughs> depending on what uh, country in the world you're talking about. All financial services are very regulated. So we focus and invest a lot of money into cybersecurity um, because of that regulation and because at the end of the day, we are controlling uh, and managing a lot of, of money and investments and assets for customers all over the world. And we have to protect that. You know, we have to protect our customers at the end of the day. Um, so it's very important for them to understand what's going on in ransomware. I think if you do look at the open source trackers that are available and compare industry by industry, financial services isn't doing that bad, especially if you compare it to something like healthcare. Um, but at the same time, we're not immune to the attacks either. Um, and what we are seeing increasingly um, is our third parties, supply chains, um, providers that we depend on that are getting attacked as well and potentially being used as a, as a vector into our networks as well. So this is something that probably in the past couple of years, especially, we've been paying much more attention to. And I think from our community side of things, um, we, want to, we want to engage in what's called mutually assured defense, basically, uh, where, where we, we are looking after each other. If you take it into the physical realm, and you're looking outside your business window and you happen to see somebody suspicious walking by, maybe they're carrying a weapon, um, you wanna just not tell anyone. Uh, and this is, this is the story you often hear when people talk about cooperation. You would tell someone, you would tell the office next to you, you would call the police, you would call you know, the security guard that um, is, is helping your industrial park or wherever you might be. And this is the same way in cyber. If you're experiencing some sort of event, some suspicious activity, you can share that information. And hopefully the other person can say, yes, we sold it too. And you can start to build a picture of what is happening, who's trying to attack you, uh, what type of tools they're using to attack you. Can somebody else see the same thing you're seeing? And slowly you start to build that type of picture up. Um, we've talked in the past um, publicly for FSISEC about how our community has uh, banded together 
to compare notes about different types of cyber events. Uh, for instance, uh, last year we had a very large campaign. It was a DDoS campaign that was attacking a lot of um, our, uh, our members, but also other companies as well. And it was, um, it was preceded with a, an extortion demand, an email usually that said, if you don't pay us this much money, we're going to attack you. And they would do an attack just to kind of show off that they could do it. Um, and what happened is very early on, we started sharing that information to each other and saying, raising your hand and saying, I've seen this. Has anyone else seen this? And then slowly starting to see everybody else raising their hand and comparing the notes. And that's what we do as the community is, is we try to learn from each other. And if you see something happening to a peer, a, a company just like yours, you can try to see if it's happening to your company as well. And I think anytime a big incident happens, even if it's not within the financial sector, if it's like the colonial pipeline attack or something else, you want to know what's happening because you want to see, can the same thing happen to me? If I was attacked in the same method, would my company be able to withstand it? And it's through that type of learning and cooperation um, that, that we end up being more resilient. So I think uh, for us, we're, we're all in favor of cooperation. I know Interpol and others do quite a bit of that um, in their own industries as well. So I think um, just learning from each other, crowdsourcing the information, if you will, um, does have an impact. And on ransomware, I think you do see that quite a bit now where you have no more, there are no more ransom initiative that the Dutch police and Europol started, where has um, a lot of decryptors that companies have contributed to. Um, so if you do have an attack, you can look to see if they have a list of decryptors that can help you. Um, but you also have not just us, but a lot of other organizations, national cybersecurity agencies, police agencies that are sharing information for your small and medium-sized um, enterprises, the ones that don't have 60 million to spend on their cybersecurity organization, but need to understand what can they do themselves to protect against ransomware and other threats, but then also what can you do to talk to your partners about the same thing and ask them, are they protecting themselves and how you can learn from each other as well. And that's all about the community. Thank you, Teresa. I hope there will be more communities like FSISAC and other industries. My next question is for Michael. Private sector is the primary target for cyber criminals using ransomware as it has the money. I have some numbers here. A research by Chainalysis shows that in 2020, the total amount paid by ransomware victims increased by 311%, reaching nearly 350 million worth of cryptocurrency. What can the private sector do to effectively respond to ransomware attacks? Maybe you can also share some best practices and interesting cases. Sure, so I think that when you look across the board um, at what you can do, about ransomware. It's actually the same practices that we've been talking about for good cybersecurity, whether we are talking about, you know, business email compromise or other kinds of cyber criminal activity. From the private sector point of view, um, you know, we, uh, I recently worked on the ransomware task force here in the United States. Um, and we really talked about a set of four activities of deter, disrupt, prepare, and respond. And deterrence in, uh, is largely in the realm of, of governments, but in those other three, the private sector has a lot of activities that they can do. 
um, including contributing and working with governments uh, to help them with the, understanding the threat environment, understanding the actors, working with organizations like Interpol and national police agencies to actually disrupt uh, what the cyber criminals are doing. But it's particularly in those last two areas of prepare and respond, of really focusing on investing in the cybersecurity basics. Um, cyber criminals are in this for the money. Um, and so they are not going to spend um, an infinite amount of time trying all sorts of different ways to get into just your organization. So if you are investing in your cybersecurity, if you're following good cybersecurity practices like using multi-factor authentication on your accounts and segmenting your network and uh, using virtual private networks and things like that, following those known best practices, um, you can really uh, reduce the risk of being uh, hit by uh, ransomware. And then the other thing that I would say is being, being prepared to respond, knowing that having a ransomware attack is a, certainly a possibility and planning out and thinking ahead of time about what you will do. Um, and not just from a technical standpoint. Um, as Craig has pointed out, as Teresa has pointed out, a lot of these attacks now involve the criminals stealing information and threatening to release it. Um, so this means that you need to have already planned out uh, ahead of time. How am I going to talk to my workforce? What are we going to say to our customers? How are we going to operate? So it's not just about the technical, it's about the legal, it's about the communications, it's about the whole aspect of responding to the ransomware incident uh, that you need to have planned out ahead of time. And you need to know who you're going to call in your local government, uh, in your national government. Um, know that ahead of time and have a relationship with them. Uh, as I always say, you do not want to be trading business cards in the middle of a crisis. Um, you want to have those relationships built, uh, built ahead of time. And then the last point I'll make uh, before turning it back over to you is it's that collaboration point. The private sector has to be working uh, together uh, with itself um, with across industry verticals, with the cybersecurity industry, with platform providers. But we also have to be working very much hand-in-hand uh, -hand with governments uh, around the world, responsible governments that um, take this issue seriously and are working to actually disrupt what the cyber criminals are doing. Thank you, Michael. Craig, Interpol is one of the most powerful international platforms that unites countries and law enforcement agencies. What are your recommendations? Do you have any best practices to share? Yeah, thank you. I think just building out on the last two answers, there's, there's a national aspect to this. So policing is, is constructed in, in a national way. It deals with laws, legislation and polices um, within the country jurisdictions and boundaries. Um, so that's one of the first challenges that we have. Have we moved quickly enough to do the international cooperation and collaboration? No, not at the moment. And that's an honest answer. We look at some really good regional models that we have, such as uh, Europol, EC3 and those sort of models. Um, but again, that's just in a region. And again, that works well because you have countries have legislation, they have good funding. So that works well in that model. But on the international side of that, that's where we need to do more. And effectively, with the private partners that we work with, the private partners now are, are that first responder. So the 999 call goes out to private partners when there's a cyber incident. It doesn't come into the police. 
So we miss that early part of that investigation quite often. So what we don't do is pick up the um, evidence that we need to at that time. So when the private partners come out and support anybody that's uh, been a victim, effectively they are there to help that business or organization get back up and running. So the evidence gathering goes on, but actually that may be watered down, tampered with, in, in, you know, not by intentionally, because the objective there is to get them back up and running effectively. So law enforcement come in after the curve on that. So that's where the private partnership, first of all, certainly on the international level, is working very well now. So working with the World Economic Forum and a partnership against cybercrime, we've done a huge amount of work uh, in the last 18 months. We're specifically looking at um, how we manage our, our infrastructure, how we look at the threats, and then how we share those data. Now at Interpol, we have our gateway partnership where we are now able to bring data in from private partners. And again, that brings in another layer of complexity about the sharing of data and the rules that you have to have in place for that, about privacy, uh, DPA, all that sort of thing. So that brings in extra challenges. So that's now coming together. And we've seen operational examples of that. We've worked with private partners. We've identified uh, threat actors in Nigeria, um, in Morocco recently. And just uh, in the last week or so, we've uh, undertaken an operation in Ukraine with the US, uh, with Korea as well, against the ransomware group. Now, that's an ongoing operation, but that's taken nearly two years' worth of work to come to that stage. And there's still a lot more to do in that space. So that's bringing the law enforcement together then to do those, those operations effectively together. And also having law enforcement work in other countries as well. So, you know, having people on the ground, that's really important. So Interpol's role within all of that is to coordinate and facilitate. And we've got a number of platforms now available. Um, we've got our collaborative platform for operations where we can bring them onto secure Interpol platforms. And as everybody knows, Interpol, um, it, it works around data and information. And we have to have that trust element in that as well. So that's the final piece I'll say in this is, is the trust. So what's that trust model like? We talk about in the, in the virtual world, the zero trust model. We have to have that trust model in what we do to combat the cyber criminals because guess what they trust each other they work together and when it doesn't work they move on and work with someone else so again that trust element for us and to build that out going forward is is really vital well craig i think that if you keep participating in cyber polygon eventually we'll get to the proper level of international cooperation so thank you um my next question is to all the speakers let's talk about international regulations i think you'll agree that Today, international regulations are not sufficient for the level of cybercrime and specifically ransomware threats that we face today. What new policies can be developed to help fight ransomware within each individual country and at the international level? Michael, could you please go first? Sure. So I think there's a number of different um, aspects to what you just raised. I think particularly when you talk about the cryptocurrencies and um, that those new types of financial instruments, um, they are clearly part of the fuel that is enabling the ransomware boom. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, ransomware having reached the scale that it has reached uh, without cryptocurrencies. Now, that does not mean that cryptocurrencies are the reason that we have um, ransomware. Right, ransomware was going on with gift cards and other uh, types of financial instruments before there was cryptocurrency. But given that cryptocurrency now plays such a central role um, in ransomware, 
bringing those exchanges into compliance with the way that we deal with other parts of our financial system, know your customer regulations, any money laundering um, regulations, counterterrorism uh, regulations. We really need to be looking at bringing the cryptocurrency realm into that greater finance, the international financial structure. Um, and then the other part that I would say is that we really need to increase the level of international cooperation among countries. And we really need to reduce the number of safe havens, places where criminals are allowed or even encouraged um, to operate, um, where law enforcement cannot reach them. Um, that, is, uh, that is unfortunately part of the criminal landscape as well. And that is something that we need to need to reduce. But I think if we actually start really building those international connections, like what Craig was talking about, um, then I really think we could have an impact on the ransomware ecosystem. Thank you, Michael. Teresa, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, really for us, uh, when you talk about regulations, we automatically think of financial regulations, what's coming from our regulators and supervisors uh, around the world. And I think one of the things I, I do see in the past few years is that more of them are getting interested in cybersecurity, information security. Um, you have, you know, Singapore's um, technical risk management guidelines. You have the new DORA coming out in the EU. Uh, and a lot of them are talking about resilience against against these types of attacks, against these types of threats. Uh, what I would probably like to see more of is more of that discussion amongst them about what we usually call regulatory harmony. You know, the harmony between uh, what they're doing, what they're saying, it can be even as some, something as simple as definitions. I mean, in the law enforcement side, you have conventions that talk about what is crime, what is cybercrime, things like that. Um, depending on what country or even what sector within that country you're talking about, they could have completely different definitions of what is a data breach, you know, what is a, a mandatory a, a incident that you have to report, um, things like that. And so, uh, even though there is a, a multi-layered effect when you're talking about international cooperation between law enforcement, um, government security agencies, and private sector, you know, you need to make sure you're talking the same language in terms of what does it all mean? What is a cybercrime? What is a data breach? You know, what is ransomware even? Uh, because not all ransomware is created the same. And you need to be able to understand how that all um, how that's all interpreted in a single country, and then how you can start cooperating on that on the international level. And and probably the only thing I'll say to that too is that it's not just about cybersecurity anymore. Cybersecurity is part of your daily life, as Michael was saying earlier. Um, and you need to put that into business operations. Uh, your your ability to conduct your business functions, you know, it, it's, it's not just about a nice little cybersecurity policy anymore. It's about everything. Thank you, Teresa. You mentioned Harmony. Craig, I think Inter Interpol is a perfect example of an organization which runs harmoniously worldwide. How do we bring Harmony to international regulations? So I think um, just skipping back to the uh, national side and uh, Michael brought up the point about the uh, the task force and the report that was published recently that had two sides to it I looked on. I had an internal focus looking on what they would be doing in a country effectively and then an external international piece to it. What I found in the two years I've been at Interpol and the Harmony piece sort of ties into this is there's a lot of good strategies out there, very well written, very well documented, evidence-based. 
If you then turn that around and look at the investment that then goes in onto the international side, and that's not just in terms of, of funding, that's people, process and technology. So where do you place those factors on a national, regional or global? And where can they have the most impact? My argument for law enforcement would be placing more on the international side would help reduce that global impact because effectively then, and as we do at Interpol, uh, over a hundred different nationalities uh, working here, drawing those different people together from law enforcement. We are a neutral organization. We can be that interlocker between those countries that may not have those channels uh, directly for law enforcement to work together. Michael made the point about the hard to reach jurisdictions. Why are they hard to reach jurisdictions? That's because we are not able to get law enforcement together on a national or regional basis. So doing it on an international basis with the neutrality of Interpol to help support, to coordinate, facilitate those operations. And that's where we're moving more towards now is about how we draw those operations in, working with private sector, bringing that data and information in, and then putting that together as an operation. We're non-executive, you know, my role here is as conduit officer, I can't lead an investigation now. So that has to go into a country and that's slightly frustrating at times, but actually it's a bonus because I have that neutrality aspect to it. So I can go into all these different countries, welcome into these countries, but I can challenge as well. And that's what we're doing more of now. And on Monday, we've got a global event for law enforcement. We're bringing leaders together, over 400 people on the Interpol event, and this is what we're looking at, it's the ransomware challenge. And we're asking for a commitment from law enforcement globally to work together against ransomware, using our platforms, using our capabilities, but more importantly, using the police globally with private partners as well to really draw all of their capabilities together, understand the threats and the impact, and then target our resources jointly against that. So there's a lot of movement going on now but again, on that international level, for me, that's absolutely key. Thank you, Craig. I believe we have one minute left, so I will now ask each of you to summarize all the points in very shortly in 20, 30 seconds, um, and maybe name some of the key steps that countries' businesses need to take to deal with ransomware. Teresa, could you go first? Yes, so um, for individuals, you need to talk about protecting your data. Um, what we would love to see in the sector is sharing more of the threat intelligence. And then as a national level or regional or international even, talking about that third party risk management, how you can fortify um, your greater environment uh, that's not just about you, but about who you rely on as well. Thank you, Teresa. Michael? I would say that it's really about integrating cybersecurity into what you do as a business and treating it as a cyber risk, as a risk that you have to manage across the board, just like you manage litigation risk or natural disaster risk, that it's not an issue that you can just send to a geek in a closet someplace and hope that it doesn't affect you. It's very much about running your business. And then at the national level, uh, governments have to really prioritize cybersecurity, in particular, prioritize fighting ransomware, both within the country and internationally. Thank you, Michael. Finally, Craig. And I think just building on, on the risk, so, so identification of the risk and reducing and closing those capability gaps. That's what we need to do. We need to reduce that. And that comes through collaboration and sharing information. But underlying all of that is the trust model. So the trust model that we have to have 
between law enforcement and private partners and the communities that we police. We have to have that very clear trust model and for them to be seen that law enforcement is taking positive actions. We are arresting the cyber criminals. You know, there is a, a harm that we can do to them effectively because of the actions they're taking. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, everybody, for your recommendations. And I hope to see all of you next year at Cyber Polygon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our live stream continues. We're now getting ready for the next discussion, and I have a few moments to say this. First of all, I'd like to thank our media partners, NTV Channel and TASS News Agency for their support. One more thing, if you go to cyberpolygon.com, there's a video section where you can find expert presentations. Now, these presentations are more technical, so I'm sure that security engineers will enjoy this content. I have some of the titles here. One of the presentations is by Sergei Golovanov, who is chief security expert at Kaspersky. And he's talking about cybercrime pyramid, uh, which is a series of crimes in 2020 and 2021. Another, present, another speaker in these presentations is Kirill Kasavchenko, who is a senior engineer at Netscope. His presentation is seeing through clouds, ways to regain data visibility and control during cloud mitigation. There are other presentations available on the website. I, I was just told that we are ready for our next conversation. And the title is Resilient Supply Chains, Protect People by Protecting Business. It is my honor to introduce the moderator of this discussion, Mr. Troils Orting, who was the chairman of the advisory board at the Center for Cybersecurity World Economic Forum for three consecutive years, launched various crucial initiatives, and of course, helped to create Cyber Polygon. Mr. Orting, thank you for joining us. I'll leave it to you to introduce the speakers and orchestrate the discussion. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you again for inviting me to this extremely important session. Um, I've been a great supporter of Cyber Polygon since the very first uh, initiative was taken. And uh, I really like that you have continued to do this and now expanded the way that we interact on trying to solve common problems that we all face, regardless if we live in Russia, China, the US or Europe or elsewhere. In this panel, we will talk about uh, the supply chain. And I think that recent events have shown that the supply chain is extremely important uh, for security. In the old days, I think most of us, we thought about our estate being a fortress that, that was alone that we could defend. But now we are so interconnected that my vulnerability is your vulnerability and your vulnerability is my vulnerability. And we are so interlinked that this cannot be done in the normal way. This is what we will address in the next 40 minutes here. And of course, I'm not alone and thank you for that, but I'm supported by a number of, of, of very, very high esteemed experts and good friends. The first I want to, uh, to introduce is uh, Chris McCurdy, who is the vice president and general manager of IBM Security, one of the strongest and most profound companies in this area and one of the companies that I've worked closely together with in many years. The next one is uh, luckily a female in this lineup 
of men always. You see mid-aged men in, in cyber discussions, but now we have you, Dorit. Dorit Dor is no longer vice president of products. She's actually the chief product officer at Checkpoint Software Technologies in Israel, and one of the cleverest I have ever known, and I've had many discussions with. So welcome to you as well, Dorit. Then we turn to Kevin uh, Simster, who is the chief operating officer of Trend Micro. And now you can see again that there is some kind of pattern in this lineup. You have a number of companies from different areas in the world. And welcome to you, Kevin. I'm looking forward to see your perspectives as well. And last but not least, my good old friend, Eugene Kaspersky, who helped me uh, back in, uh, in the old days when I was the director of the European Cybercrime Center, actually by sending some of his experts to tell me about the Carbonac um, virus that was infecting uh, all over the world and he helped us protect it in, in Europe. So I think that we have now a, a, a very, very good lineup of, of experts. I also want you in the audience, if you have the time, to see if you can send us questions and I'll be happy to include them if we have got the time. So the first questions I will send to all of the participants in the panel. And it, uh, it, it sounds a bit like this. Recently, we have started to hear more about supply chain attacks. Their numbers is increasing. The growth has almost reached 80%. As supply chain include dozens of companies, this figure really sounds threatening. Why, in your opinion, are these attacks successful? That's the first question. Where are the vulnerabilities in companies? And where are the key challenges for companies in building cybersecurity and where should they focus? And you know, as a CISO, it's difficult in this broad number of questions to actually find answers. And that is why we now can draw on the expertise. So let me take um, the opportunity to invite you, uh, Chris, to be the first uh, in, in this panel to, to answer this. And, uh, and then I'm, uh, I will turn over to Dorit afterwards, please. Charles, thank you, and thank you for uh, having us and, and hosting. Uh, it's fantastic to be here and appreciate the Cyber Polygon uh, in, in driving these initiatives because uh, security culture is what we have to continue to drive uh, with everyone in the world to ensure safety uh, and protection. So uh, more on that to come. But as we look at the supply chain, uh, software supply chain attacks result from exploiting vulnerabilities in suppliers' technology or processes. They're successful because of the ripple multiplier effect. When one piece of software or, or technology is impacted that in multiple, thousands of companies, this is a way an attacker can use one simple application to then exploit the entire supply chain. So uh, the downstream customers then become impacted from, from that one attack. So in cases where the downstream customer happens to be a managed service provider, as an example, it further propagates to their end customers, such as the recent attack uh, on a systems administration software. Uh, supply chain providers must focus on protecting their crown jewels, software and services they provide to their clients. Some of the good examples, uh, as you asked, include threat modeling, you have to understand attack vectors to your business services and design preventative, detective, and responsive controls. Patching and update processes are key facets of those assets and threats to those should be modeled. Bake in zero trust principle. Limit the blast radius of attacks on products and services. 
uh, established uh, computer emergency response teams uh, who can also work with the clients in the event of an attack or breach. Uh, and, and finally, the, the, the one I started with was just simple cyber awareness and training on cybersecurity. Continue to educate developers, business users on corporate and social cybersecurity. It's always been cyber awareness, but uh, you know that's typically a click through that goes very quick. I like to call it uh, culture, and and we're all responsible, and we have to have shared fate in the entire organization for security. Thank you, Chris. Uh, important, and I, I especially agree with you on, on the culture. I've always said that that. Um, you know, strategy uh, eats culture for, for, for breakfast or the other way around. So culture eats strategy for breakfast. And if you don't embed this in your company, nobody cares. So Dorit, um, what is your take on, 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 on these questions? Yeah, um, I'll try not to repeat. Obviously, I agree with many of the things that Chris has said. Um, so why there are more? There are more because uh, they can. They can attack through this way. They are successful. When something becomes successful, there would be more to come. So one of the things that happens in our industry is that when there are some and they are successful and noisy, there would be more. The organizations have a very hard time to um, guard against them when they have like 1,000 maybe influencers of this model so there may be more outside influencers than inside influencers to protect against, and it's very, very hard. But the other side of this, this was kind of the IT using uh, the services, but there is the side of developers. We all went digital transformation big time, and we want to work very, very fast. Velocity is the king, and we hand out the security to the DevOps while we give them the top priority to do velocity. And we have to we have to put some brakes on the security when you develop products. And you have to put it at a very, very high priority, not just to talk about it, not just to educate about it. It has to be built into the process with some effects on velocity. I, I, again, I agree, Doyle, and I think that many of us has been, at least when I was a, a chief security officer on Barclays, I was constantly in infight with business that wanted to go uh, very fast to market um, and I didn't care that much about security because they, they wanted, of course, to, to be there and, and, and a fast mover. But, but I think that you were right in that we sometimes in security need to put a bit on the brake uh, to, to, to make sure that, that we are right in, in, in security also, not just in, in speed and, and quality on the market things. Kevin, do you um, agree with, with Dorit in, in, in these? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And for, thank you, everybody, for the, for the opportunity. And I can tell you, as somebody who's been sheltering in place for the last 18 months, I cannot wait to get to events in person again. <laughs> Zoom is okay, but in person is better. You know, um, yeah, you know, Chris and Dory experts and, and uh, can't help but agree with their thoughts. You know, there's no question that the supply chain, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, it's a logical point to go after, you know, one target uh, reveals, uh, uh, you know, just multiple, multiple victims. So there's no question it's going to pay off and continue. The only thing that I would add um, 
you know, that I think a lot about is atrophy, the technical debt that we've picked up over the last 40 years of software development and, uh, and infrastructure that's been built out. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I get frustrated when I see uh, government, I'll take the US as an example, talking about infrastructure spend and what they think about our roads and bridges. But there's a lot of technical debt that has been built up. It's going to take uh, some massive rebuilding of some of our infrastructure with designed, with security designed in in order to fix it. And uh, that's going to take time. So that's why I'm not trying to be a pep pessimist, I'm being a realist that I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's interesting. It's the first time I've actually uh, heard this, Kevin. I think you put it very nicely that if you look at the, the physical infrastructure, for instance, the US, everybody can see with their own eyes that you, you need to have, you know, uh, something done here. But I guess we see the same in the internet, but you just don't see it in the same way. It's not visual to you. Mm -hmm. But the building blocks of the uh, of the internet probably needs a makeover. Mm. Uh, Eugene, what, what what do you think? Is 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 this something that you have also uh, considered uh, during your long experience in this area, or do you have other perspectives? Uh, yes, thank you so much, Rose. Uh, well, actually, what I, what I see, uh, uh, this is a major problem nowadays. Uh, well, actually, it's uh, not in the, only the problem because uh, they are, uh, it's a very scalable uh, vector of attack. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's a huge multiplicator of the attack. Uh, when hundreds of thousands of uh, victims, they bite the poisoned cake at the same time. Uh, it's kind of the nuclear reaction in the cyberspace. Uh, the problem is that uh, we, are, we see the rising number of highly professional criminal gangs, uh, which uh, getting more experienced, they learn, uh, they share the information, they build the cyber criminal ecosystem. Uh, and I'm afraid in the future we'll see more and more uh, this kind of the uh, supply chain cyber attacks. And I'm afraid uh, it's uh, possible uh, to, well, this is the possible scenarios. It's not only about the cyber systems. It's not only about the office networks, not only about businesses, uh, but about, uh, it's about uh, uh, the hardware systems. It's about the Internet of Things, uh, industrial systems uh, at the same time, because, uh, well, actually, they, we are living in a highly, uh, a uh, complicated world which is very, very cyber, and the cyber is everywhere. Uh, what happens if, uh, well, the security cameras, they take update uh, from the same um, mm -hmm. poisoned source? Uh, what happens in, well, actually, it's uh, take any business and see how do they depend on supply chain uh, and how much it's cyber. Uh, what first came to my mind, uh, uh, for example, automotive sector. They assemble cars from thousands of pieces and the hundreds of them, they cyber and they are coming from uh, the different vendors. Uh, and uh, well, actually, well, uh, you asked me about three minutes uh, answers. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll get back to you, Eugene, don't worry. I'll get back to you. But, but, but again, I think that what, what you're emphasizing here in, in line with what Kevin also said is that this is also about control systems. This is also about what's not just IT, but also OT and, mm. and, and, and the impact it, it can have. And we will probably come back to that. But if we, if we stay on the line with a, a big company, let's say it's a bank or a, a big retailer, whatever, many of them have more than thousand 
um, vendors in their supply chain that are interconnected to each other. And, um, and I also read somewhere that four out of 10 to so 40% of all cyber attacks actually utilize the way in through a vendor into um, the main company. Um, how, how do we, and I, I want you to, if you can come with concrete, um, you know, suggestions to how do, does a security responsible in a company make sure that his vendors are just as secure as himself, that the same rules apply for the vendor. The only company I've seen in the real world is actually ABB, who has put on the internet a list and said, if you want to be a supplier to us, this is what you need to tick off. Otherwise, don't bother. What, how do we do this? And I remember still, I've seen contracts with vendors that you can drive a tank battalion through, which is without any anything read about uh, security, but uh, on all other things. Let's start in the reverse order now, uh, and let's start with you, Eugene. What do you concretely think that, that, that we should do in order to make sure that the security responsible can take this job, uh, you know, serious, and, and, and what should they focus on? Yeah, thank you for, uh, for, for, for asking me about uh, comments about uh, on, on these issues. And actually, the, the question is very, very uh, hard to answer because, we are, again, we are living in a highly interconnected world uh, very cyber, uh, and we depend on all these technologies and, as you said, hundreds of thousands of suppliers for some businesses. Uh, well, actually, to have the, some kind of regulation, as uh, like ABB, say, okay. as we just mentioned, uh, it's a very good idea, right, but it's not enough. Uh, well, actually, I'll get, I think that uh, the right way is to have the more strict uh, cybersecurity uh, assessment for the every supplier and for suppliers, two suppliers, uh, because it's not just one layer uh, structure. Uh, to be to guarantee that uh, the companies you are working with they follow the very strict cybersecurity rules. Uh, and uh, maybe it's also the good idea to start designing your own systems, uh, keeping in mind that every piece of the system can be vulnerable and you have to build uh, the system which is secure by design. doesn't matter if uh, there are some pieces are vulner vulnerable or poisoned. Uh, the system must behave in a predicted way. Uh, in case of any kind of that attack, including supply chain. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an idea and uh, I'm afraid I don't have the, uh, the plan, detailed plan for every business because uh, for every business it has to be adapted, it has to be created uh, most probably from the scratch. Thank you. No, but I, I agree with you, Eugene. It's, it's, not, an, it's, it's not an easy and trivial, trivial question that, that you can come up with an easy answer to. It is complex and we have to, to, to recognize this. And, uh, while I turn to you, Kevin, I, I realized that during my work, um, I have realized that 99% of all companies in the world are SMEs. They, they, they do not have thousands of people in security. They are less than 500 people in, in, in the whole business. And many of them are actually suppliers to some of the bigger companies. So how do we make sure that, and building also on what Eugene said, that you can create some kind of a checklist or whatever for security responsible people when they deal with suppliers. What is it that they should have on top of their mind, so to say? It's, um, uh, I, I, I'm glad you framed it that way because, um, 
you know, like uh, I have some good visibility just within trend, right? We're a couple billion dollars globally. We sell to all segments and uh, we experience what you just described with large enterprises where they are doing a lot more due diligence on their supply chain, right? When we sell to governments and banks, they are definitely uh, set up so that they can, in fact, do quite a bit of due diligence on the supply chain itself. But an SME, they have no ability to do that, right? They just have no. So I think the point is very well taken. I think, um, you know, the one thing people don't talk a lot about, but, you know, it's definitely something that we're doing. I think maybe others um, I don't know if you would consider us an SME at 7,000 employees, but, you know, maybe maybe we are. Um, and uh, we're consolidating into fewer suppliers that we can, in fact, do more due diligence on. So consolidation might be one thing. I think there's, um, you know, there's a, a, a hope down the road. I, I'm very bullish on zero trust and sort of that philosophy of, you know, you can't just let Today, supply chains are just inherently trusted, right? And taking the approach of, no, I don't trust, I verify everything. You know, we have to change this philosophic um, um, idiom that we've had in our head and uh, turn it upside down. So, uh, you know, I really think small and medium businesses are going to have to start to think about that. Thank you very much, uh, Kevin. And I know, Dorit, from our discussions, I still remember sitting in your office when we were looking at, at how the world looked like in the future when everything was connected and how should we, uh, in this number of signals, you know, find the real signals and take away the noise and block, uh, you know, the bad signals and open the doors for the real ones. And how do you, how do we do this? And, and, uh, and I know that you've given this some consideration and I'm not, I don't know if you have reached any conclusion yet, but how do you look at it if we look at at a broader perspective with both small businesses and big businesses interconnected with various levels of security. Yeah, so first I want to refer to a few of the points mentioned. Um, so um, a checklist or a standard validation, if there was a very good checklist, then it would have applied to everybody and there were less issues. So it's it's very good practice to have, but it's, it's not gonna get us uh, wild in protection, neither like, um, doing due diligence on the vendors. Uh, I think that part of the problem here is that the vendors will show standing up for regulations, but the standing up for regulations stand up only on, a, on a some level of security that you have and not on all the problems because sometimes they don't know all the problems. So one of the things uh, that is really, really crucial um, when checking your um, supplier is how fast you respond to vulnerabilities. Because with the last recent last week events, uh, the software that was attacked had vulnerabilities, and, and the, the rumor in the news is that uh, the attacker went through the vulnerabilities that existed and ran their commands from that point of view. And the vulnerabilities were not necessarily new. This is where I speak about velocity versus vulnerabilities. You have to dedicate the time to release the versions that would solve the vulnerabilities, even if they sometimes come instead of the velocity of. So I would say one very, very critical question is how you address vulnerabilities yourself. 
Um, and then I have a whole speech about uh, uh, zero trust and how we could walled garden some of them that I won't go into now. But I will say, develop all the tools now yourself wouldn't necessarily bring the solution because you'd not be fast enough and your people would have same problems. So I think we need to architect the solution and ask some fundamental questions um, and, and in some senses live with the problem. It's interesting. Thank you very much, Dorit. And uh, I like that uh, you also uh, conclude with that there might not be a recipe uh, for every uh, problem that we have, that some of them we probably have to live with and we have to narrow the gap between the detection and reaction so, so, so that, that we are getting faster. I also like what you said that to a certain extent we have three, let's say, big security vendors here. So you have Kaspersky and you have Checkpoint and uh, you have Trend that you probably need to help us architect a way out of this so that, that the protection is getting better. You cannot leave it to all the various uh, CISOs mm -hmm. in the world, uh, but, 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 but find standards. Having said this, um, then Chris, as, as you were as the last one of, on, on this topic, could you summarize then for us maybe what, what you think uh, in, in IBM, who is more an advisor consultancy in, in, in this area and help us find a way uh, towards a solution that works for everybody? You bet. And uh, I think Kevin hit it right uh, in, in the zero trust philosophies of trust but verify. But uh, I look at it, uh, Eugene mentioned uh, automotive. Um, and, and I look at the automotives now as a systems integrator as well, right? They're, they're taking thousands of parts and building, building something as a systems integrator. And they trust that every single vendor uh, that puts one of the pieces into that vehicle uh, is secure. Uh, and they've done secure by design. However, we know when we start putting different uh, pieces together from different vendors, sometimes the security that we thought was there is now different. And so having that end-to-end -end view of the testing, while one piece might be good, right? So like we do application testing or infrastructure testing, we have to test the transaction from end-to-end. -end. So very much like we would expect a, a systems integrator to test from end-to-end, -end, that's what we have to do in our own organizations. So things that we do with our clients uh, is stress adversary simulation, act like an attacker. What would it look like in our client environment? So adversary simulation is something that we're driving with our clients um, and telling them that they need to, to do that offensive security testing before someone else does offensive security testing on them. So um, being proactive, doing the threat hunting, understanding your vulnerabilities and risks. Uh, finally, I will say this on, on the supply chain is, um, I've seen a lot of clients who, who have one vendor uh, and they don't think about what is the impact if we lost that one vendor as a critical component or input to our finished product and they have no backup. So in the event that they were down for one week, two weeks, three weeks, how would you continue to operate or run your business? So those are some of the things that go back to disaster recovery uh, from a long, long time ago that we have to instill and continue to think about is how would we continue to operate our business if some of our critical providers to what our finished product actually looks like? Yeah, I think it was, it was an extremely good summary, uh, Chris, where you captured most of it. Um, just before I go to the more individual questions, one of the things, as you can uh, probably um, see in me, is that I'm, I'm still a bit concerned about 
the, the soft underbelly part of the global internet, which are not the JP Morgans and the Spearbanks and, and the other ones, but which is the rest of the pack that doesn't have the ability, the resources to pen test, to have red teams, to, to, to do all of this. How, what is your advice? I will just give you a, you know, a few minutes uh, maybe to consider. What is your advice to, 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 to these companies? Should they outsource security? Should they insource security? Should they go to cloud solutions? What is it that we should, um, you know, advise these guys to do? Because if we don't get them uh, to lift the bar, I, I, I think we, we, are, we are bad off, all of us, because we are so interconnected. I don't know if anybody of you wants to, to go first on this. I don't think they could outsource the whole thinking about their security. They have to simplify their operation in a way that they could build um, elements that could be isolated and segmented. And by segmented, I don't only mean network segmented, but segmented logically. Mm. And to do this, you have to you have to build yourself with an architect at the beginning. After that, you could outsource the operation of security. What I, if if I counter one of the things that was said before, I'm not so much into testing, not because I don't like testing and not because I don't think people should test, but they would test and they would find only a certain number of things. And they would not find all the things that a very strong adversary will find in that software. So we, we overestimate the power of testing and we under, uh, or, or it's hard for us to architect the solution in pieces. So think about actually segmenting the parts and when you build something from components, how you control the reactions between components and how you could limit the impact, assuming something bad is happened. So instead of testing for it, assume it's bad and build it so that if it's bad, it would have a similar simple. So take a very good consultant to build the architecture. After that, you could outsource it. But exactly, and uh, I've also learned that the hard way. Eugene, please. Yeah, I think that's terrible. Well, actually, it's, uh, first of all, there is no simple solution. Uh, uh, and uh, actually, I have the idea how to answer this question in an easy, uh, easy to understand way. Uh, is the same like uh, what you do with your home security, house security. If you live in an apartment, it's uh, one story. So you most probably outsource the, the security. If you live in a, the, your own village uh, house, it's a different story. If you have a palace, <laughs> you do all the security yourself. That's <laughs> it. So that, that depends on the, which kind of business you have. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I'll I'll comment on that too, Eugene. And I think it's a it, it's not a it's not a simple answer. And and with the resource uh, shortage and scarcity um, to hire and find top talent, uh, we at IBM are doing this globally. So you mentioned we're a global company. Uh, as as I'm hiring and looking for the best talent, uh, it's not looking in certain geos. It's looking everywhere around the world to find the best resources. And our clients are asking asking us to do that too, is we don't care where you find them. And, and now work from home has really changed a lot of things for us. But uh, I look at this as a co-sourcing, uh, building a partnership and, and organizations have to look at what capabilities do they have uh, to the testing point. Uh, I think this is about manual testing. 
this was not about uh, automated and 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 using some type of scanning solution, but uh, Dorit uh, being able to look at how do we do this end to end. But as a as an offensive attacker, that is uh, absolutely something you're you're spot on. But the the model of zero trust is assumed breach. So. Yeah. I, I believe an organization should always have an assumed breach posture and protect the organization um, from there and, and then continue to do that type of, of red teaming and testing uh, uh, that we talk about on a continual basis. But I think it's a, a sourcing model that works best for the organization of what resources can they afford and mitigating risk. So take it to the business. It's a risk posture. What, are, what is the business willing to accept uh, that they're comfortable in living with. So we look at risk quantification uh, and, and help quantify risk into the organization and what can they assume and live with. But an assumed breach policy is, uh, is what we like organizations to think and then how do we protect from there. And just, just to add real quick, because I think, I think Chris hit, the nail, hit one clear point on the head, which is when we're talking about SMEs, you know, the ones that I often end up talking to, actually, they're missing some of the basics, right? Yeah. And it's not even anything that we are uh, advocating from a panel perspective, right? They're not patching their current systems. Mm -hmm. They're not doing regular backups, right? Like it, it's some, some basics are needed. Uh, then you can start to talk about some of the other stuff and what partners you're going to bring in. But if you're a dentist office, right, with 50 people, you know, you're not going to have anybody on staff from an IT perspective. So they're going to have to rely on some outside expertise, but do the basics first. Exactly. Uh, that was perfect, Kevin, because this is something that I at least always preach that go back to basics instead of, you know, trying to uh, see if you can do air gap uh, mitigation or whatever. Why don't you just uh, bloody patch your estate and why don't you update your, your software and all of this. And if we did that, I, I would guess that we would be uh, off half of, of, of the attacks that we see right now. But, um, um, and then zero trust, of course, was, was interesting. And I'm not going to open the can of worms that will tell us that we need loads of qualified people, 4.5 million security experts are needed in demand globally. So, and, and we cannot solve this problem either here. But that will, will tell us that we need more automation, more assistance. Now I'll go to, um, to Chris with a more specific um, uh, question to you that I will read. That modern companies have more points of contact with the outside world than ever before. Enormous amounts of data flows through these points, providing efficiency and high speed of operation to business. But simultaneously, the risk increase, first of all, from the point of view uh, from the threat landscape. And IBM's X-Force index says that 35% of attacks on enterprises in 2020 utilized vulnerabilities. And this initial attack vector even surpassed phishing that dominated in 19. So according to your experience, is there any type of the most widespread attacks on supply chains? And if so, what measures need to be taken to prevent them, please? Yeah, Troll's great question. And uh, as I talked about before, cyber criminals target that upstream supply chain software, service providers, et cetera, because they know that people are purchasing the software. And so if you have one attack vector that you know can be compromised with thousands of customers buying that software or as a service provider, going after those uh, can, can be very easy 
um, because you have multiple or, or thousands, as I said, uh, of using it. So that ripple effect on the multiple downstream consumers of their service uh, is, is a great uh, uh, attack way. So uh, attack types leveraging this uh, supply chain broadly mirror the global attack landscape, ransomware, data and intellectual property theft and misconfigured server access. Those are the top three types that are propagated uh, as you suggested in our X-Force Threat Intelligence Index for 2021. So supply chain attacks are harder to prevent because they take advantage of that trust relationship between suppliers and their customers. Machine to machine API communication channels, software update mechanisms that we inherently trust uh, already. So. Some of the measures uh, preventing and containing these, as we talked about, is based on that zero trust business framework. I look at zero trust not as a security framework, but how you can build your business and, and take this to the CIO uh, business operations is a way that security can be embedded in uh, upfront. So um, as a customer, discover and understand your cyber risks across your assets, your users, data, quantify those risks to gain insights on cost of recovering from a security incident or a business disruption. Weave supply chain security assessments into your third-party security and risk assessments. As Eugene said, how far do you take that? Do you take it to the fourth and the fifth parties? Uh, I just recently worked with our X-Force incident response team where a ransomware uh, extortion was launched uh, and said, if you don't pay us, then we're going to go after your customers. So it's not just an extortion of them, but hey, we'll come after your customers. So that's concerning because your customer is your most important asset. Uh, so, so you have to understand who those customers are, your fourth and fifth parties. Define yep. the zero trust use cases aligned with your organization's digital growth strategy, perimeter, edge, cloud, SaaS services, uh, you know, to name a few. And finally, plan your incident response and practice it. Prepare for your worst day. We have uh, three cyber ranges that we use. We've taken those from being on-prem to virtual. We work virtually now. We have to uh, be able to experience a cyber incident. Uh, so we take our clients through those types of things, but plan, prepare, and rehearse for, for your worst day. Thank you very much, Chris, for, for this. And again, Zero Trust was mentioned. And I always say, in God we trust, the rest we monitor. And I guess that that is uh, probably what we need to continue to do. So Kevin, moving to you, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I want to hear all of your specific questions. So we need to maybe be a bit faster. You can see on the monitor, we only have four and a half minutes left. But malicious attacks have consistently been launched on weak points in the supply chain. So these types of threats are not new and have been prevalent for a while. But all, as all attacks do, they evolve into more advanced forms. Software development with multiple phases that could be placed at risk is particularly vulnerable. And these challenges is especially pressing because enterprises are expected to run majority of their workload in the cloud by the end of 2021, as Trent Michael yourself have said in, in your early productions. So how are these types of attack evolving? What are the possible next scenarios? And could you elaborate a bit on, on maybe on future trends, trends for us so that we know what to look for, please? Well, I'll be brief because I know we're trying to get through a few more questions. And, you know, I'm a, uh, we at Trend were huge believers in the cloud. I actually fundamentally believe that paradigm shift is actually going to make the world better. But I think there's a bit of a myth. When people talk about digital transformation, 
and they say, I'm moving my 25-year-old application that I built that's sitting in my data center running on VMware, and I just shift that up to the cloud, that is not transformation. What I'm talking about is actually rebuilding it for the cloud, get it all integrated with the cloud, leverage the tools. The cloud is wonderful. It's got a very clear shared security responsibility model. They're taking care, uh, infrastructure providers are taking care of the infrastructure and uh, customers need to wade in and think about the application and what they're going to do. So I think that paradigm is going to make things better, but don't fool yourself in thinking that 25 year old application that's running in your cloud, in your data center, <laughs> moving it to the cloud doesn't necessarily improve your security posture. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. And I actually think that there are some in business who thinks that it's safer just by being up there, right? Yeah. So you have a really a good point here. Eugene, you and I have been, we've had many vocal discussions in, uh, about, about the future. You have recently said that the modern threat landscape requires a whole new approach that foresees transmission from the traditional cybersecurity to the cyber immunity concept. What is this concept about? And is this process, uh, sorry, approach applicable to supply chains at all? And how can a network of companies actually utilize this? Yeah, uh, well, actually, uh, when we speak about cybersecurity, it perfectly meets the needs of individuals and uh, small businesses, enterprises for office network, uh, because you can predict the risks. Uh, and in this case, cybersecurity is some kind of risk management. So you, you estimate the risk, uh, you invest into cybersecurity, you reduce the, uh, the risk, so you manage all that. Uh, in case of infrastructure, especially critical infrastructure, uh, the risks are unpredictable, so the damage is unlimited. Uh, and it's not just uh, the, the cost of equipment, not just cost of your turbine, you have, have a power plant. It's also the cost of businesses, of enterprises, of your nation, which consume the power from your turbine. Uh, so it's not just cost of your business, but it's cost of damage is also counted by your customers as well. Uh, so in this case, cybersecurity doesn't balance the risk. Uh, so that's why we came to the idea of the secure by design systems or cyber immunity to design such a to design the, the systems in such a way uh, that uh, the cost of attack uh, is more than possible damage. So the bad guys, they have to invest more into successful attack uh, than you lose from, the, from that. Uh, so well, actually, I think that we have a technology, I'm sure we have the technologies and we can build uh, this uh, immune systems for Internet of Things, for example, uh, for some parts of industrial systems, and we are working in this direction. And this the concept of the cyber immunity, which we, which we uh, work on uh, right now is uh, we, we cut the system in a small pieces, so small models, uh, and uh, we isolate these models from each other. And every model has the prescribed uh, behavior, trusted behavior. So they check that every piece of the system follows the trusted behavior. Uh, and well, it's not for notebooks, it's not for their service, not for to design the cloud at the moment, uh, but it's good enough for Internet of Things for industrial systems. Uh, and I believe that this is the future of uh, infrastructure, especially critical infrastructure. It's future of uh, production lines, uh, automotive, etc., etc. And actually, this cyber immunity concept—it's a solution for supply chain problem. Because if uh, 
any piece of the system is vulnerable or poisoned, uh, well, actually, it doesn't affect the rest of the system. That's Thank it. you very much, uh, Eugene. And, and I like, again, that if you make it too costly for the, for the criminals to do it, they won't do it, at least if they are normal, greedy criminals. Nation states doesn't care about trust. They will still continue. But, Dorit, I want to, uh, to conclude with you. Um, in its uh, report on supply chain, Checkpoint says that 60% of data theft is linked to third parties. And the figure expected to grow as more companies utilize digital platforms and new work models to foresee data exchange with partners and service providers. As a countermeasure, you suggest creating zero trust environment. We've spoken about that. Could you elaborate a bit more on this approach and what makes it actually efficient and how do you implement that in reality? So first, it's about architecture and we and about being a platform. And we have a platform called Infinity that covers a whole range of solutions, which we will not talk about today. But two important pillars that it has is a, the user to applications access everywhere at any time, and B, uh, uh, so that's Harmony and CloudGuard protecting the cloud itself. And if you combine the two, they have a lot to be uh, doing with the supply chain attacks. I'll just briefly touch the points. Uh, first, the zero trust as a concept that could be implemented with Infinity, but also through uh, potentially nano agents that helps you do really zero, zero trust not just in the, in the naive way, but in a more subtle way. It goes to segmentation. Segmentation is not just network segmentation, it's also segmentation of the APIs and microservices behind web services, et cetera. Uh, it goes to identity-based decisions in many cases when it's users in applications, you could also consider them identities. And it goes to how you use the third party securely. So look at their audit, Look what changes happened on their places, API with them and understand their posture. Plus on your side, make sure that you configure the third party correctly, that you configure the cloud uh, third party for security. We could help you configure all these things uh, alongside with part of Harmony and cloud. But so it's, it's a very long uh, list yes. of things, but it's, it's about the architecture that enables you to have all the touch points to do that. Thank you very much, Dorit, and thank you uh, all of you uh, in, the, in the panel. Unfortunately, we've run out of time even before we got to the additional questions. And that again shows us that there is so much here on the hearts and minds of you to share with the audience so we could have a more secure internet today than yesterday. And I think that it speaks for itself that we need to work more together on this. We need to have more geopolitical stability so we at least can make it more uh, risky to be a criminal. And uh, I will work and I'm sure that the rest of the panel will work in the same direction as long as they actually breathe. I want also to thank those of you who took the time to, to watch us. And I'm sure that, all, uh, that the lady and the gentleman are up for questions if you have any also on a more bilateral basis. Thank you very much to, to Bicel and Spearpank and over and out here from this panel. Mr. Orting, dear speakers, thank you very much for your contribution to Cyber Polygon. Ladies and gentlemen, next on the agenda is the message from Interpol. What is the role of Interpol in dealing with digital threats? How does it help governments and businesses around the globe to fight cybercrime and build better resilience? 
Ladies and gentlemen, to answer these questions, I give you Mr. Jürgen Stock, Secretary General, Interpol. Thank you, Alexander. Let me start by thanking Bison and the Spur ecosystem for the invitation. The Cyber Polygon events are always a fantastic opportunity to take stock of the global threat landscape we face, both across the public and the private sector. We have seen how our world became increasingly digitalized over the past decades. That digitalization has been brutally accelerated by the pandemic. This digital transformation allowed our societies to avoid a complete standstill. However, it also created a broader playing field for cyber criminals. I see it as a cascading effect. More internet users, more mobile devices, e-commerce, electronic transactions and electronic communication, more individuals online with low levels of digital security awareness, more targets. As in any battle plan, the weakest flank is the point of entry that brings everything down. The generally poor awareness of cybersecurity and cyber hygiene amongst all users has led to a dramatic increase in the number of cybercrime victims. Another key threat comes with a sharp increase in the number of employees working remotely. The traditional approach by business was to create a safe environment and perimeter for professional transactions. This works if sealed compartments can be enforced. In lockdowns, more commercial and official communications and transactions are being conducted over less secure domestic networks. This added another layer of potential entry points, increasing the vulnerability of corporate networks and thereby also the attack surface for cyber criminals. In 2020, we saw a surge in malicious cybercrime capitalizing on the coronavirus to steal personal information and credentials, cyber criminals gained access to networks which they then exploited for financial gain. Beyond the sheer size of the victim pool, we also noticed some remarkable tailoring efforts by criminal groups. Attackers were taking a more customized approach and targeting specific geographical areas, industries and businesses. This was most evident when subregions at the peak of an ep epidemic wave were targeted by attack vectors from other continents because the pressure on companies and government was at its highest. This dynamic has been compounded by the growing trend of cybercrime as a service products being offered as a more sophisticated and more complete package, lowering the entry barriers for would-be cybercriminals. The most troubling example is obviously in malware attacks and in particular ransomware campaigns. Ransom attacks reportedly grew by 150 percent in 2020 and the amount paid by victims quadrupled. In parallel, the major focus of the disruptive malware campaigns has shifted from individuals and small business to government agencies, but also to those overwhelmed parts of the healthcare sector which have risen to the top of the vulnerable infrastructure scale. One example among many witnessed by Interpol was when an initial intrusion into the network of a private hospital in the Caribbean region was detected last year. Interpol assisted immediately by providing mitigation actions. 
We worked alongside local authorities and industry partners over the course of the following month and the intrusion was successfully foiled. This averted both an imminent ransomware attack and a likely shutdown of the hospital itself. Another example was when we supported our partners in Ireland after CyberTech using the Conti ransomware had shut down national medical services. Following its detection, Interpol worked around the clock to deliver incident response with the help of private partners and issued detailed alerts to other member countries worldwide to prevent similar attacks. Overall, we are facing a new reality from a year and a half ago. The threats are more pervasive and they are primed to inflict greater disruptions than ever. However, the Interpol model allows us to scale up our response at different levels. In the immediate, it meant providing early warning on vulnerabilities detected by Interpol and fusing police and industry intelligence into actionable findings on attacks replicated across the globe. This is very much a counterwave exercise. Indeed, many of these attacks were not geographically limited. As our analysis of malware samples revealed, the same snake ransomware attacking a hospital in Germany was also used in Japan. And a separate attack vector used in the Middle East and North Africa region was seen in the Czech Republic. This all the while Nigerian groups were hijacking corporate websites to defraud European governments desperately looking to procure essential protective equipment. So while the face of cyber threats has morphed to exploit the pandemic, one thing stood unchanged. Cybercrime remains an inherently cross-regional, cross-sector global issue. Yet a global threat does not imply a one-size-fits-all solution. From a law enforcement perspective, each terrain and each region has specific features that need to be taken into account. This is why Interpol is structuring its operations around regional task forces, such as our very successful ASEAN Cybercrime Operations Desk in Southeast Asia, which is being replicated in West Africa thanks to support from the United Kingdom. Outside of specific incidents and investigations, we have also made capacity building and awareness raising two effective weapons in our arsenal. For instance, we have released dedicated awareness campaigns targeting those weak links in global defenses. The average online user with poor cyber hygiene, where we have partnered with national security agencies to reinforce individual defenses and close those dangerous entry points. Simply put, no region or country can claim to be immune from it. No region or country can claim that the source of every single criminal attack or the response to it is to be found purely within its borders. Malicious domains are a good example of this where so many components like the registration of the domain, the IP address can involve multiple countries. The role of Interpol is to allow member countries to access and share our unique combination of sources, data sets and processing capacity to enhance our understanding of global threats and to provide vital assistance in these investigations. We do this by bringing together our 194 member countries 
each with their own rules and legislations against cybercrime, under a single common framework for the processing of data. Among the various solutions we offer our member countries in this area is Interpol Cybercrime Collaborative Platform. The centralized information hub launched last year for the coordination of global law enforcement operations against cybercrime. This restricted access platform enables operational stakeholders, including our private partners, to share intelligence in a secure environment. The platform has already proved successful in supporting coordinated cross-regional investigations, resulting in the arrest of multiple threat actors. However, if we are to be successful in addressing transnational cybercrime, we must ensure that every impacted country has the capacity to contribute to these investigations. In other words, we must empower those of our members with very limited cyber law enforcement capabilities from which a global cyber criminal attack may be launched. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. This is why Interpol has been providing capacity building activities across the globe to strengthen the capacities and operational skills of police to investigate cybercrime and engage in international police cooperation. In parallel, a strong relationship and effective connection between the private and public sector is pivotal in tackling cybercrime. I cannot understate the importance of our private partners. The companies from which we receive threat data directly, including Bison, continually keep us abreast of the threat landscape and the changes and attacks within. It is this direct access to data from both the public and private sectors which help Interpol Cyber Fusion Center provide unique operational support and technical guidance to a number of organizations in recent attacks. The cybersecurity industry is one of many vital allies in this fight. Along with national computer emergency response teams, international organizations and NGOs, we need to harness their collective power. As a global community, we need to leverage their data, resources, tools and expertise to identify the threats, mitigate the risks and prevent cybercrime. Interpol is the focal point with a unique capacity to access and share data directly from its source efficiently and rapidly. Interpol aims to expand and diversify its partnerships as well as aggregate cybercrime victim data globally on its cyber analytical platform to provide more effective and timely support to member countries. As a global community, awareness, education and prevention are also vital. The more we share our experience about these threats and the attack vectors cyber criminals use, the more chances we will have in preventing and stopping the attacks. That's why events like Cyber Polygon are so important. Let me conclude on this note. The need for a global coordinated response has never been greater because it has never been more vital. Ultimately, the pandemic has only been an accelerator of a long-running trend. As we move forward and we will continue to live and work in an environment ever more suited to cybercrime. Working with private industry and public partners is a must to close the cyber enforcement gap. For Interpol, this means leading global efforts in the domain of cyber attribution, 
by leveraging cyber operational investigative support to bring cyber criminals to justice. This must be our shared objective, public and private sector alike, working across our respective boundaries to push the exchange of actionable information on cybercrime so that threats are identified as soon as possible. Awareness is raised about them before they spread globally and mitigating actions are taken. Thank you very much and back to you, Alexander. Mr. Stock, thank you for your participation and for what you do at Interpol. Ladies and gentlemen, our live stream continues. We are a little bit behind the schedule, but we are ready for our next discussion. And the topic is the role of the Red Cross in creating a safe cyberspace. I'd like to introduce the speakers of this discussion. Mr. Mikhail Vinagradov, head of the General Department of International Legal Cooperation, General Prosecutor's Office, of the Russian Federation, and Mr. Peter Maurer, President of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Gentlemen, please, you have the floor. Thank you, Alexander. Peter, you are the President of the International Committee of the Red Cross, an organization that has been dealing with conflicts and emergencies in the hotspots all over the world for over 150 years. Can I tell the audience a little bit more of what the Red Cross does and what role technological progress plays in your activities. It's a very interesting uh, question. First and foremost, let me just say that the ICRC, as you alluded to for more than 160 years now, is assisting and protecting people affected by war and violence. And we have developed all kinds of methods in how we mitigate the impact of violence, how we engage with belligerents, with weapons bearers to respect international humanitarian law. And of course, we are very challenged today because all the fundamentals of law, of behavior in warfare are basically challenged by digital transformation. And this is what is interesting. The battlefield, which was a physical battlefield today, is also a virtual battlefield. Those who are victims uh, of war and violence don't have only physical needs. They don't need only water and health uh, services and medicine they, and shelter. They also need information. They need connectivity. Uh, they need information on where they are and where it is safe to go. They need connectivity in order to know where their relatives are. Uh, they need to be able to connect with their devices to services because they need, for instance, to be able to receive cash on their cell phones to be able to survive. And so what is really interesting is in today's world, everything we have done in the past, so whether assisting or developing the law or engaging with belligerents becomes and has a digital transformation component. And this is fundamentally challenging and changing the way we deliver our services. And I think this is the big challenge we are today confronted with because thinking about the people we assist 
and we try to protect is also thinking about the digital transformation and what we need to do to keep data safe, to be, keep connectivity safe, to have an understanding of what international humanitarian law means in a time of digital transformation and how to interpret the key concept of international humanitarian law in the digital space. I see. The law is changing, that is true, and there was a change as well. Elaborating further on technological progress, let's talk about the challenges that it brings. The exclusively humanitarian mission of ICRC is to protect the lives and dignity of victims of armed conflict and other situations of violence, and to provide them with assistance across the globe. You have to transmit it to deal with the very critical and confidential data. How do you protect it? And what cybersecurity challenges you have to face? I think what we have uh, learned, of course, is uh, as you allude and suggest in your question that uh, safe data and protected data are of critical importance. Imagine that personal data of people are not protected adequately. This would make them eventually objects of attack. You are either of this or that origin you come from this or that place and it can expose you to security risks. Uh, ICRC has operated always very confidentially with regard to visiting detainees or engaging with belligerents in the battlefield. And these informations uh, need to be protected. The fact that you know where people find themselves can either protect them because it can give them a way out of dangerous situation or it can endanger them because it makes them object uh, of attack and therefore data protection is of critical importance i have seen myself in our institution in the past our reports on sensitive security situations would be very confidential but on paper today we need to digitalize our own services, we need to digitalize our work in order to also take advantage of the positive aspects of digital transformation. The organization, as any other organization in the world, is going digital. But when going digital, we have to have special layers of protection. Now there are difficult, different issues to do that. First, we of course need to have best practices on what, how we can protect data. This needs negotiations with governments, negotiations with governments where our server and our data are hosted. It needs diplomatic engagement to have those assurances that our data are respected. It also needs diplomatic engagements to ensure that belligerents would not attack humanitarian organizations and would protect what I would call the cyber perimeter, the ecosystem of neutral and impartial humanitarian work for which the organization stands. So it needs diplomatic, it needs technical tools which are amongst the best ones to protect the data that we accumulate. 
And we would like to be, remain, and be even more so in the future, a credible host so that people who are eventually displaced, who are suffering from the impact of war, can store their identities and their identity documents on platforms under heavy security of the ICRC. So what had before has been protecting people from the impact of war, today data security and data protection, be it technical, in political, diplomatic, becomes a key uh, focus of our institution. And as in many other areas of work, trust into our data protection system is absolutely essential so that those with whom we service trust that the data that they offer to us are safe and secure. And trust is important so that states would not attack the ICRC because they are confident that the data we store are used for exclusively humanitarian purposes and not for political or strategic knowledge. And therefore, uh, storing safely data and having the best possible technical, diplomatic and political agreements that we can reach uh, is of critical importance to continue the mission of a neutral, impartial and independent uh, organization. Thank you, Peter. I agree. Uh, cybersecurity and data protection are within the international interstate agenda. It is true. And it is high time to look at this. Digital progress has spread unevenly across the globe. To equitably use, adopt and adapt frontier technologies, the countries need to be ready for them. The countries of North America and Europe are better prepared, while Sub-Saharan Africa is the least equipped. With the level of preparedness, level of risks also varies. What digital threats do you see for the most vulnerable groups of the global population? Are there any differences in those threats in various countries? What do you see in your mission and how to help to fight those threats? I think there are threats at several levels. We have seen uh, uh, already in today's world with an increasing number of states having cyber uh, security capacities which can attack other countries or other installations. We have seen that the issue of uh, undermining uh, or attacking data of health institutions, of other critical civilian institutions as a key accompanying element of either warfare or even cyber attacks outside of armed conflict being an increasing threat. So attacks on civilian infrastructure, in particular health infrastructure, has become a critical issue. We have seen that during the pandemic, during COVID-19, we have counted an increasing number of attacks on hospital infrastructure and hospital data. This can basically uh, diminish considerably or uh, uh, outrightly uh, make medical services dysfunctional, but it has been 
a critical issue. You can attack water infrastructure either within conflict or outside conflict, but the civilian consequences, the humanitarian consequences on civilians are of critical importance. We also see that misinformation, disinformation and hate speech come to the digital space. And this can have a major influence on how uh, populations are protected and how they are endangered. We see that uh, hate speech is something which we have, which is not new in the world. We all know that events like the genocide in Rwanda or in other parts of the world has been triggered and alimented and fueled by radio. But yesterday's radio is today's cyberspace. And therefore, attacks are not only attacks on the cyber infrastructure and civilian cyber infrastructures of social services, it's also attacks on misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech, which can fuel conflict and which can then transform into physical violence. And this is what uh, worries us, uh, worries us uh, really. And then there is a third element, which I alluded to before, and this is really the deliberate attack of belligerents on data of potential victims, which can target them and make them even more or victimize them even more because it can make them objects of violence in the real world. And so these combination of attacking civilian infrastructure, of fueling the dynamic of violence and attacking specific individuals or group of individuals uh, for their identities is a real concern to us and therefore we need political and diplomatic engagements of the international community to at least have some form of regulation of these elements, which are major protection challenges for civilian populations inside and outside conflict. Okay, we'll be a bit back with the political and diplomatic efforts. Uh, we'll discuss it further. But for now, as humanitarian organizations become more reliant on digital technologies, they become fully fledged stakeholders in cyberspace. Adverse cyber operations could impact their capacity to protect and assist people affected by armed conflict or other situations of violence. This shift makes it essential for humanitarian organizations to review their cyber perimeter. What is the essence of this holistic approach that you call cyber perimeter. How can humanitarian organizations understand and properly map it? How can it help to overcome the challenges that these organizations are facing now? International humanitarian law has been created at a time when battlefields were physical and real and where mutual and impartial humanitarian space could be designed as a physical space. Either you have access to a city or you don't have access to a city. Either you have access uh, to a hospital or you don't have access to a hospital. 
in today's world, the battlefields move into the cyberspace and therefore neutral and impartial space needs to be defined in, the, in, in this new cyberspace. And I think what we have done in the past has to be transformed into the cyberspace and our protection work needs to move digital. And all the concepts that we have used in the past from distinguishing between civilians and militaries, uh, having access and support for humanitarian, for neutral and impartial humanitarian actors, all these principles that we have defined of neutrality, impartiality, independence, they need translation into what it means exactly in the cyberspace. I think the principles as such, the laws as such, are still as valid as ever. They are time-tested and they have been true before Industrial Revolution, after Industrial Revolution, after the Second World War and to today. But what it means exactly in the cyberspace and how you protect and how you create agreement on interpretation of laws and principles, on, in, on the clear extent of the cyber perimeter, what is allowed and what is not allowed, what is the space and not the space. This is today a discussion which is eminently political and which is at the same time essential for our humanitarian work. We have to know where is the safe space in which we can operate, what are legitimate services we can provide, what are the data we can and need to be able to share, and what data can be protected and should be protected under which conditions. And I think this is exactly the fuzzy situation in which we are, because we have seen, again, the international community having talks, having processes, to get to agreement where the perimeters of this new space, this new humanitarian space are, but not necessarily agreeing where they are and how exactly we define the critical parameters of uh, the humanitarian perimeter of a neutral and impartial action in the cyberspace. This is still a lot of work uh, to do, behaviors to shape, negotiations to have amongst the signatories to the Geneva Conventions. Some people have spoken about a digital Geneva Convention being necessary. I think this reflects as a term and terminology what we understand from the cyber perimeter. It's defining the behavior and rules which govern the cyberspace with regard to violence and war as in the past, it has been defined in textbooks and physical situations. Uh, thank you, Peter. New presently, wars are evolving and new technologies can be used as a means of warfare. Does the Red Cross have to deal with cyber operations? How do you overcome the diplomatic challenges on cyber? What developments do you see in that regard? Is there an increase of cyber conflicts today? Do you think that cyber war is possible even? 
Well, I do believe that we have to deal with the phenomena because, uh, as you know, ICRC has, uh, out of the Geneva Convention of 1949, has a mandate to look after weapons technology and to support states' reflection on whether weapons technology are compatible with the basic principles of international humanitarian law, in particular the principle of distinction, proportionality and precaution in the use of weapons. To the extent that cyber-based uh, attacks, cyber warfare becomes a reality, and we all know that an increasing number of states have capacities in that respect, it is important that we consider whether technological developments in weaponizing the cyberspace or in cyberspace-based weapons, whether these are compatible with the rules of international humanitarian law, whether the rules of IHL can be applied. And therefore, I think we need to stimulate a discussion on the new tools and new weapons and uh, a discussion on whether they need either prohibition or regulation, and if regulation, what kind of regulation will ensure the use of those weapons in agreement with the basic provisions of international humanitarian law. So there is really a space to explore. I'm glad that the international community seems to converge on agreeing that international humanitarian law needs also to be applied in the context of cyber warfare. But again, we are not so sure what it means for new weapons. And I think what is new in this discussion and what is so tricky at the end of the day is that the cyberspace is a dual-use space. It is, as we have discussed at the beginning of our conversation, it is a tool to do good things, to do humanitarian work, to create a neutral and impartial cyberspace which can protect and assist people. But it is also a space which is and can be a weapon and can be used as a weapon. And when something is dual use, is a tool for good and a weapon for destruction, then I think we need to clarify where international humanitarian law needs to be. And that is, uh, I think, a major effort the international community still needs to do. And that's also the reason why it is so important to have those discussion processes within the United Nations, uh, within the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, within the Red Cross conference uh, every four years where we try to see how to legally frame the weaponry which is emerging from uh, cyber warfare and the transformation of the cyberspace. Thank you, Peter. Naturally, naturally we are back to legal regulations and political efforts and even the need for, as you call it, uh, Geneva cyber conventions. Speaking of cyber operations, international regulation is needed to resolve such conflicts and to protect people and their rights, to create healthy digital environment 
to protect people and organizations against various types of threats. How are these processes rather complicated? What specific gaps in legislation and regulation of international humanitarian rights do you see? It can be done to overcome them. For the ICRC, Guardian Organization of International Humanitarian Law, are the current regulations relevant? Are they protective enough for critical civilian infrastructures? Well, we, we do believe that international humanitarian law can be uh, really adequate, can be translated into the cyberspace and many of the key provisions of international humanitarian law are relevant to uh, malignous and hostile cyber operations in the situation of armed conflict and therefore uh, not attacking civilians and civilian infrastructure, precautionary measures, all the key concepts of international humanitarian law can be translated and there is an increasing agreement that many of these key concepts are relevant to the cyberspace. But I think in today's world, there is not yet an agreement how exactly to translate and how to interpret. And only if we have greater agreement will we be then also be able to identify the gaps. Because at the present moment, it is even difficult to identify and to say, these and these aspects are still unregulated and therefore need more precise normative work of states. Uh, I think for the time being, there is a debate on whether we can just interpret the Geneva Conventions in sync with the challenges of cyberspace or whether we have to find new concepts. And I think this work has to be done and it is a consensus building work amongst the international community is also the reason why ICRC has convened a high-level panel to advise us on where we can easily transform and interpret existing law into new realities and where we have real legal gaps which would then be negotiated uh, in our normative framework. I must say Looking from today, I mentioned misinformation, disinformation and hate speech. Uh, this is something which in my re respect, in, in my perspective, is definitely today a new dimension compared to hate speech on a radio 30 years ago. And therefore more precise legislative and normative thinking on what to do in order not to have hate speech and misinformation fueling real armed conflict is a critical legal gap which reunites also the concerns of uh, fighting crimes with the concerns of protecting civilians in armed conflict and all these difficult concepts i think need further definition so that uh, the international community can also in a more targeted way really try to fill gaps in legislation and normative development. Yeah. 
you're absolutely right. This is a hard process. But uniting the efforts is something that the global community has been talking about for quite some time. The scope of work is large. There are a lot of aspects that need to be reviewed jointly by representatives of various sectors of the economy and industry fields. What does the international community need to do to build effective collaboration from the point of view of a humanitarian organization? Could you provide some concrete examples of ICRC's successful cooperation with states and or technology sector in advancing the dialogue in this regard? Could you say a few words on the Global Advisor Board and digital threats? What are its long-term goals? What will the board focus on? Well, I think the uh, Global Advisory Board is already quite innovative because it, uh, it brings multi-stakeholders from different origins uh, together in one place. It's people who know about the perimeter of states, it's uh, technological companies uh, who are represented, it's lawyers, it's a multi-stakeholder effort to move forward. And I think this is what is fundamentally new today compared to the realities which we had in the past. In the past, sovereign states were negotiating legal frameworks amongst themselves. Today, we need to have multi-stakeholder efforts. And it is this uh, biotope of a, a multiplicity of actors which has, has to come to the table. What I can say from the first discussion with the Global Advisory Board, it is interesting how much everybody focused on strengthening the normative framework for the protection of critical infrastructure. Uh, we started with hospitals, but it is also water, sanitation, other energy infrastructure. I think we need to work towards agreements where we have a clear definition what has to happen in order to have a consensus built around the protection of critical infrastructure. And the second important issue which emerged from the first conversation was really, uh, I alluded before, is the misinformation piece, which is really considered insufficiently regulated at the present moment and which needs to shape consensus. And I think the whole object of and objective of the Global Advisory Board is really uh, to sharpen our the pr proposal to the international community on where normative consensus building work is necessary. And when I say normative work, this can be different things. It can be principles of good behavior. It can be prohib normative prohibition of certain aspects and use of technologies. It can be precautionary measures that states and private companies entertain in order to prevent misinformation and disinformation. It can look at responsibilities of platforms and providers of services. So we are still 
relatively at the beginning of defining the critical aspects, but I think everybody starts to sense that there are a couple of challenges which are closely linked to the core mandate of the Red Cross and Red Crescent over the last 160 years and which point towards the future. And it's really assisting and protecting people through law, through policies and through practical work. On the practical side, I think our cooperation, for instance, with universities has generated a lot of research, which will hopefully bring us better tools to technically protect our data. Uh, because cutting edge research helps us to protect uh, and to have uh, protection of data. And so I think the future will have to have multiple aspects of cooperations, bilateral, multilateral, multi-stakeholder, in order to address some of the critical issues. But again, the two most important issues looking from, uh, from our position at the present moment is the protection of critical in, uh, infrastructure and the prevention of misuse of information, including ransomware, which has been such a critical issue over the last couple of months uh, coming to uh, the consciousness also of the international community. Thank you, Peter. Building multilateral, even universal consensus is a very hard task. And uh, I feel that it is in the hands of the ICRC to facilitate building this consensus. Closing our discussion, let us look a few years ahead. What will be the future of the humanitarian sphere as the digital technologies evolve? In your opinion, will, will they bring more opportunities or still more digital divide between various groups of population? I would believe that the future evolution is in our hands. We have to understand what the risks and opportunities are and one of our critical, the critical questions I'm always asking my colleagues is what can we do in order to enhance, to speed and to scale opportunities and to minimize risks? And on the opportunity side, I see a, a lot open and I, I, I see a diminishing digital divide, in particular when I think about some of my visits to uh, really uh, Africa, the Middle East, uh, uh, the Southern Hemisphere in, in particular, to less advanced economies in conflict, I see a lot of uh, readiness to embrace new tools, new aspects uh, of digital transformation of humanitarian work, connectivity as aid becomes an accepted form of supporting and assisting people. In the framing of risk, I think there is a little bit more work to do. And in minimizing risk, we need prohibitions, we need positive principles, we need agreements, we need technological 
tools which help us uh, prevent misuse. We need political agreements. We need uh, pilot projecting what is working and what is not working. So there is still a broad range of cooperations to explore in order to assist and protect people exposed to violence, be the violence physical or virtual. And in that sense, a lot still needs to be done. Okay. Thank you very much, Peter, for this dialogue, for sharing your views. And Alexander, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks a lot to you. Thanks a lot, Michael. Mr. Vinagradov, Mr. Morer, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, our live stream continues. As a matter of fact, we are ready to start our next discussion right away. And the topic is international regulations on the web. It's necessary, but is it possible? I am pleased to introduce the moderator of this session, Mr. Jovan Kurbala, founding director, Diplo Foundation. Jovan, thank you very much for joining us. I will ask you to lead the discussion and introduce the speakers. Thank you. It's a great honor and pleasure to participate in today's event. Warmest regards from Geneva, although it's not as warm as Moscow, what I heard from Andre. It's quite, it's raining and it's a bit fresh for the summer, summer day. Uh, we had uh, another co colleague, the distinguished colleague Peter Maurer, uh, already discussing some important aspects of digital developments. And today we have uh, an excellent panel. We have with uh, us Andrei Vorobiov, Director of Coordination Center for TLDs of uh, .ru, uh, Russian domain. And we have Mandy Carver, Government and International Organization Engagement Senior Vice President of ICANN. And uh, we agree that we won't use that many acronyms. ICANN stands on Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Now, although there are many acronyms in this field, uh, uh, thanks to the organization uh, uh, which uh, Mandy and Andre uh, lead or work for, we can resolve domain names. When you type whatever domain uh, name in .ru or CNN or UN or Diplomacy DU, which is the address of my organization, it is resolved thanks to the system which is coordinated on the global level by ICANN and in the Russia by the, by the Coordination Center for TLDs. They have been quiet and very effective workers in ensuring interoperability and functionality of digital space, which became particularly important during pandemics, as our lives shifted, our work, lives, education shifted from offline to online, gradually returning back, but still we'll have quite a few activities online. Therefore, you have with us uh, heroes, quiet heroes of this, uh, this development, and uh, there are no better people than two of them to address this question of international regulation as you posed as, uh, as uh, international regulation on the web. It's necessary, but is it possible? And we'll start first with uh, Mandy asking her what ICANN, what your contribution from ICANN's work can be in answering this question. And then Andre will join us with reflections from uh, his experience of working in Russia. Mandy, over to you. Thank you, Jovan, and thank you for 
the introduction. I'd like to speak briefly about what ICANN does. As Jovan has said, we are the, uh, it's the internet corporation for assigned names and numbers. We coordinate the addressing system, if you will. We're a not-for-profit, a public benefit entity. We operate globally and the DNS or the domain name system, that is the framework that allows you to navigate the internet and easily reach your destination, a preferred platform, whether you're looking for a specific application, content, services, you're using that system to navigate the kinds of services that ride on top of the internet. ICANN administers the infrastructure and I'd like to touch on the concept of regulation and what are people actually talking about when we talk about trying to protect users, um, the kinds of regulation that people talk about often is talking about behaviors or the, what people use the internet for. And unfortunately, sometimes the regulations are written that impact how the internet operates. And so you can have an unintended consequence by trying to secure one set of behaviors, you can undermine the infrastructure that allows a single stable interoperable internet. And that is what has made the shift to a virtual world and the, the necessary services and access we have needed through the pandemic and just a global um, economy. It's that interoperability that uh, shores up that entire global process. So what I wanted to say is ICANN has basically two pillars. We have a technical service pillar. We administer these unique identifiers. And I wanna stop and say, we use what's called a multi-stakeholder model. So it isn't just technical people. We have governments that are active through the government advisory committee. And I'm pleased to note the Russian Federation through the Ministry of Digital Development, Communications and Mass Media is an active uh, member of the government advisory committee. Um, also the Russian country code top level domain operator. Andrea is going to be speaking. He's from .ru. They're an important uh, participant in the global system, and they're one of the most successful country code operators using non-Roman alphabets. So to be able to deliver domain names in Cyrillic. And that's another part of what ICANN does to ensure global activity and global access, which is internationalized domain names moving the internet into a space where it isn't only using the original ASCII Roman alphabet, but that people can access the internet in their own language uh, scripts and symbol systems. The role ICANN has and what we talk about as technical internet governance is looking at the agreed standards and regulations that touch on that technical infrastructure. So we have various roles in securing the internet, 
whether that be through um, the kinds of uh, protocols we have, the we encourage adoption of the domain name system security extensions. We partner with global law enforcement agencies, anti-abuse agencies, uh, researchers, operators. The, the goal is to assist governments and, and the global community to understand how the internet works and to help them with potential technical aspects technical ways of addressing these so that there aren't unintended consequences. One of the things we talk to people about is what is the correlation between, or the potential correlation between abusive registration of domain names, cybersecurity issues, because securing the stability and resilience of the domain name system is an important part of technical internet governance. It's also different than the way internet governance is often discussed more broadly. People want to talk about questions of content, fake news, cybercrime. These areas of behavior on the internet or uses of the internet, those are outside of ICANN's remit. Our mandate is the technical infrastructure and ensuring interoperability. And I am mindful of time, so I'm going to to uh, stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy, for uh, outlining, uh, if I can summarize, handle with care. It's a very complex system. It works. It's sometimes quiet. Uh, trying to reduce lost in translation between different uh, countries, uh, scripts, languages, uh, ensuring standards and uh, security extension, and being uh, clear what you can do or what you cannot do. You can uh, help with uh, managing the internet infrastructure, but not regulating what's going on on the internet. Andrew is from the Coordination Center, Russian. And uh, Andrew, you can comment on, on, uh, on the, this question, build on it, but it would be useful to hear uh, from you. What is your opinion on the necessity to have international regulation of cyberspace? What role does national regulations play on it? For example, in, uh, in Russia? And uh, can you describe the situation from Russian point of view, Russian dynamics or very vibrant Russian digital community as Mandy indicated? Over to you, Andrew. Thank you, Jovan. I will switch uh, to a Russian. Uh, it is uh, uh, my great pleasure to have this discussion. It is great that we have this section. Thank you for the organizers. Uh, it uh, does remind me of one of the uh, internet forums we had in Russia. Uh, to build on that, I would like to say that it is quite uh, quite hard to develop the universal adoption because uh, we do not even have the proper definition of what Internet is. Jovan, you as an author of a book on Internet management and governance, you know that there is only a working term. Uh, the Tunisian summit uh, coined this 
term in 2005. And basically, not much progress has been done in this case. Uh, so maybe we need to develop the rules in, on, on a native uh, uh, on the native principle, as it is happening on the internet. Because you know, talking about universal rules for everything, that's quite a challenge. You know, before the revolution in Russia, there was a, a village doctor, and this doctor uh, used to be the only one. Uh, whatever your disease uh, or accident, you just uh, went to the village doctor, and that's it. Uh, now we are going to the specialized uh, uh, doctors who work in uh, big clinics and each doctor uses some protocol to uh, heal the disease. We cannot uh, talk about the universal protocol to heal all the diseases. The high quality medicine and healthcare means that each profile has its own unique methodologies and uh, protocols and medications and uh, other things. So when we talk about the internet, we need to delineate in terms of the uh, uh, internet usage, uh, you know, the use of the uh, internet infrastructure, something that Mandy was uh, talking about and something that ICANN is doing, the technical governance of the internet. Uh, that's the protocols and that's the technical issues that are being resolved. But we see how the uh, global forum of internet governance uh, is being transformed. It used to be a universal platform to discuss the internet governance issues, but now this platform is divided on a number of specific dedicated groups uh, that have one tasks, but these tasks are categorized too, because there are tasks to ensure st stability, resilience and cyber security. There are uh, topics related to the uh, uh, cross-border uh, digital platforms and some user agreements that uh, the societies and the states are not happy with. And uh, it, it all need, uh, asks for uh, the uh, unique approaches. We won't be able to find a silver bullet here. Can uh, the uh, community, based on the multi-stakeholder uh, model as I can, work with uh, some organizations? And the answer is yes. And we can go back to history and it can do it very efficiently. Let's uh, remember 1998, the corporation was registered in 1999. The uh, uh, World uh, Intellectual Property Organization developed a policy for the uh, generic top-level domain. And this procedure uh, is, has been working successfully many years and uh, all the domain claims are reviewed there. Who should own the domain and, the, and there are no compen material compensation. More than 70 countries uh, joined the initiative and we see that in Russia our patent authority is, creating, is thinking of creating the arbitrage center in Russia. Uh, which will do have the same remit. And we're not talking about, uh, I mean, we're now talking about the national domain areas, and uh, but since the number of domain zones is increasing, uh, the first stage of the new, new uh, deal has been implemented, uh, we have a need, and Mandy talked about that, we want to have multi-language uh, internet addresses. We need to have a user content based uh, that will be translated in all languages. So that means that the uh, legal procedure should be available in all uh, other languages. And this topic is being actively discussed. So this is a multi-good example of multi-stakeholders uh, cooperation with the 
state uh, or uh, like uh, international organization like uh, the world uh, proper international property organizations now talking about this multi-language domain names as what that wendy mentioned i uh, really like that i can put it in its strategic tasks before 2025 uh, it is one of our uh, topical issues you know this universal adoption uh, the, we want to make sure that the um, email addresses and internet addresses are available everywhere and accessible everywhere, but obviously we need the state to work on that and we ask the state to do that. And uh, when the state has motivated the providers to go quicker to the new protocol, IV6, the transition is here, it's, it's, it's over. Where there's no motivation like that, uh, this protocol has not been yet adopted. So we do hope that uh, our authority and uh, our regional groups, and we have m many countries uh, with the Cyrillic uh, that uh, are used in national domains, and they will support this effort and work. Andre, Andre just one, one question building on your comments. Your coordination center is uh, leading a Netoscope project designed to take down malicious domains. And Bizone CERT is a part of this project. Uh, what have you achieved with this initiative and what are the further plans and uh, how, how you link it to the global cooperation where the malicious misuses are coming uh, across the border? Then Mandy can reflect on what's, what ICANN is doing because cybersecurity is becoming a big issue. Just few weeks ago, President Biden and Putin met in Geneva, and one of the big issues was the question of cybersecurity, how two countries, United States and Russia, can, can cooperate. Let's hear how what you do on the technical level through this uh, uh, netoscope uh, in uh, dealing with malicious uh, registrations. That is a great question, Jovan. Uh, back in the middle of the noughties, the Russian domain .ru was uh, uh, something like a Russian registrator on all uh, international platforms. Uh, uh, was very much villainized because there was a lot of uh, uh, inappropriate content on those on those domains, and the regulators were not fighting too effectively with that. And the industry was pretty much uh, turning a blind eye to that as well. We managed to launch two big projects. The first project is Netoscope, which analyzes, which collects and analyzes uh, big arrays of data uh, associated with the domains to predict which recently registered domains could be used for malicious purposes. That is the first line of our uh, of our work. The second initiative is this organization, the, the biggest in Russia, uh, this competent organization that specializes in, uh, for example, identifying phishing, the, the uh, problem that was uh, only exacerbated by the pandemic. So if there is a phishing resource, uh, we have organizations that work very tightly uh, to eradicate that. One of them is Bizone, one of the organizers of the current event. So these organizations notify companies registered in uh, uh, Russian domain uh, Russian domains, and then the organizers have the right to block certain domain names to uh, cut the line for phishing attacks. 
In addition to that, over the 10 years of operation, practically 10 years of operation, we have uh, established a very effective exchange of information between registers, between this um, Instascope organization and other competent authorities, and we're very much curious about how these uh, domain activities are implemented in other uh, regions. Uh, we know about the initiatives of ICANN, DAR, a pretty famous uh, project uh, here in Russia. We also know that ICANN organizes uh, conferences and sections at Global Fora about this topic. These are excellent platforms for exchange of uh, insights and experience. So we have been working and enhancing our projects, and uh, I think that ICANN have also been very interested in Netoscope, and uh, we are in tight cooperation in that. That's good. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for bringing this uh, important dynamics, what's happening nationally, what you're doing uh, with Netoscope. But obviously, you have a limit to what you can do, because Internet is a trans-border, and uh, things are, things are uh, going across national borders. And we should bring the, this example of cooperation between you and the other uh, organizations as an example of international cooperation and the uh, need of regulation in practical and effective way. Mendy, what you can tell us from the, let's say, international perspective, how these dots are connected from the, between Notoscope and, for example, a register in the United States? So, Andre, I want to thank him for the very kind words. And he has mentioned DAR, which is one of the research projects that ICANN facilitates. And it's exactly this sharing of data and the comparison of analytic information. So we can compare, we can share that information. It assists, I'm, I'm trying not to go down into the weeds of acronyms, so I will, I will try and describe this in the, in the terms of if we have the information from various uh, countries, various top-level domain operators that are sharing their information into the registry, the DAR study, it helps to find common patterns, it universalizes information about what people are seeing uh, as, and, and the more information that's provided, the more effective the potential tool for um, assessing the likelihood of uh, abusive behavior. It's also, we, as, uh, as noted earlier, we collaborate a great deal globally with the various uh, law enforcement organizations, with Interpol, Europol, etc. One of the things to remember is there isn't anything that is legal in the virtual world that is illegal in the real world. The only question is the modality. And so regulations against a, a number of bad behaviors already exist. As you have flagged in a global system, the question is how do you enforce those? How do you make sure that the regulations that do exist can be appropriately applied. And that is where the, the global cooperation comes in. Andre mentioned that uh, ICANN works with WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, for instance, we do. The government advisory committee within ICANN also has 
intergovernmental organizations as uh, observer participants. And so WIPO acts as a universal a, a UDRP, Universal Dispute Resolution Group, uh, can, to evaluate potential conflicts uh, around intellectual property. We have a number of those kinds of, of partnerships. So it's, it is that participation, that multi-stakeholder model. And, and the other part that's important about the internet is it has always been a public-private partnership, if you will. You can't effectively manage this system if you don't have all the players at the table. And that's why we use a multi-stakeholder model rather than a purely multilateral. Governments have an important role, but they can't do this by themselves. And in order to maintain the system, we need all the actors at the table. And that's the multi-stakeholder model that ICANN uses both for the management, the technical remit that we have, but also the policy development side around the management of the unique identifiers that make up the internet. And so there's an opportunity for governments and intergovernmental organizations and law enforcement agencies, but also business and academics, um, civil society, the end users, all have a role and a voice that can come to this, uh, come Good. to the table. Maybe. And one last thing I will say, we regularly provide um, trainings for different uh, players in that system. We work globally. We will provide technical advice. We can provide specific briefings. Um, we can assist with commentary on proposed regulations and what impact those may or may not have on the technical operation of the internet. And that's the, the aspect where we work. Good. Mandy and, and Andrea, let me just uh, conclude. We have a few minutes more with one important question. Let's say I have, uh, I'm not attacked. I hope I won't be attacked. Uh, but there is attack coming from domain name from Ruritania, the invent the country. And uh, I go to the local uh, police here in Geneva that I'm based and said, I'm attacked. There is this domain name from Ruritania. And uh, what can they do? Do they call ICANN? Do they call a Ruritanian domain name? How does it work in practice? Just to explain to our audience, which they are not probably familiar with all details uh, of, the, of the really impressive ICANN system, but how does it work in practice? Andy or, uh, or uh, Andrew or uh, Mandy? Mandy, I, I coin <laughs> your name, integrated name. Uh, I will let... Andre talked, speak to the specifics of how, because he is actually operating a registry. I am on the side talking about the, the integration. It depends on the nature of the attack. Um, if this is a denial of service attack uh, where people have used a network of computers to try and overwhelm a system that's one set of trying to respond. If it's pirated material, then um, you're looking at a different regulatory scheme. Um, so if it's if it's theft, then again, it's a different regulatory scheme. I can, we are not the police force, if you will. We assist with the information that we have at our disposal. And we work with the regulatory bodies so that when they are designing 
systems, they they have a full understanding of how the internet operates and so that their designs will go toward their intended outcome as opposed to something that may damage access to the system for the rest of their citizens, for instance. And uh, Andre, uh, if you have a, a citizen in Moscow and coming to you and calling you, say, help me, what would you do? I don't think we should expect from registrators that they will pick up a gun and uh, go chase the criminals. Uh, so Mendy is completely right. The uh, goal, the job of the industry is to uh, provide assistance to law enforcement in correct attribution of attacks, in identifying correct algorithms and uh, protocols. And I think this is... Uh, we have seen an intensification of uh, cooperation. We have recently created uh, a computer center for responding to cybersecurity incidents. I think centers like this one should be cooperating in this trusted environment with other stakeholders. This crisis of trust, something that is very often mentioned uh, at such uh, conferences, we should all act side by side, hand in hand, in fighting crime. And I don't think we should look for conflicts, discrepancies between multi-stakeholder and multilateral. Conversely, we should look for things that unite these two approaches and use the best things from both in order to effectively combat uh, the criminals that use this internet technology, which initially was created uh, for, for the benefit of mankind, to be used positively, not for fraud, uh, and much less so for hybrid wars, for attacks, and so on and so forth. I think we are all on the same page here, and I, I see that this line of work is uh, becoming is coming to the foreground. This uh, cooperation on the international level and adoption of uh, legally binding documents for states, uh, for organizations in that field to be effective in combating this threat together. There are different approaches, of course, which you can uh, adopt or reject, but the important thing is to continue the dialogue. This is internet governance. This is what internet governance is about. You continue the dialogue and you come up with uh, new challenges along the way. So this is uh, a process that never ends. It's a continuous process. Those who uh, would like to professionally manage the internet should be prepared that the flow of challenges will be uh, indefinite. There will be no point in time where you can just uh, rest on your laurels. Andre, then the uh, citizens in uh, Moscow, Washington, Geneva should be should be calm when it comes to the reaction of the potential digital uh, digital attacks. You remind me, Mandy, and you on one important year, 1998. In the matter of few months, ICANN was established. Yes, they should uh, first and foremost go to law enforcement and then law enforcement will contact the market players and they will receive all the necessary information from us. That year in 1998, ICANN was established in September. Russia tabled the first cybersecurity resolution in the General Assembly of the UN and the ITU held the summit where the decision to hold the World Summit on Information Society was... Uh, established only in few months in a few cities in the United States. And since then, multi-stakeholder and multilateral approaches have been developing. 
along the ICON track, along the World Summit on Information and Internet Governance Forum, and along the cybersecurity track, which resulted in open-ended working group. And we often hear that there are many, uh, some especially media conflicting views, but there is a lot of cooperation and a lot of convergences. And you already outlined how it works in practice. And I would like to invite you to give us advice how to prepare for the Internet Governance Forum 2025, which will be hosted in Russia. How we can help and advise diplomats, technical people to build more inclusive, stable and robust internet. Mandy, first, your advice. Get involved. Um, yes, 2025 will be the next uh, review of the mandate, uh, the WISIS forum uh, and the, the agenda that was set out was critical in uh, the creation of the kind of global dialogue that we've been referring to. You've got uh, four years. The, the next global IGF is in Katowice, Poland in December of this year. Uh, so there are multiple forums. ICANN has uh, three conferences a year which are, and a lot of intersessional work. We welcome all to join the constituencies and become involved in these discussions because they are critical that the, the that we don't have knee-jerk reactions to something that then end up creating a great deal of uh, damage. And we have collaborative models, we have multi-stakeholder and multilateral working together because there are overlapping uh, roles. We'd like to encourage that that continue. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy. Andrew, what is your advice for all of us in build up for the, I don't know if it is going to be Sochi, you can reveal us the secret or Moscow 2025 Internet Governance Forum. Just for everybody else, Internet Governance Forum is sort of umbrella gathering, multi-stakeholder gathering where different cybersecurity, data protection, artificial intelligence communities get together. What is your short advice, Andrew? It's pretty easy here for me to lean against what our uh, parliamentary representatives said in Vilnius. I think it was the last uh, specialized forum before the pandemic. So one of our representatives advocated having a more extensive mandate for the forum to uh, increase the number of powers that the forum has so that it turns from a simply discussion platform but to, into a platform where consensus decisions could be made to become then a foundation for something greater. So uh, to develop certain agreements that we could then rely on down the line. I think one of the main proposals of Russia by 2025, when the forum will take place. According to its current mandate, it will be completing its work. So what does the forum transform into in the future? Will it continue to be a, a purely discussion forum or will it be something else? Also, this year we had our first uh, Russian internet uh, managing forum. I think we need to enhance our work with youth. Uh, we have this institution, uh, institution of uh, uh, the digital ombudsman for the youth. 
which is very useful in collecting different opinions of different young people, um, which I think could be a valuable contribution to decision making. I'm sure that this approach holds a lot of promise, and I hope a lot of uh, the participants at the Global Forum will appreciate it. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Andre. I just changed the background. Behind me is the uh, villa room in the Villa Lagrange in Geneva, where President uh, Biden and Putin met a few weeks ago and discussed cooperation on many issues, including controversial ones. What we heard today from uh, uh, Andrew and from uh, uh, Mandy is example of one working cooperation on the global level with uh, a lot of interesting ideas, inputs in build-up for the next meetings on international regulation and in particular 2025 uh, Internet Governance Forum. I wish you a lot of success in the further discussion. I also would like to invite you to get involved, as Mandy said, and to build together not only Internet and new applications, but also the way how we use Internet, how we regulate Internet, and how we ensure that it will serve our and future generations. Thank you. Thank you, Jovan. Dear speakers, your contribution to Cyber Polygon is highly appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, the technical training has been in progress for more than four hours, and it's been a while since we spoke to the participants. I am once again joined by Vasily, who is leading Sberbank's blue team and is ready to talk to us. Vasily, what can you tell us about your progress? Oh, 15 minutes ago. We have completed the first scenario, which is, has traditionally been the most challenging one, because this is not something that we do every day. Uh, but we were able to close all five vulnerabilities. Of course, we have completed this task nearer to the end, but we still were able to be in top ten to cement our position in top 10 and we are working on the next scenario right now ladies and gentlemen we also have a brief moment to talk to a member of the red team Inakinti has the update for us Inakinti, how is everything going thank you alexander uh, so yeah i'd like to congratulate vasily he is one of the select few uh, it seems only five or six teams actually managed to patch all the vulnerabilities I'd especially like to congratulate Team 116 because uh, they were the first and they actually managed to patch everything in the first tower. And uh, their first vulnerability was even patched uh, before the attack began, so that was great. Uh, right now we've switched to the second scenario, uh, the response scenario. I think it will be easier for the blue teams because uh, this is a more orthodox uh, thing for them to do. So here they will have to investigate uh, an incident that has already occurred. They're given several artifacts such as uh, network captures, disk images, uh, and uh, uh, access to an SIEM system. So uh, I think they will be able to find out what happened and uh, understand uh, what was the information, uh, how the attacker uh, penetrated the system, how they spread through the networks and what they managed to steal. So I think uh, once again I'd like to remind you that uh, these scenarios are based around a supply chain attack. So for example in this uh, scenario we 
uh, have uh, two in, uh, networks that are connected. One we, uh, with, the com uh, with the company PolarWinds, which provides software, and uh, then uh, the host company that uses uh, their software. Back to you, Alexander. Thank you, Nakinji. Good luck to your team. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now ready for our final discussion. Cyberbullying and beyond. How can we protect children from digital threats? Once again, Mr. Stanislav Kuznetsov, Deputy Chairman of the Executive Board at Sberbank, is joining us to discuss this matter with Mrs. Henrietta Four, Executive Director, UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. Mr. Kuznetsov, please, you have the floor. Thank you so much, Alexander. So, our discussion today will be about cyberbullying. Cyberbullying and protection of children from the digital threats. This topic is very important. Children start using the internet computers and smartphones from early age. According to the United Nations statistics, more than 70% of children in the world are internet users. This is 30% of all internet users and 95% of teenagers now have smartphones and 45% are online almost all the time. The internet gives great opportunities to kids in education. It gives access to information, opens the door into the world of technologies and online entertainment. Yet the virtual space is sometimes a dangerous place for the children. We meet cyberbullying, online harassment, violence in the net, phishing and social engineering. And kids are the most vulnerable to the digital threats. They are trusting and it is difficult for them to distinguish good from bad. So, it is our responsibility to protect children from any harm in the internet and beyond. Today, we welcome Madam Henrietta for here, the executive director of UNICEF, the organization that protects children, their rights and lives globally. It operates in over 190 countries. Madam Four, it is a great honor for me to welcome you at Cyber Polygon. Uh, I have a few questions to you. Good morning in California. Good afternoon in Moscow and in, in Europe. Hi. Good afternoon. It's very nice to be with you. My first question is, today when kids spend more and more time online, cyberbullying is becoming a real problem as it is it can impact the child's mental health and future growth. Spreading fake information, posting unacceptable photos in, uh, of the victim, sending uh, assaulting messages and threats, children can encounter such danger in social network, in messengers or on gaming platforms. Why does it happen? Why do we know how to prevent online abuse? So it's a really important question. And as you said in your opening thoughts, 
it's a very important responsibility for all of us as their elders. So children and young people have been using the online world to greater and greater extent, and it is certainly increased during COVID-19. And for many of them, it has been their lifeline. And particularly for adolescents, we see that it's part of their social network. So we cannot keep children away from it and we don't want them to. Their world is going to be a world of online learning and we want those opportunities to open for them. But there are risks and cyberbullying is definitely a very large risk. And it's one that we should all be alert to and to your point, try to do something about. So um, let me just uh, differentiate between online and offline bullying. Uh, when a child is at home now studying and online, there are strangers, people that the child does not know, who can come into their safe place, their home, and be bullies. They also have um, offline bullies, often in a schoolyard, many of them peers, and these are known to the child but they can be very hurtful and harmful and a lot of this comes to them on social media. So it's going to be very important for all of us to think about both online and offline cyberbullies. Uh, a second area is that one of the things that's happening with an online life is that many of the images are now quite permanent they can stay there for a lifetime. So if you post pictures or pictures are posted about you or comments, they can stay. So children often do not understand the consequences of what they are doing. And it reminds all of us as parents and teachers and elders that we have to encourage them not to say mean or disparaging comments about others, that they should be kind and supportive when they are online and with their friends. It's difficult to do, but our own actions in this regard will help all of us. It's one of the things that all of us can do. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, some time ago, UNICEF made an anonymous poll among 170,000 teenagers and uh, young people from dozens of countries. The respondents sent their answers through a special system of text, text messages exchange and data collection, so-called U-Report. More than a third of the, of the youngsters admitted they were abused on the internet. What have you learned in such polls about children's experience of cyberbullying around the world? How can your report program help the kids? Um, so uh, we have been doing these surveys and one of the things that we find is that children and young people all around the world when they are online have many of the same habits. They are looking at videos, they're on social media, they're on instant messaging, uh, they are looking for educational materials, they're learning new things. So we know what they are doing and where they are doing it. What you report is, is it's a online platform where we can ask 
children and young people, their thoughts about what's going on in their world and what they are experiencing. Therefore, if they hear or see something that another young person is hearing or seeing in another country, they can learn that it's now coming into their country and that there may be perpetrators online that they should be very wary of. So it's a learning platform. We've used it in a number of contexts um, when Ebola was first coming out to make sure that young people alerted their villages and um, family members as to how they could stay safe, not to touch bodily fluids, etc. We also use it in times of disaster so that when roads are closed and mudslides or fires or other things that you know where you can go that's safe. And um, in Ukraine, we have used it for bullying in schools so that we can both hear what children are hearing, but also we can hear about um, what their experiences are, how it's happening, how they're being approached. You know, all of us realize that there are ways that we could help. And sometimes we don't listen to the children around us. Their voices might be quiet or you they are not saying something. And so we're busy, we run off to work, and we forget to ask them how they are, how they're doing. It's very important to keep checking in with the children in your lives because they will tell us, just as they do on your report, what's wrong in their world. Thank you. Thank you for your answer. My next question is, with, uh, with a lot of gadgets and uh, the time children spend online, parents, often find it uh, difficult to support to support the child uh, and understand his or her activity on the net. Do you think that we need additional actions from the government and internet providers? Can government regulations help here? And, and what business and corporate ecosystem can do? So I definitely think that governments can help here. Governments, in fact, should be in the lead because they set the laws, they have the justice system, they have the rules and regulations that can help if some sort of illegal activity is going on or if cyberbullying is existing, then the government and its guidelines set the pace. And as you know very well, corporations and businesses can definitely be part of this solution because they set the ethics and the mores of their employees and their families. So it will be a solution that all of us will need to come to together. There are a couple of very good international organizations that we often turn to. One is um, the campaign to end violence um, against children. Another is the We Protect Global Alliance. And they can be very good guidelines for how one can approach uh, solutions, whether you're a government or whether you're a business. Okay, thank you so, thank you so much. So in uh, autumn 2019, UNICEF and the Russian government signed an important document, a memorandum of understanding that envisioned plans for developing UNICEF activity in Russia, exchanging knowledge and technical experience. 
What are your plans for future activities in our region? Well, thank you for that. Yes, we're very, we're very excited about the prospects. Um, so we did sign a memorandum of understanding with the Russian Federation. And let me just read to you some of the things that we're going to cover, because I think they're all very important and interesting. They're particularly focused in the Europe and the Central Asia region. We do not actually work within the Russian Federation. So um, all of these activities are uh, in countries that are nearby or activities that are nearby. So it includes humanitarian and development work, maternal and child health, vaccine preventable diseases, including immunization, knowledge generation and education and communication in the Russian language, young people's agenda, and this one I'm sure you know, young people are asking for more information when they're in secondary school about what kinds of jobs and skills they need to have for the future. They're wondering about their own lives. Uh, we also have an agenda on water, sanitation and hygiene, on HIV prevention among children and adolescents, and overcoming child poverty and supporting children with disabilities. But all of these, I think, will be very important. We're hoping to bring much of the expertise and knowledge uh, that lies within the Russian Federation out to the world. Uh, one that I've been interested in is the Kaspersky Safe Kids. And so we're going to look for models that we see overseas that can be used somewhere and also that are in the Russian Federation. So I think it will be a very good match. Thank you so much. You know, my company is Bear, as a large ecosystem uh, recognizes the responsibility on the issue and has its own promotional and educational initiatives in protected, protecting children in digital space. Uh, you know, I believe that uh, potential collaboration between SBER and UNICEF could bring a great value both to the region and to the whole world. What do you think about it? I like it. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. Um, when businesses um, uh, weigh in, especially one with a large ecosystem that cares about children and their parents, and the teachers of children, it makes everything work. So yes, wonderful idea. I like it too. And fi finalizing our discussion, what advice could you give to children and uh, teenagers who, who are abused online? What shall they do and how to react? And what shall their parents do? Uh, what shall uh, it parents uh, do in this situation? So as we just talked about a minute ago, part of it is just listening to our children, but be sure that you are asking them what they are experiencing online and they will tell you. And sometimes you will see them crying in their rooms or you will um, hear that they are frustrated with something that they have just read or heard. So, be sure that you understand if it is something that is an illegal activity. If it is illegal, be sure that you get it to the police or to a legal authority. 
often we as uh, parents and as elders in their lives uh, think that they will know when they need to turn to us, but they don't necessarily. And so we need to encourage them to go to a thoughtful, wise, safe adult and report whatever they are seeing or hearing. If they have approached one child, they're going to approach another hundred or thousand or million children online. Perpetrators online are growing exponentially. So all of us have to be alert and help. And there are also now a lot of helplines that are available. So be sure that you know where the helplines are because sometimes young people are each other's best friends. And if one has used a helpline, they will pass on the knowledge of that helpline and they will get help. But um, it's going to be up to all of us. They are our future. They are our generation and we need to look after them, but also open up the opportunities that the cyber world brings to them. Madam Four, I thank you for this interesting session. We have, we have discussed a lot of important issues. Children are our future and it is obvious that we need to broaden international cooperation to protect them better. Three, year, three years ago, Russia acknowledged the necessity to work in that sphere by signing the memorandum. And uh, we also understand the need to increase UNICEF presence in this field worldwide. And uh, let us continue this work. I hope that uh, together we will be able to provide both the safe, both the safe internet and safe future for our children. Thank you so much. Very good. Thank you very much. Mr. Kuznetsov, Madam Four, thank you very much. As a young father of an angel daughter, I can very much relate to that topic. There's nothing more important than the future of our children. Ladies and gentlemen, throughout the whole stream, we've been analyzing everything that was being said during the discussions. And right behind me is the tag cloud of Cyber Polygon 2021. Security, cyber, chain, world, supply, I think it summarizes one of our main messages. We've been talking for three years about achieving a proper level of international cooperation, and we will not stop until we get there. We're now coming up to the end of the live stream, and I would like you to think back on the diversity of topics that we have discussed. Ecosystems, government services, supply chains, ransomware, cryptocurrency, cyberbullying. I think it's quite clear that this event is not all about cybersecurity. It's about life. It's a testament to how deeply integrated we have become with technology and everything around us. There's no denying that our lives are changing. The transition to cyber is accelerating due to the coronavirus situation. It seems that the pandemic might be a long-lasting thing which could leave us in an unprecedented arm race against the virus. It might very well be that in the future we will be updating our immune systems with newer vaccines, just like we update our antivirus software on a regular basis. It looks like we'll have some great stories to tell our grandkids. Let's make a concerted effort to make sure they're all positive stories. And with that, I'd like to invite Mr. Stanislav Kuznetsov to officially close 
Cyber Polygon 2021. Mr. Kuznetsov, please. Dear, dear ladies and gentlemen, the Cyber Polygon conference is coming to the end. And, and I would like to express my sincere gratitude to the speakers and all participants who, who have taken interest in this remarkable and useful event. During the conference, we have listened to, listened to 30 prominent speakers who have delivered their insights and shared their experience. Experience, experience on the most challenging problems that our world is facing now. We have made an attempt to look, to look into the future and envisage the digital state of tomorrow. I think, I'm sure, we all have done a very good job. Uh, the executive track of Cyber Polygon has come to the end, but its technical part will continue. Our participants have just started the second scenario of the training. Um, it is my pleasure to, to underline that this year 200 technical teams from 48 countries have joined Cyber Polygon. Their industries and spheres of activities vary greatly. He, uh, here we have IT, telecom, banking, the public sector, consulting, retail, healthcare, and many, many others. This year, our training will last 24 hours and finish only tomorrow, as it requires a lot of efforts from the participants. I wish them a great success on this way. Uh, I am particularly grateful to our special guests, speakers, and moderators for, for their involvement readiness to share their experience and uh, thoughtful remarks. I would like to express thanks to our red team for their organization of the technical training. I greatly appreciate the readiness of all 200 blue teams to test their capabilities in countering digital threats. And my special, special thanks and gratitude to go to the World Economic Forum, Interpol, and our technology partner, IBM Company, for their constant assistance and support. In November 2021, we are going to present the comprehensive report to the results of Cyber Polygon 2021 at the World Economic Forum annual meeting on cybersecurity. Let me once again thank all of you for being here today, even online. At present, we assume that on, online communication is our new reality. And uh, this particular fact makes Cyber Polygon much more important and impactful. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you, the whole team from Security Operations Center of Sberbank and see you next year. See you next year. Всем спасибо. Спасибо еще раз.